Random House Audio presents A Dance with Dragons Book 5 of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin Read for you by Roy Dotrice Prologue The night was rank with the smell of man. The wag stopped beneath a tree and sniffed, his grey-brown fur dappled by shadow. A sigh of piney wind brought the man-scent to him, over a fainter smells that spoke of fox and hare, seal and stag, even wolf. Those were man-smells, too, the wag knew, the stink of old skins, dead and sour, near drowned beneath the stronger scents of smoke and blood and rot. Only man stripped the skins from other beasts and wore their hides and hair. Wags have no fear of man as wolves do. Hate and hunger coiled in his belly, and he gave a low growl, calling to his one-eyed brother, to his small, sly sister. As he raced through the trees, his packmates followed hard on his heels. They had caught the scent as well. As he ran, he saw through their eyes, too, and glimpsed himself ahead. The breath of the pack puffed warm and white from long grey jaws. Ice had frozen between their paws, hard as stone. But the hunt was on now, the prey ahead. Flesh, the wag thought, meat. A man alone was a feeble thing, big and strong with good sharp eyes, but dull of ear and deaf to smells. Deer and elk and even hares were faster, bears and boars fiercer in a fight. But men in packs were dangerous. As the wolves closed on the prey, the wag heard the wailing of a pup, the crust of last night's snow breaking under clumsy man-paws, the rattle of hard skins, and the long grey claws men carried. Swords, a voice inside him whispered, spears. The trees had grown icy teeth, snarling down from the bare brown branches. One eye ripped through the undergrowth, spraying snow. His packmates followed, up a hill and down the slope beyond, until the wood opened before them and the men were there. One was female. The fur-wrapped bundle she clutched was her pup. Leave her for lust, the voice whispered. The males are the danger. They were roaring at each other as men did, but the wag could smell their terror. One had a wooden tooth as tall as he was. He flung it, but his hand was shaking, and the tooth sailed high. Then the pack was on them. His one-eyed brother knocked the tooth-thrower back into a snowdrift and tore his throat out as he struggled. His sister slipped behind the other male and took him from the rear. That left the female and her pup for him. She had a tooth, too, a little one made of bone, but she dropped it when the wag's jaws closed around her leg. As she fell, she wrapped both arms around her noisy pup. Underneath her furs, the female was just skin and bones, but her dugs were full of milk. The sweetest meat was on the pup. The wolf saved the choicest parts for his brother. All around the carcasses, the frozen snow turned pink and red as the pack filled its bellies. Leagues away, in a one-room hut of mud and straw, with a thatched roof and a smoke hole, and a floor of hard-packed earth, Varamir shivered and coughed and licked his lips. His eyes were red, 
His lips cracked, his throat dry and parched, but the taste of blood and fat filled his mouth, even as his swollen belly cried for nourishment. A child's flesh, he thought, remembering Bump. Human meat! Had he sunk so low as to hunger after human meat? He could almost hear Hagen growling at him. Man may eat the flesh of beasts and beasts the flesh of men, but the man who eats the flesh of man is an abomination. Abomination. That had always been Hagen's favorite word. Abomination, abomination, abomination. Treat of human meat was abomination. To mate as wolf with wolf was abomination. And to seize the body of another man was the worst abomination of all. Hagen was weak, afraid of his own power. He died weeping and alone when I ripped his second life from him. Veramir had devoured his heart himself. He taught me much and more, and the last thing I learned from him was the taste of human flesh. That was as a wolf, though. He had never eaten the meat of man with human teeth. He would not grudge his pack their feast, however. The wolves were as famished as he was, gaunt and cold and hungry, and the prey— Two men and a woman, a babe in arms, fleeing from defeat to death. They would have perished soon in any case, from exposure or starvation. This way was better, quicker, a mercy. A mercy, he said aloud. His throat was raw, but it felt good to hear a human voice, even his own. The air smelled of mould and damp. The ground was cold and hard and his fire was giving off more smoke than heat. He moved as close to the flames as he dared, coughing and shivering by turns, his side throbbing where his wound had opened. Blood had soaked his breeches to the knee and dried into a hard brown crust. Thistle had warned him that might happen. I sewed it out the best I could, she'd said, but you need to rest and let it mend or the flesh will tear open again. Thistle had been the last of his companions, a spearwife tough as an old root, warty, windburnt, and wrinkled. The others had deserted them along the way. One by one they fell behind or forged ahead, making for their old villages or the milk water or hard home or a lonely death in the woods. Faramir did not know and could not care. I should have taken one of them when I had the chance, one of the twins or the big man, with a scarred face, or the youth with the red hair. He had been afraid, though. One of the others might have realized what was happening. Then he would have turned on him and killed him, and Hagen's words had haunted him. And so the chance had passed. After the battle there had been thousands of them struggling through the forest, hungry, frightened, fleeing the carnage that had descended on them at the wall. Some had talked of returning to the homes that they'd abandoned, others of mounting a second assault upon the gate, but most were lost, with no notion of where to go or what to do. They had escaped the black cloak crows and the knights in their grey steel, but more relentless enemies stalked them now. Every day left more corpses by the trails. Some died of hunger, some of cold, some of sickness. Others were slain by those who had been their brothers in arms, when they marched south with Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. 
Mance has fallen, the survivors told each other in despairing voices. Mance is taken. Mance is dead. Harmer's dead, and Mance is captured. The rest run off and left us, Thistle had claimed, as she was sewing up his wound. Tormund, the weeper, Sixkins, all them brave raiders, where are they now? She does not know me, Varamir realized then, and why should she? Without his beasts he did not look like a great man. I was Varamir Sixkins, who broke bread with Mance Raider. He had named himself Varamir when he was ten. A name fit for a lord, a name for songs, a mighty name, and fearsome. Yet he had run from the crows like a frightened rabbit. The terrible lord Varamir had gone craven. But he could not bear that she should know that. So he told the spearwife that his name was Hagen. Afterwards he wondered why that name had come to his lips, of all those he might have chosen. I ate his heart and drank his blood, and still he haunts me. One day, as they fled, a rider came galloping through the woods on a gaunt white horse, shouting they should all make for the milk water, that the weeper was gathering warriors to cross the Bridge of Skulls and take the Shadow Tower. Many followed him, more did not. Later a dual warrior in fur and amber went from cookfire to cookfire, urging all the survivors to head north and take refuge in the Valley of the Thens. Why he thought they would be safe there, when the Thens themselves had fled the place, Varamir never learned, but hundreds followed him. Hundreds more went off with a woods witch, who'd had a vision of a fleet of ships coming to carry the free folk south. "'We must seek the sea,' cried Mother Mole, and her followers turned east. Varamir might have been amongst them, if only he'd been stronger. The sea was grey and cold and far away, though, and he knew that he would never live to see it. He was nine times dead and dying, and this would be his true death. A squirrel-skin cloak, he remembered. <laughs> he knifed me for a squirrel-skin cloak. Its owner had been dead. The back of her head smashed into red pulp flecked with bits of bone, but her cloak looked warm and thick. It was snowing, and Veramir had lost his own cloaks at the wall. His sleeping pelts and woolen small clothes, his sheepskin boots and fur-lined gloves, his store of mead and hoarded food, the hanks of hair he took from the women he bedded, even the golden armrings Mance had given him, all lost and left behind. I burned, and I died, and then I ran, half mad with pain and terror. The memory still shamed him, but he had not been alone. Others had run as well, hundreds of them, thousands. The battle was lost. The knights had come, invincible in their steel, killing everyone who stayed to fight. It was run or die. Death was not so easily outrun, however. So when Varamir came upon the dead woman in the wood, he knelt to strip the cloak from her, and never saw the boy until he burst from hiding to drive the long-bone knife into his side and rip the cloak out of his clutching fingers. His mother, Thistle told him later, after the boy had run off, it were his mother's cloak, and when he saw you rubbing her... She was dead, Varamir said, wincing as her bone needle pierced his flesh. 
Someone smashed a head. Some crow. No crow. Hornfoot men, I saw it. Her needle pulled the gash in his side closed. Savages. And who's left to tame them? No one. If Mance is dead, the free folk are doomed. The Thens, giants, and the Hornfoot men, the cave dwellers with their file teeth, and the men of the western shore with their chariots of bone. All of them were doomed as well. Even the crows, they might not know it yet, but those black-cloaked bastards would perish with the rest. The enemy was coming. Hagen's rough voice echoed in his head. You will die a dozen deaths, boy, and everyone will hurt, but when your true death comes, you will live again. The second life is simpler and sweeter, they say. Faramir Sixkins would know the truth of that soon enough. He could taste his true death in the smoke that hung acrid in the air, feel it in the heat beneath his fingers when he slipped a hand under his clothes to touch his wound. The chill was in him, too, though deep down in his bones. This time it would be cold that killed him. His last death had been by fire. I burned. At first, in his confusion, he thought some archer on the wall had pierced him with a flaming arrow. But the fire had been inside him, consuming him, and the pain... Vladimir had died nine times before. He had died once from a spear thrust, once with a bear's teeth in his throat, and once in a wash of blood as he brought forth a stillborn cub. He died his first death when he was only six, as his father's axe crashed through his skull. Even that had not been so agonizing as the fire in his guts, cracking along his wings, devouring it when he tried to fly from it. His terror fanned the flames and made them burn hotter. One moment he had been soaring above the wall, his eagle's eyes marking the movements of the men below. Then the flames had turned his heart into a blackened cinder, and sent his spirit screaming back into his own skin, and for a little while he'd gone mad. Even the memory was enough to make him shudder. That was when he noticed that his fire had gone out. Only a grey and black tangle of charred wood remained, with a few embers glowing in the ashes. There's still smoke. It just needs wood. Gritting his teeth against the pane, Varimir crept to the pile of broken branches Thistle had gathered before she went off hunting, and tossed a few sticks onto the ashes. "'Catch!' he croaked. "'Burn!' He blew upon the embers, and said a wordless prayer to the nameless gods of wood and hill and field. The gods gave no answer. After a while the smoke ceased to rise as well. Already the little hut was growing colder. Varimir had no flint, no tinder, no dry kindling. He would never get the fire burning again, not by himself. Thistle! he called out, his voice hoarse and edged with pain. Thistle! Her chin was pointed and her nose flat, and she had a mole on one cheek and four dark hairs growing from it, an ugly face and hard, yet he would give her much to glimpse it in the door of the hut. I should have taken her before she left. How long had she been gone? Two days? Three? Varamir was uncertain. It was dark inside the hut, and he had been drifting in and out of sleep, 
never quite sure if it was day or night outside. Wait, he'd said. I will be back with food. So like a fool he'd waited, dreaming of Hagen and Bump and all the wrongs he had done in his long life. But days and nights had passed, and Thistle had not returned. She won't be coming back. Varamir wondered if he had given himself away. Could she tell what he was thinking just from looking at him? Or had he muttered in his fever dream? Abomination, he heard Hagen saying. It was almost as if he were here, in this very room. She is just some ugly spearwife, Varamir told him. I am a great man, I am Varamir, the warg, the skin-changer. It is not right that she should live and I should die. No one answered. There was no one there. Thistle was gone. She had abandoned him, the same as all the rest. His own mother had abandoned him as well. She cried for Bump, but she never cried for me. The morning his father pulled him out of bed to deliver him to Hagen, she would not even look at him. He had shrieked and kicked as he was dragged into the woods until his father slapped him and told him to be quiet. "'You belong with your own kind,' was all he said when he flung him down at Hagen's feet. "'Oh, he was not wrong,' Varamir thought, shivering. "'Hagen taught me much and more. He taught me how to hunt and fish, how to butcher a carcass and bone a fish, how to find my way through the woods, and he taught me the way of the warg and the secrets of the skin-changer, though my gift was stronger than his own.' Years later, he had tried to find his parents, to tell them that their lump had become the great Varamir Sixkins, but both of them were dead and burned. Gone into the trees and streams, gone into the rocks and earth, gone to dirt and ashes. That was what the woods witch told his mother the day Bump died. Lump did not want to be a clod of earth. The boy had dreamed of a day when bards would sing of his deeds and pretty girls would kiss him. When I'm grown, I will be king beyond the wall, Lump had promised himself. He never had, but he had come close. Varamir Sixkins was a name men feared. He rode to battle on the back of a snow bear thirteen feet tall, kept three wolves and a shadow cat in thrall, and sat at the right hand of Mance Raider. It was Mance who brought me to this place. I should not have listened. I should have slipped inside my bear and torn him to pieces. Before Mance, Varamir Sixkins had been a lord of sorts. He lived alone in a hall of muss and mud and hewn logs that had once been Hagen's, attended by his beasts. A dozen villagers did him homage in bread and salt and cider, offering him fruit from their orchards and vegetables from their gardens. His meat he got himself. Whenever he desired a woman, he sent his shadow cat to stalk her, and whatever girl he'd cast his eye upon would follow meekly to his bed. Some came weeping, aye, but still they came. Varimir gave them his seed, took a hank of their hair to remember them by, and sent them back. From time to time, some village hero would come with spear in hand to slay the beastling and save a sister or a lover or a daughter. Those he killed, but he never harmed the women. 
Some he even blessed with children. Runts, small, puny things like lump, and not one with a gift. Fear drove him to his feet, reeling, holding his side to staunch the seep of blood from his wound. Faramir lurched to the door and swept aside the ragged skin that covered it to face a wall of white. Snow! No wonder it had grown so dark and smoky inside. The falling snow had buried the hut. When Vladimir pushed at it, the snow crumbled and gave way, still soft and wet. Outside the night was white as death. Pale, thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon, while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them the pale shadow of a weirwood armoured in ice. To the south and west the hills were a vast white wilderness where nothing moved except the blowing snow. Thistle, Varamir called feebly, wondering how far she could have gone. Thistle, woman, where are you? Far away a wolf gave howl. A shiver went through Varamir. He knew that howl as well as Lump had once known his mother's voice. One eye. He was the oldest of the three. The biggest, the fiercest. Stalker was leaner, quicker, younger. Sly, more cunning. But both went in fear of one eye. The old wolf was fearless, relentless, savage. Varamir had lost control of his other beasts in the agony of the eagle's death. His shadow cat had raced into the woods whilst his snow bear turned her claws on those around her, ripping apart four men before falling to a spear. She would have slain Vladimir had he come within her reach. The bear hated him, had raged each time he wore her skin or climbed upon her back. His wolves, though, my brothers, my pack. Many a cold night he had slept with his wolves, their shaggy bodies piled up around him to help keep him warm. When I die, they will feast upon my flesh and leave only bones to greet the thaw come spring. The thought was queerly comforting. His wolves had often foraged for him as they roamed. It seemed only fitting that he should feed them in the end. He might well begin his second life tearing at the warm dead flesh of his own corpse. Dogs were the easiest beasts to bond with. They lived so close to men that they were almost human. Slipping into a dog's skin was like putting on an old boot, its leather softened by wear. As a boot was shaped to accept a foot, a dog was shaped to accept a collar, even a collar no human eye could see. Wolves were harder. A man might befriend a wolf, even break a wolf, but no man could truly tame a wolf. Wolves and women wed for life, Hagen often said. You take one, that's a marriage. The wolf is part of you from that day on, and you're part of him. Both of you will change. Other beasts were best left alone, the hunter had declared. Cats were vain and cruel, always ready to turn on you. Elk and deer were prey, wear their skins too long, and even the bravest man became a coward. Bears, boars, badgers, weasels. Hagen did not hold with such. Some skins you never want to wear, boy. You won't like what you'd become. Birds were the worst, to hear him tell it. Men were not meant to leave the earth. 
spend too much time in the clouds, and you never want to come back down again. I know skin changers who've tried hawks, owls, ravens, even in their own skins. They sit moony, staring up at the bloody blue. Not all skin changers felt the same, however. Once when Lump was ten, Hagen had taken him to a gathering of such. The wags were the most numerous in that company, the Wolf Brothers, but the boy had found the others stranger and more fascinating. Borak looked so much like his boar that all he lacked was tusks. Oral had his eagle, Briar her shadow cat. The moment he saw them, Lump wanted a shadow cat of his own. The goat woman, Grisella. None of them had been as strong as Varamir's sixkins, though. Not even Hagen, tall and grim, with his hands as hard as stone. The hunter died weeping after Varamir took Greyskin from him, driving him out to claim the beast for his own. No second life for you, old man. Varamir Threeskins, he'd called himself back then. Greyskin made four, though the old wolf was frail and almost toothless, and soon followed Hagen into death. Varamir could take any beast he wanted, bend them to his will, make their flesh his own, dog or wolf, bear or badger. Thistle, he thought. Hagen would call it an abomination, the blackest sin of all. But Hagen was dead, devoured and burned. Mance would have cursed him as well, but Mance was slain or captured. No one will ever know. I will be Thistle, the spearwife, and Varamir Sixkins will be dead. His gift would perish with his body, he expected. He would lose his wolves and live out the rest of his days as some scrawny, warty woman. But he would live, if she comes back, if I am still strong enough to take her. A wave of dizziness washed over Varamir. He found himself upon his knees, his hands buried in a snowdrift. He scooped up a fistful of snow and filled his mouth with it, rubbing it through his beard and against his cracked lips, sucking down the moisture. The water was so cold that he could barely bring himself to swallow, and he realized once again how hot he was. The snow melt only made him hungrier. It was food his belly craved, not water. The snow had stopped falling, but the wind was rising, filling the air with crystal, slashing at his face as he struggled through the drifts, the wound in his side opening and closing again. His breath made a ragged white cloud. When he reached the weirwood tree, he found a fallen branch just long enough to use as a crutch. Leaning heavily upon it, he staggered toward the nearest hut. Perhaps the villagers had forgotten something when they fled. A sack of apples, some dried meat, anything to keep him alive until Thistle returned. He was almost there when his crutch snapped beneath his weight, and his legs went out from under him. How long he sprawled there with his blood reddening the snow, Varamir could not have said. The snow will bury me. It would be a peaceful death. They say you feel warm near the end, warm and sleepy. It would be good to feel warm again, though it made him sad to think that he would never see the Greenlands, the warm lands beyond the wall that Mance used to sing about. The world beyond the wall is not for our kind, Hagen used to say. The free folk, fierce kin-changers, 
but they honour us as well. South of the wall, the kneelers hunt us down and butcher us like pigs. You warned me, Varamir thought, but it was you who showed me Eastwatch too. He could not have been more than ten. Hagen traded a dozen strings of amber and a sled piled high with pelts for six skins of wine, a block of salt, and a copper kettle. Eastwatch was a better place to trade than Castle Black. That was where the ships came, laden with goods from the fabled lands beyond the sea. The crows knew Hagen as a hunter and a friend to the Night's Watch, and welcomed the news he brought of life beyond their wall. Some knew him for a skin-changer, too, but no one spoke of that. It was there at East Watch by the Sea that the boy he'd been first began to dream of the warm south. Varamir could feel the snowflakes melting on his brow. This is not so bad as burning. Let me sleep and never wake. Let me begin my second life. His wolves were close now. He could feel them. He would leave this feeble flesh behind, become one with them, hunting the night and howling at the moon. The wag would become a true wolf. Which, though? Not sly. Hagen would have called it abomination. But Varamir had often slipped inside her skin as she was being mounted by one eye. He did not want to spend his new life as a bitch, though. Not unless he had no other choice. Stalker might suit him better, the younger male, though one eye was larger and fiercer, and it was one eye who took sly whenever she went into heat. They say you forget, Hagen had told him a few weeks before his own death. When the man's flesh dies, his spirit lives on inside the beast, but every day his memory fades, and the beast becomes a little less a wag. A little more a wolf, until nothing of the man is left, and only the beast remains. Varimir knew the truth of that when he claimed the eagle that had been Oral's. He could feel the other skin changer raging at his presence. Oral had been slain by the turncloak crow John Snow, and his hate for his killer had been so strong that Varimir found himself hating the beastling boy as well. He had known what Snow was the moment he saw that great white dire-wolf stalking silent at his side. One skin-changer can always sense another. Man should have let me take the dire-wolf. There would be a second life worthy of a king. He could have done it, he did not doubt. The gift was strong in snow, but the youth was untaught, still fighting his nature when he should have gloried in it. Varimir could see the weirwood's red eyes staring down at him from the white trunk. The gods are weighing me. A shiver went through him. He had done bad things, terrible things. He had stolen, killed, raped. He had gorged on human flesh and lapped the blood of dying men as it gushed red and hot from their torn throats. He had stalked foes through the woods, fallen on them as they slept, clawed their entrails from their bellies and scattered them across the muddy earth. How sweet their meat had tasted. That was the beast, not me, he said in a hoarse whisper. That was the gift you gave me. The guards made no reply. His breath hung pale and misty in the air. He could feel ice forming in his beard. Varamir's six skins closed his eyes. 
He dreamt an old dream of a hovel by the sea, three dogs whimpering, a woman's tears. Bump! She weeps for Bump, but she never wept for me. Lump had been born a month before his proper time, and he was sick so often that no one expected him to live. His mother waited until he was almost four to give him a proper name, and by then it was too late. The whole village had taken to calling him Lump. The name his sister, Miha, had given him when he was still in their mother's belly. Miha had given Bump his name as well, but Lump's little brother had been born in his proper time, big and red and robust, sucking greedily at mother's teats. She was going to name him after father. Bump died, though. He died when he was two, and I was six, three days before his name day. Your little one is with the gods now, the woods witch told his mother as she wept. He'll never hurt again, never hunger, never cry. The gods have taken him down into the earth, into the trees. The gods are all around us in the rocks and streams, in the birds and beasts. Your bump has gone to join them. He'll be the world and all that's in it. The old woman's words had gone to a lump like a knife. Bump sees. He's watching me. He knows. Lump could not hide from him, could not slip behind his mother's skirts or run off with the dogs to escape his father's fury. The dogs, Loptail, Sniff, the Growler, they were good dogs. They were my friends. When his father found the dog sniffing around Bump's body, he had no way of knowing which had done it, so he took his axe to all three. His hand shook so badly that it took two blows to silence Sniff and four to put the Growler down. The smell of blood hung heavy in the air, and the sounds the dying dogs had made were terrible to hear. Yet Lobtail still came when father called him. He was the oldest dog, and his training overcame his terror. By the time Lump slipped inside his skin, it was too late. No, father, please, he tried to say, but dogs cannot speak the tongues of men, so all that emerged was a piteous whine. The axe crashed into the middle of the old dog's skull, and inside the hovel the boy let out a scream. That was how they knew. Two days later, his father dragged him into the woods. He brought his axe, so Lump thought he meant to put him down the same way he had done the dogs. Instead, he'd given him to Hagen. Varimir woke suddenly, violently, his whole body shaking. Get up! A voice was screaming. Get up! We have to go! There are hundreds of them! The snow had covered him, with a stiff white blanket. So cold! When he tried to move, he found that his hand was frozen to the ground. He left some skin behind when he tore it loose. Get up! she screamed again. They're coming! Thistle had returned to him. She had him by the shoulders, and she was shaking him, shouting in his face. Varimir could smell her breath and feel the warmth of it upon cheeks gone numb with cold. No, he thought. Do it now, or die. He summoned all the strength still in him, leapt out of his own skin, and forced himself inside her. Thistle arched her back and screamed, Abomination! Was that her, or him, or Hagen? 
he never knew. His old flesh fell back into the snowdrift as her fingers loosened. The spear wife twisted violently, shrieking. His shadow cat used to fight him wildly, and the snow bear had gone half mad for a time, snapping at trees and rocks and empty air. But this was worse. Get out! Get out! He heard her own mouth shouting. Her body staggered, fell, and rose again. Her hands flailed. Her legs jerked this way and that in some grotesque dance as his spirit and her own fought for the flesh. She sucked down a mouthful of the frigid air, and Varamir had half a heartbeat to glory in the taste of it and the strength of this young body before her teeth snapped together and filled his mouth with blood. She raised her hands to his face. He tried to push them down again, but the hands would not obey, and she was clawing at his eyes. Abomination, he remembered, drowning in blood and pain and madness. When he tried to scream, she spat their tongue out. The white world turned and fell away. For a moment, it was as if he were inside the weirwood, gazing out through carved red eyes as a dying man twitched feebly on the ground and a mad woman danced, blind and bloody, underneath the moon, weeping red tears and ripping at her clothes. Then both were gone, and he was rising, melting, his spirit borne on some cold wind. He was in the snow and in the clouds. He was a sparrow, a squirrel, an oak. A horned owl flew silently between his trees, hunting a hare. Varamir was inside the owl, inside the hare, inside the trees. Deep below the frozen ground, earthworms burrowed blindly in the dark, and he was them as well. I am the wood and everything that's in it he thought, exulting. A hundred ravens took to the air, cawing as they felt him pass. A great elk trumpeted, unsettling the children clinging to his back. A sleeping direwolf raised his head to snarl at empty air. Before their hearts could beat again, he had passed on, searching for his own, for one-eye, sly, and stalker, for pack. His wolves would save him, he told himself. That was his last thought, as a man. True death came suddenly. He felt a shock of cold, as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake. Then he found himself rushing over moonlit snows with his packmates close behind him. Half the world was dark. One eye he knew. He bayed, and Sly and Stalker gave echo. When they reached the crest, the wolves paused. Thistle, he remembered, and a part of him grieved for what he had lost, and another part for what he'd done. Below the world had turned to ice. Fingers of frost crept slowly up the weirwood, reaching out for each other. The empty village was no longer empty. Blue-eyed shadows walked amongst the mounds of snow. Some wore brown and some wore black, and some were naked, their flesh gone white as snow. A wind was sighing through the hills, heavy with their scents, dead flesh, dry blood, skins that stank of mold, and rot and urine. Sly gave a growl and bared her teeth, her rough bristling. Not men, not prey, not these. The things below moved, but did not live. 
One by one they raised their heads toward the three wolves on the hill. The last look was the thing that had been thistle. She wore wool and fur and leather, and over that she wore a coat of hoar-frost that crackled when she moved and glistened in the moonlight. Pale pink icicles hung from her fingertips, ten long knives of frozen blood, and in the pits where her eyes had been, a pale blue light was flickering, lending her coarse features an eerie beauty they had never known in life. Oh, she sees me! Tyrion He drank his way across the narrow sea. The ship was small, his cabin smaller, but the captain would not allow him above decks. The rocking of the deck beneath his feet made his stomach heave, and the wretched food tasted even worse when wretched back up. But why did he need salt beef, hard cheese, and bread crawling with worms when he had wine to nourish him? It was red and sour, very strong. Sometimes he heaved the wine up too, but there was always more. Oh, the world is full of wine, he muttered in the darkness of his cabin. His father never had any use for drunkards, but what did that matter? His father was dead. He'd killed him. A bolt in the belly, my lord, and all for you. If only I was better with a crossbow, I would have put it through that cock you made me with, you bloody bastard. Below decks there was neither night nor day. Kirian marked time by the comings and goings of the cabin boy, who brought the meals he did not eat. The boy always brought a brush and bucket, too, to clean up. "'Is this Dornish, Wayne?' Tyrion asked him once, as he pulled a stopper from his skin. "'It reminds me of a certain snake I knew, a droll fellow, till a mountain fell on him.' The cabin boy did not answer. He was an ugly boy, though admittedly more comely than a certain dwarf, with half a nose and a scar from eye to chin. "'Have I offended you?' Tyrion asked, as the boy was scrubbing. "'Were you commanded not to talk to me, or did some dwarf diddle your mother?' That went unanswered, too. "'Where are we sailing? Tell me that.' Jamie had made mention of the free cities, but had never said which one. "'Is it Bravus, Tyrosh, Mir?' Tyrion would soon have gone to dawn. Marcella is older than Tommen. By Dornish law, the Iron Throne is hers. I will help her claim her rights, as Prince Oberon suggested. Oberon was dead, though. His head smashed to bloody ruin by the armoured fist of Sir Gregor Clegane. And without the Red Viper to urge him on, would Durin Martell even consider such a chancy scheme? He might clap me in chains instead, and hand me back to my sweet sister— the wall might be safer. Old Bear Mormont said the Night's Watch had need of men like Tyrion. Mormon might be dead, though. By now Slint may be the Lord Commander. That butcher's son was not like to have forgotten who sent him to the wall. Do I really want to spend the rest of my life eating salt beef and porridge with murderers and thieves? Not that the rest of his life would last very long. Janus Slint would see to that. The cabin boy wet his brush and scrubbed on manfully. Have you ever visited the pleasure houses of lice? 
the dwarf inquired. Might that be where whores go? Tyrion could not seem to recall the Valerian word for whore. In any case, it was too late. The boy tossed his brush back in his bucket and took his leave. The wine has blurred my wits. He had learned to read High Valerian at his maester's knee, though what they spoke in the nine free cities, well, it was not so much a dialect as nine dialects on the way to becoming separate tongues. Tyrion had some bravosi and a smattering of mirish. In Tyrosh he should be able to curse the gods, call a man a cheat, and order up an ale, thanks to a sellsword he had once known at the rock. At least in dawn they speak the common tongue, like Dornish food and Dornish law. Dornish speech was spiced with the flavors of the ruin, but a man could comprehend it. Dawn, yes, dawn for me. He crawled into his bunk, clutching that thought like a child with a doll. Sleep had never come easily to Tyrion Lannister. Aboard that ship, it seldom came at all, though from time to time he managed to drink sufficient wine to pass out for a while. At least he did not dream. He had dreamt enough for one small life, and of such follies, love, justice, friendship, glory, <laughs> as well dream of being tall. It was all beyond his reach, Tyrion knew now, but he did not know where whores go. Wherever whores go, his father had said, his last words, and what words they were. The crossbow thrummed, Lord Tywin sat back down, and Tyrion Lannister found himself waddling through the darkness with Varys at his side. He must have clambered back down the shaft, two hundred and thirty rungs, to where orange embers glowed in the mouth of an iron dragon. He remembered none of it, only the sound the crossbow made and the stink of his father's bowels opening. Even in his dying, he found a way to shit on me. Varys had escorted him through the tunnels, but they never spoke until they emerged beside the black water where Tyrion had won a famous victory and lost a nose. That was when the dwarf turned to the eunuch and said, I've killed my father, in the same tone a man might use to say, I've stopped my toe. The master of whisperers had been dressed as a begging brother, in a moth-eaten robe of brown rough spun, with a cowl that shadowed his smooth fat cheeks and bald round head. You should not have climbed that ladder, he said reproachfully. Whatever oars go, Tyrion warned his father not to say that word. If I had not loosed, he would have seen my threats were empty. He would have taken the crossbow for my hands, as once he took Tysha for my arms. He was rising when I killed him. I kill she too, he confessed to Varys. You knew what she was. I did, but I never knew what he was. Varys tittered, and now you do. I should have killed the eunuch as well. A little more blood in his hands, what would it matter? He could not say what had stayed his dagger, not gratitude. Varys had saved him from a headsman's sword, but only because Jamie had compelled him. Jamie. No, better not to think of Jamie. He found a fresh skin of wine instead, and sucked at it as if it were a woman's breast. 
The sour red ran down his chin and soaked through his soiled tunic, the same one he had been wearing in his cell. The deck was swaying beneath his feet, and when he tried to rise, it lifted sideways and smashed him hard against the bulkhead. A storm, he realized, or else I'm even drunker than I knew. He wrenched the wine up and lay in it a while, wondering if the ship would sink. Is this your vengeance, father? Has the father above made you his hand? Such are the wages of the kinslayer, he said as the wind howled outside. It did not seem fair to drown the cabin boy and the captain and all the rest for something he had done. But when had the guards ever been fair? And round about then, the darkness gulped him down. When he stirred again, his head felt like to burst, and the ship was spinning round in dizzy circles, though the captain was insisting that they'd come to port. Tyrion told him to be quiet, and kicked feebly as a huge ball sailor tucked him under one arm and carried him squirming to the hold where an empty wine cask awaited him. It was a squat little cask, and a tight fit even for a dwarf. Tyrion pissed himself in his struggles for all the good it did. He was crammed face first into the cask, with his knees pushed up against his ears. The stub of his nose itched horribly, but his arms were pinned so tightly that he could not reach to scratch it. A palaquin fit for a man of my stature, he thought, as they hammered shut the lid. He could hear voices shouting as he was hoisted up. Every bounce cracked his head against the bottom of the cask. The whirl went round and round as the cask rolled downwards, then stopped with a crash that made him want to scream. Another cask slammed into his, and Tyrion bit his tongue. That was the longest journey he had ever taken, though it could not have lasted more than half an hour. He was lifted and lowered, rolled and stacked, upended and righted, and rolled again. Through the wooden staves he heard men shouting, and once a horse wickered nearby. His stunted legs began to cramp, and soon hurt so badly that he forgot the hammering in his head. It ended as it had begun, with another roll that left him dizzy and more jouncing. Outside, strange voices were speaking in a tongue he did not know. Someone started pounding on the top of the cask, and the lid cracked open suddenly. Light came flooding in, and cool air as well. Tyrion gasped greedily and tried to stand, but only managed to knock the cask over sideways and spill himself out onto a hard-packed earthen floor. Above him loomed a grotesque fat man with a forked yellow beard, holding a wooden mallet and an iron chisel. His bedroom was large enough to serve as a tawny pavilion, but its loosely knotted belt had come undone, exposing a huge white belly and a pair of heavy breasts that sagged like sacks of suet covered with coarse yellow hair. He reminded Tyrion of a dead sea cow that had once washed up in the caverns under Casterly Rock. The fat man looked down and smiled. A drunken dwarf, he said, in the common tongue of Westeros. A rutting sea cow. Tyrion's mouth was full of blood. He spat it at the fat man's feet. They were in a long, dim cellar with barrel-vaulted ceilings its stone walls spotted with nitre. Casks of wine and ale surrounded them. 
more than enough drink to see a thirsty dwarf safely through the night, or through a life. <laughs> you are insolent, I like that, in a dwarf. When the fat man laughed, his flesh bounced so vigorously that Tyrion was afraid he might fall and crush him. Are you hungry, my little friend? Weary? Thirsty? Tyrion struggled to his knees. And filthy? The fat man sniffed. Eh? A bath first, just so. Then food and a soft bed, yes. My servants shall see to it. His host put the mallet and chisel aside. My house is yours. Any friend of my friend across the water is a friend of Illyrio Mopatis, yes. And any friend of Varys the spider is someone I will trust just as far as I can throw him. The fat man made good on the promised bath, though. No sooner did Tyrion lower himself into the hot water and close his eyes than he was fast asleep. He woke naked on a goose-down feather bed so soft it felt as if he'd been swallowed by a cloud. His tongue was growing hair, and his throat was raw, but his cock was as hard as an iron bar. He rolled from the bed, found a chamber pot, and commenced to filling it with a groan of pleasure. The room was dim, but there were bars of yellow sunlight showing between the slats of the shutters. Tyrion shook the last drops off and waddled over patterned mirish carpets as soft as new spring grass. Awkwardly he climbed the window seat and flung shutters open to see where Varys and the guards had sent him. Beneath his window six cherry trees stood sentinel around a marble pool, their slender branches bare and brown. A naked boy stood on the water, poised to duel with a bravo's blade in hand. He was lithe and handsome, no older than sixteen, with straight blonde hair that brushed his shoulders. So lifelike did he seem that it took the dwarf a long moment to realize he was made of painted marble, though his sword shimmered like true steel. Across the pool stood a brick wall, twelve feet high, with iron spikes along its top. Beyond that was the city, a sea of tiled rooftops crowded close around a bay. He saw square brick towers, a great red temple, a distant manse upon a hill. In the far distance, sunlight shimmered off deep water. Fishing boats were moving across the bay, their sails rippling in the wind, and he could see the masts of larger ships poking up along the shore. Surely one is bound for dawn, or for east watch by the sea? He had no means to pay for passage, though, nor was he made to pull an oar. I suppose I could sign on as a cabin boy, and earn my way by letting the crew bugger me up and down the narrow sea. He wondered where he was. Even the air smells different here. Strange spices scented the chilly autumn wind, and he could hear faint cries drifting over the wall from the streets beyond. It sounded something like Valerian, but he did not recognize more than one word in five. Not bravos, he continued, nor tyrosh. Those bare branches and the chill in the air argued against lice and mere, and Valantis as well. When he heard the door opening behind him, Tyrion turned to confront his fat host. This is Pentas, yes? Just so. <laughs> Where else? Pentas? Well, it was not King's Landing, 
That much could be said for it. Where do whores go? he heard himself ask. Whores are found in brothels here, as in Westeros. You will have no need of such, my little friend. Choose from amongst my serving women. No one will dare refuse you. Slaves? the dwarf asked pointedly. The fat man stroked one of the prongs of his oiled yellow beard, a gesture Tyrion found remarkably obscene. Slavery is forbidden in Pentoth by the terms of the treaty the Bravasi imposed on us a hundred years ago. Still, they will not refuse you. Illyrio gave a ponderous half-bow. But now, my little friend, must excuse me. I have the honor to be magister of this great city, and the prince has summoned us to session. He smiled, showing a mouthful of crooked yellow teeth. Explore the mansion and grounds as you like, but on no account stray beyond the walls. It is best that no man knows that you were here. Were? Have I gone somewhere? Time enough to speak of that this evening. My little friend and I shall eat and drink and make great plans, yes? Yes, my fat friend, Tyrion replied. He thinks to use me for his profit. It was all profit for the merchant princes of the free cities. Spice, soldiers, and cheese lords. His lord father called them with contempt. Should a day ever dawn when Illyrio Mopatis saw more profit in a dead dwarf than a live one, Tyrion would find himself packed into another wine cask by dusk. It would be well if I were gone before that day arrives. That it would arrive, he did not doubt. Cersei was not like to forget him, and even Jamie might be vexed to find a quarrel in father's belly. A light wind was riffling the waters of the pool below, all around the naked swordsman. It reminded him of how Tysha would riffle his hair during the fourth spring of their marriage, before he helped his father's guardsmen rape her. He had been thinking of those guardsmen during his flight, trying to recall how many there had been. You would think he might remember that, but no. A dozen, a score, a hundred, he could not say. They had all been grown men, tall and strong. Though all men were tall to a dwarf of thirteen years. Taisha knew their number. Each of them had given her a silver stag, so she would only need to count the coins. A silver for each, and a gold for me. His father had insisted that he pay her too. A Lannister always pays his debts. Wherever oars go, he heard Lord Tywin say once more, and once more the bowstring thrummed. The magister had invited him to explore the manse. He found clean clothes in a cedar chest, inlaid with lapis and mother-of-pearl. The clothes had been made for a small boy, he realized as he struggled into them. The fabrics were rich enough, if a little musty but the cut was too long in the legs and too short in the arms, with a collar that would have turned his face as black as Joffrey's had he somehow contrived to get it fastened. Moths had been at them, too. At least they do not stink of vomit. Tyrion began his explorations with the kitchen, where two fat women and a potboy watched him warily as he helped himself to cheese, bread, and figs. "'Good morrow to you, fair ladies.' he said with a bow. Do you know where oars go? 
When they did not respond, he repeated the question in high Valerian, though he had to say courtesan in place of whore. The younger, fatter cook gave him a shrug that time. He wondered what they would do if he took them by the hand and dragged them to his bedchamber. None will dare refuse you, Illyrio claimed, but somehow Tyrion did not think he meant these two. The younger woman was old enough to be his mother, and the older was likely her mother. Both were near as fat as Illyrio, with teats that were larger than his head. I could smother myself in flesh. There were worse ways to die, the way his lord father had died, for one. I should have made him shit a little gold before expiring. Lord Tywin might have been niggardly with his approval and affection, but he had always been open-handed when it came to coin. The only thing more pitiful than a dwarf without a nose is a dwarf without a nose who has no gold. Tyrion left the fat women to their loaves and kettles and went in search of the cellar where Illyrio had decanted him the night before. It was not hard to find. There was enough wine there to keep him drunk for a hundred years. Sweet reds from the reach and sour reds from dawn. Pale, pentushy ambers. The green nectar of myrrh. Three-score casts of arbor gold, even wines from the fabled east. From Karth and Yaitai and Ashai by the shadow. In the end, Tyrion chose a cask of strong wine marked as the private stock of Lord Runsford Redwine, the grandfather of the present Lord of the Arbor. The taste of it was languorous and heady on the tongue, the color a purple so dark that it looked almost black in the dim-lit cellar. Tyrion filled a cup and a flagon for good measure, and carried them up to the gardens to drink beneath those cherry trees he'd seen. As it happened, he left by the wrong door, and never found the pool he had spied from his window. But it made no matter. The gardens behind the manse were just as pleasant, and far more extensive. He wandered through them for a time, drinking. The walls would have shamed any proper castle, and the ornamental iron spikes along the top looked strangely naked without heads to adorn them. Tyrion pictured how his sister's head might look up there, with tar in her golden hair and flies buzzing in and out of her mouth. Yes, and Jamie must have the spike beside her, he decided. No one must ever come between my brother and my sister. With a rope and a grapnel, he might be able to get over that wall. He had strong arms, and he did not weigh much. He should be able to clamber over, if he did not impale himself on the spike. He will search for a rope on the morrow, he resolved. He saw three gates during his wanderings. The main entrance with his gatehouse, a postern by the kennels, and a garden gate hidden behind a tangle of pale ivy. The last was chained, the others guarded. The guards were plump, their faces as smooth as a baby's bottom and every man of them wore a spiked bronze cap. Tyrion knew eunuchs when he saw them. He knew their sort by reputation. They feared nothing and felt no pain, it was said, and were loyal to their masters unto death. I could make good use of a few hundred of mine own, he reflected. A pity I did not think of that before I became a beggar. He walked along a pillared gallery, and through a pointed arch, and found himself in a tiled courtyard where a woman was washing clothes at a well. She looked to be his own age, with dull red hair 
and a broad face dotted by freckles. "'Would you like some wine?' he asked her. She looked at him uncertainly. "'I have no cup for you. We'll have to share.' The washerwoman went back to wringing out tunics and hanging them to dry. Tyrion settled on a stone bench with his flagon. "'Tell me, how far should I trust Magister Illyrio?' The name made her look up. "'Oh, that far!' Chuckling, he crossed his stunted legs and took a drink. "'I am loath to play whatever part the cheesemonger has in mind for me, yet how can I refuse him? The gates are guarded. Perhaps you might smuggle me out under your skirts. I'd be so grateful. Why, I'll even wed you. I've two wives already. Why not three? Ah, but where would we live?' He gave her as pleasant a smile as a man with half a nose could manage. I have a niece in Sunspare, did I tell you? I can make rather a lot of mischief in dawn with Marcella. I could set my niece and nephew at war. Wouldn't that be droll? The washerwoman pinned up one of Illyrio's tunics, large enough to double as a sail. I should be ashamed to think such evil thoughts. You're quite right. Better if I sought the wall instead. All crimes are wiped clean when a man joins the night's watch, they say though I fear they would not let me keep you, sweetling. No women in the watch, no sweet freckly wives to warm your bed at night, only cold winds, salted cod, and small bear. Do you think I might stand taller in black, my lady? He filled his cup again. What do you say, north or south? Shall I atone for old sins, or make some new ones? The washerwoman gave him one last glance, picked up her basket, and walked away. "'I cannot seem to hold a wife for very long,' Tyrion reflected. Somehow his flagon had gone dry. Perhaps I should stumble back down to the cellars. The strong wine was making his head spin, though, and the cellar steps were very steep. "'Where do oars go?' he asked the wash, flapping on the line. "'Perhaps he should have asked the washerwoman.' Not to imply that you're a whore, my dear, but perhaps you know where they go. Or better yet, he should have asked his father. Wherever whores go, Lord Tywin said. She loved me. She was a crafter's daughter. She loved me and she wed me and put her trust in me. The empty flagon slipped from his hand and rolled across the yard. Tyrion pushed himself off the bench and went to fetch it. As he did, he saw some mushrooms growing up from a cracked paving tile. Pale white they were, with speckles, and red-ribbed undersides dark as blood. The dwarf snapped one off and sniffed it. Oh, delicious, he thought, and deadly. There were seven of the mushrooms. Perhaps the seven were trying to tell him something. He picked them all, snatched a glove down from the line, wrapped them carefully, and stuffed them down his pocket. The effort made him dizzy, so afterward he crawled back onto the bench, curled up, and shut his eyes. When he woke again, he was back in his bedchamber, drowning in the goose-down feather bed once more, while a blonde girl shook his shoulder. "'My lord,' she said, "'your bath awaits. Magister Lirio expects you at table within the hour.' Tyrion propped himself against the pillars, his head in his hands. Do I dream, or do you speak the common tongue? 
Yes, my lord, I was bought to please the king. She was blue-eyed and fair, young and willowy. I am sure you did. I need a cup of wine. She poured for him. Magister Illyrio said that I am to scrub your back and warm your bed. My name is of no interest to me. Do you know where whores go? She flushed. Or sell themselves for coin. Or jewels. Or gowns. Or castles. But where do they go? The girl could not grasp the question. Is it a riddle, my lord? I'm no good at riddles. Will you tell me the answer? No, he thought. I despise riddles myself. I will tell you nothing. Do me the same favor. The only part of you that interests me is the part between your legs, he almost said. The words were on his tongue, but somehow never passed his lips. She is not she, the dwarf told himself. Only some little fool who thinks I play at riddles. If truth be told, even her cunt did not interest him much. I must be sick or dead. You mentioned a bath. We must not keep the great cheesemonger waiting. As he bathed, the girl washed his feet, scrubbed his back, and brushed his hair. Afterward, she rubbed sweet-smelling ointment into his calves to ease the aches, and dressed him once again in boy's clothing, a musty pair of burgundy breeches, and a blue velvet doublet lined with cloth of gold. "'Will my lord want me after he is eaten?' she asked, as she was lacing up his boots. "'No, I am done with women.' "'Whores!' The girl took that disappointment too well for his liking. "'If my lord would prefer a boy, I can have one waiting in his bed.' "'My lord would prefer his wife. My lord would prefer a girl named Taisha. "'Only if he knows where whores go.' The girl's mouth tightened. She despises me, he realized, but no more than I despise myself. That he had fucked many a woman who loathed the very sight of him, Tyrion Lannister had no doubt, but the others had at least the grace to feign affection. A little honest loathing might be refreshing, like a tart wine after too much sweet. I believe I have changed my mind, he told her. Wait for me a bed, naked if you please. I'll be a deal too drunk to fumble at your clothing. Keep your mouth shut and your thighs open, and the two of us should get on splendidly. He gave her a leer, hoping for a taste of fear, but all she gave him was revulsion. No one fears a dwarf. Even Lord Tywin had not been afraid, though Tyrion had held a crossbow in his hands. Do you moan when you are being fucked? he asked the bedwarmer. If it please me, lord. It might please me, lord, to strangle you. That's how I serve my last whore. Do you think your master would object? Surely not. He has a hundred more like you, but no one else like me. This time, when he grinned, he got the fear he wanted. Illyrio was reclining on a padded couch, gobbling hot peppers and pearl onions from a wooden bowl. His brow was dotted with beads of sweat his pig eyes shining above his fat cheeks. Jewels danced when he moved his hands, onyx and opal, tiger's eye and tourmaline. Ruby, amethyst, sapphire, emerald, jet and jade, a black diamond and a green pearl. I could live for years on his rings, Tyrion mused, though I'd need a cleaver to claim them. 
Come sit, my little friend. Illyrio waved him closer. The dwarf clambered up into a chair. It was much too big for him. A cushioned throne intended to accommodate the magister's massive buttocks, with thick, sturdy legs to bear his weight. Tyrion Lannister had lived all his life in a world that was too big for him, but in the manse of Illyrio Mopatis, the sense of disproportion assumed grotesque dimensions. I am a mouse in a mammoth's lair, he mused, though at least the mammoth keeps a good cellar. The thought made him thirsty. He called for wine. Did you enjoy the girl I sent you? Illyrio asked. If I'd wanted a girl, I would have asked for one. If she failed to please, she did all that was required of her. I would hope so. She was trained in lice where they make an art of love. The king enjoyed her greatly. I kill kings and your word. Tyrion smiled evilly over his wine cup. I want no royal leavings. As you wish, let us eat. Illyrio clapped his hands together, and serving men came running. They began with a broth of crab and monkfish, and cold egg-lime soup as well. Then came quails in honey, a saddle of lamb, goose livers drowned in wine, buttered parsnips, and suckling pig. The sight of it all made Tyrion feel queasy, but he forced himself to try a spoon of soup for the sake of politeness, and once he had tasted, he was lost. The cooks might be old and fat, but they knew their business. He had never eaten so well, even at court. As he was sucking the meat off the bones of his quail, he asked Illyrio about the morning summons. The fat man shrugged. There are troubles in the east. Astapor has fallen, and Mirin. Gescari slave cities that were old when the world was young. The suckling pig was carved. Illyrio reached for a piece of the crackling, dipped it in a plum sauce, and ate it with his fingers. Slaver's Bay is a long way from Pentos. Tyrion speared a goose liver on the point of his knife. No man is as cursed as the kinslayer, he mused, but I could learn to like this hell. This is so, Illyria agreed, but the world is one great web, and a man dare not touch a single strand, lest all the others tremble. More wine? Illyria popped a pepper into his mouth. No, something better. He clapped his hands together. At the sound, a serving man entered with a covered dish. He placed it in front of Tyrion, and Illyrio leaned across the table to remove the lid. Mushrooms, the magister announced, as the smell wafted up. Kiss with garlic and bathed in butter. I am told the taste is exquisite. Have one, my friend. Have two. Tyrion had a fat black mushroom halfway to his mouth, but something in Illyrio's voice made him stop abruptly. After you, my lord, he pushed the dish towards his host. No, no, Magister Illyrio pushed the mushrooms back. For a heartbeat, it seemed as if a mischievous boy was peering out from inside the cheesemonger's bloated flesh. After you, I insist, cook made them specially for you. Did she indeed? He remembered the cook, the flour in her hands, heavy breasts shot through with dark blue veins. 
That was kind of her, but no. Tyrion eased the mushroom back into the lake of butter from which it had emerged. You are too suspicious. Illyrio smiled through his forked yellow beard. Oiled every morning to make them gleam like gold, Tyrion suspected. Are you craven? I had not heard that of you. In the Seven Kingdoms it is considered a grave breach of hospitality to poison your guest at supper. Here as well, Illyrio Mopatis reached for his wine cup. Yet when a guest plainly wishes to end his own life, why, his host must oblige him, no? He took a gulp. Magister Ordello was poisoned by a mushroom not half a year ago. The pain is not so much, I am told. Some cramping in the gut, a sudden ache behind the eyes, and it is gone. Better a mushroom than a sword through your neck, is it not so? Why die with a taste of blood in your mouth when it could be butter and garlic? The dwarf studied the dish before him. The smell of garlic and butter had his mouth watering. Some part of him wanted those mushrooms, even knowing what they were. He was not brave enough to take cold steel to his own belly. But a bite of mushroom would not be so hard. That frightened him more than he could say. You mistake me, he heard himself say. Is it so, I wonder? If you would sooner drown in wine, say the word and it shall be done, and quickly, drowning cup by cup, waste time and wine both. You mistake me, Tyrion said again, more loudly. The buttered mushrooms glistened in the lamplight, dark and inviting. I have no wish to die, I promise you. I have... His voice trailed off into uncertainty. What do I have? A life to live? Work to do? Children to raise? Lands to rule? A woman to love? You have nothing, finished Magister Illyria. But we can change that. He plucked a mushroom from the butter and chewed it lustily. Mmm! Delicious! The mushrooms are not poisoned. Tyrion was irritated. No, why should I wish you ill? Magister Illyrio ate another. We must show a little trust, you and I. Come, eat. He clapped his hands again. We have work to do, my little friend. Must keep his strength up. The serving men brought out a heron stuffed with figs, veal cutlets blanched with almond milk, creamed herring, candied onions, foul-smelling cheeses, plates of snails and sweetbreads, and a black swan in her plumage. Tyrion refused the swan, which reminded him of a supper with his sister. He helped himself to heron and herring, though, and a few of the sweet onions, and the serving man filled his wine cup anew each time he emptied it. You drink a deal of wine for such a little man. Kinslaying is dry work. It gives a man a thirst. The fat man's eyes glittered like the gemstones on his fingers. There are those in Westeros who would say that killing Lord Lannister was merely a good beginning. They'd better not say it in my sister's hearing, or they will find themselves short a tongue. The dwarf tore a loaf of bread in half. And you had best be careful what you say of my family, Magister. Kinslayer or no, I am a lion still. That seemed to amuse the Lord of Cheese no end. 
He slapped a meaty thigh and said, "'You, West Horatio, are all the same. "'You serve some beast upon a scrap of silk, "'and suddenly you're all lions or dragons or eagles. "'I can take you to a real lion, my little friend. "'The prince keeps a pride in his menagerie. "'Would you like to share a cage with them?' "'The lords of the Seven Kingdoms "'did make rather much of their sigils,' Tyrion had to admit. "'Very well,' he conceded. A Lannister is not a lion, yet I'm still my father's son, and Jamie and Cersei are mine to kill. How odd that you should mention your fair sister, said Illyrio between snails. The queen has offered a lordship to the man who brings her your head, no matter how humble his birth. It was no more than Tyrion had expected. If you mean to take her up on it, make her spread her legs for you as well. "'The best part of me for the best part of her. "'That's a fair trade. <laughs> "'I would sooner have my own weight in gold.' "'The cheesemonger laughed so hard "'that Tyrion feared he was about to rupture. "'All the gold in costly rock. "'Why not?' "'The gold I grant you,' the dwarf said, "'relieved that he was not about to drown "'in a gout of half-digested eels and sweetmeats. "'But the rock is mine.' Josue, the magister, covered his mouth and belched a mighty belch. Do you think King Stannis will give it to you? I'm told he's a great one for the law. Your brother wears the white cloak, so you are heir by all the laws of Westeros. Stannis might well grant me castly rocks, said Tyrion, but for the small matter of regicide and kinslaying, for those he would shot me by a head. "'and I am short enough as I stand. "'But why would you think I mean to join Lord Stannis? "'Why else would you go to the wall? "'Stannis is at the wall?' "'Tyrion rubbed at his nose. "'What in seven bloody hells is Stannis doing at the wall? "'Shivering, I would think. "'It's warmer down in dawn. "'Perhaps he should have sailed that way.' "'Tyrion was beginning to suspect that a certain freckled washerwoman knew more about the common speech than she pretended. "'My niece, Missella, is in dawn, as it happens, and I have half her mind to make her a queen.' Illyrio smiled as his serving men spooned out bowls of black cherries in sweet cream for them both. "'What has this poor child done to you that you would wish her dead?' "'Even a kinslayer is not required to slay all his kin,' said Tyrion, wounded. "'Queen her,' I said, not kill her.' The cheesemonger spooned up cherries. "'In Valentis they use a coin with a crown on one face and a death's head on the other. Yet it is the same coin. To queen her is to kill her. Dawn might rise for Marcella, but dawn alone is not enough.' If you are as clever as our friend insists, you know this. Tyrion looked at the fat man with new interest. He is right on both counts. To queen her is to kill her. And I knew that. Futile gestures are all that remain to me. This one would make my sister weep bitter tears at least. Magister Illyrio wiped sweet cream from his mouth with the back of a fat hand. The road to Castle Rock 
does not go through dawn, my little friend, nor does it run beneath the wall. Yet there is such a road, I tell you. I am an attentive traitor, a regicide, and kingslayer. This talk of roads annoyed him. Does he think this is a game? What one king does, another may undo. In Pentos we have a prince, my friend. He presides at ball and feast, and rides about the city in a palanquin of ivory and gold. Three heralds go before him, with the golden scales of trade, the iron sword of war, and the silver scourge of justice. On the first day of each new year, he must deflower the maid of the fields and the maid of the seas. Illyrio leaned forward, elbows on the table. Yet should a crop fail, or a war be lost, we cut his throat to appease the gods and choose a new prince from amongst the forty families. Remind me never to become the prince of Pentas. Are your seven kingdoms so different? There is no peace in Westeros, no justice, no faith, and soon enough, no food. When men are starving and sick of fear, they look for a savior. They may look, but if all they find is Stannis, not Stannis, nor Mithrella, the yellow smile widened. Another, stronger than Tommen, gentler than Stannis, with a better claim than the girl Marcella. A saviour come from across the sea to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros. Fine words, Tyrion was unimpressed. Words are wind. Who is this bloody saviour? A dragon. The cheesemonger saw the look on his face at that and laughed. A dragon with three heads. Daenerys She could hear the dead man coming up the steps. The slow, measured sound of footsteps went before him, echoing amongst the purple pillars of her hall. Daenerys Targaryen awaited him upon the ebon bench that she had made her throne. Her eyes were soft with sleep, her silver-gold hair all tousled. "'Your Grace,' said Sir Barristan Selmy, the Lord Commander of a Queen's Guard, "'there is no need for you to see this. He died for me.' Danny clutched a lion pelt to her chest. Underneath a sheer white linen tunic covered her to mid-thigh. She had been dreaming of a house with a red door when Miss Sandy woke her. There had been no time to dress.' Khaleesi, whispered Iri, you must not touch the dead man. It is bad luck to touch the dead. Unless she killed them yourself, Jiqui was bigger boned than Iri, with wide hips and heavy breasts. That is known. It is known, Iri agreed. Dothraki were wise where horses were concerned, but could be utter fools about much else. They are only girls, besides. Her handmaids were of an age with her. Women grown to look at them, with their black hair, copper-skinned and almond-shaped eyes, but girls all the same. They had been given to her when she wed Carl Drogo. It was Drogo who had given her the pelt she wore, the head and hide of Racha, the white lion of the Dothraki Sea. 
It was too big for her and had a musty smell, but it made her feel as if her sun and stars were still near her. Grey Worm appeared atop the steps first, a torch in hand. His bronze cap was crested with three spikes. Behind him followed four of his unsolid, bearing the dead man on their shoulders. Their caps had only one spike each, and their faces showed so little they might have been cast in bronze as well. They laid the corpse down at her feet. Sir Barrison pulled back the blood-stained shroud. Grey Worm lowered the torch so she might see. The dead man's face was smooth and hairless, though his cheeks had been slashed open ear to ear. He had been a tall man, blue-eyed and fair of face. Some child of lice or old Valentus, snatched off a ship by corsairs and sold into bondage in Red Astapor. Though his eyes were open, it was his wounds that wept. There were more wounds than she could count. Your Grace, Sir Barristan said, there was a harpy drawn on the bricks in the alley where he was found. Drawn in blood. Daenerys knew the way of it by now. The sons of the harpy did their butchery by night. Over each kill they left their mark. Grey Worm, why was this man alone? Had he no partner? By her command, when the unsolid walked the streets of Murian by night, they always walked in pairs. My queen, replied the captain, your servant, Stalworth Shield, had no duty last night. He had gone to um, a certain place to uh, to drink and have companionship. A certain place? What do you mean? A house of pleasure, your grace. A brothel. Half of our freedmen were from Yonkai, where the wise masters had been famed for training bed slaves. The way of the seven sighs. Brothels had sprouted up like mushrooms all over Mirin. It's all they know. They need to survive. Food was more costly every day, whilst the price of flesh grew cheaper. In the poorer districts between the steppe pyramids of Marian's slaver nobility, there were brothels catering to every conceivable erotic taste she knew. Even so, what could a eunuch hope to find in a brothel? Even those who lack a man's parts may still have a man's heart, your grace, said Grey Worm. This one has been told that your servant stalwart shield sometimes gave coin to the women of the brothels, to lie with him and hold him. The blood of the dragon does not weep. Store with shield, she said dry-eyed. That was his name? If it please, your grace. It is a fine name. The good masters of Astapor had not allowed their slave soldiers even names. Some of her unsolid reclaimed their birth names after she had freed them. Others chose new names for themselves. Is it known how many attackers fell upon Stalwart Shield? This one does not know. Many. Uh, six or more, said Sir Barrison. Uh, from the look of his wounds, they swarmed him from all sides. He was found with an empty scabbard. It may be that he wounded some of his attackers. Danny said a silent prayer that somewhere one of the harpy's sons was dying even now, clutching at his belly and writhing in pain. 
Why did they cut open his cheeks like that? Gracious queen, said Grey Worm, his killers had forced the genitals of a goat down the throat of your servant, Stalwart Shield. This one removed them before bringing him here. They could not feed him his own genitals. The Astopori left him neither root nor stem. The sons grow bolder, Danny observed. Until now they had limited their attacks to unarmed freedmen, cutting them down in the streets or breaking into their homes under the cover of darkness to murder them in their beds. This is the first of my soldiers they have slain. The first, Sir Barristan warned, but not the last. I am still at war, Danny realized. Only now I am fighting shadows. She had hope for a respite from the killing, for some time to build and heal. Shrugging off the lion pelt, she knelt beside the corpse and closed the dead man's eyes, ignoring Jiqui's gasp. Stalwart shield shall not be forgotten. Have him washed and dressed for battle, and bury him with cap and shield and spear. It shall be as your grace commands, said Grey Worm. Uh, send men to the temple of the graces, and ask if any man has come to the blue graces with a sword wound, and spread the word that we will pay good gold for the short sword of stalwart shield. Inquire of the butchers and the herdsmen, and learn who has been gelding goats of late. Perhaps some goat herd would confess. Henceforth, no man of mine walks alone after dark. This one shall obey. Daenerys pushed her hair back. Find these cowards for me. Find them, so that I may teach the harpy's sons what it means to wake the dragon. Grey Worm saluted her. His unsolid closed the shroud once more, lifted the dead man onto their shoulders, and bore him from the hall. Sir Barristan Selmy remained behind. His hair was white, and there were crow's feet at the corners of his pale blue eyes. Yet his back was still unbent, and the years had not rubbed him of his skillet arms. "'Your Grace,' he said, "'I fear your eunuchs are ill-suited for the tasks you set them.' Danae settled on her bench and wrapped her pelt about her shoulders once again. "'The unsullied are my finest warriors.' Uh, "'Soldiers, not warriors, if it please your Grace.' They were made for the battlefield, to stand shoulder to shoulder behind their shields with their spears thrust out before them. Their training teaches them to obey fearlessly, perfectly, without thought or hesitation, not to unravel secrets or ask questions. Would knights serve me any better? Selmy was training knights for her, teaching the sons of slaves to fight with lance and longsword, in the Westerosi fashion. But what good would lances do against cowards who kill from the shadows? Not in this, the old man admitted, and your grace has no knights, save me. It will be years before the boys are ready. Then who, if not unsullied? Dothraki would be even worse. Dothraki fought from horseback. Mounted men were of more use in open fields and hills than in the narrow streets and alleys of the city. Beyond Merian's walls of many-coloured brick, Danny's rule was tenuous at best. Thousands of slaves still toiled on vast estates in the hills,
growing wheat and olives, herding sheep and goats, and mining salt and copper. Marian storehouses held ample supplies of grain, oil, olives, dried fruit, and salted meat. But the stores were dwindling, so Danny had dispatched her tiny Kalasar to subdue the hinterlands under the command of her three blood riders, whilst Brown Ben Plum took his second son south to guard against Yunkish incursions. The most crucial task of all she had entrusted to Dario Naharis, glib-tongued Dario with his gold tooth and trident beard, smiling his wicked smile through purple whiskers. Beyond the eastern hills was a range of rounded sandstone mountains, the Kaizai Pass and Lazar. If Dario could convince the Lazarine to reopen the overland trade routes, grains could be brought down the river or over the hills at need. But the lamb men had no reason to love Merin. When the storm crows return from Lazar, perhaps I can use them in the streets, she told Sir Barriston. But until then, I have only the unsullied. Danny rose. You must excuse me, sir. The petitioners will soon be at my gates. I must don my floppy ears and become their queen again. Summon Resnack and the shave pate. I'll see them when I'm dressed. As your grace commands, Selmy bowed. The great pyramid shouldered eight hundred feet into the sky, from its huge square base to the lofty apex where the queen kept her private chambers, surrounded by greenery and fragrant pools. As the cool blue dawn broke over the city, Danny walked out onto the terrace. To the west, Sunlight blazed off the golden domes of the Temple of the Graces and etched deep shadows behind the steppe pyramids of the mighty. In some of those pyramids, the sons of the Harpy are plotting new murders even now, and I am powerless to stop them. Viserion sensed her disquiet. The white dragon lay coiled around a pear tree, his head resting on his tail. When Downey passed, his eyes came open. Two pools of molten gold. His horns were gold as well, and the scales that ran down his back from head to tail. You're lazy, she told him, scratching under his jaw. His scales were hot to the touch, like armor left too long in the sun. Dragons are fire made flesh. She had read that in one of the books that Jara had given her as a wedding gift. You should be hunting with your brothers. Have you and Drogon been fighting again? Her dragons were growing wild of late. Rhaegal had snapped at Iri, and Viserion had set Resnick's tokar ablaze the last time the Seneschal had called. I have left them too much to themselves, but where am I to find the time for them? Viserion's tail lashed sideways, thumping the trunk of the tree so hard that a pair came tumbling down to land at Danny's feet. His wings unfolded, and he half flew, half hopped onto the parapet. He grows, she thought, as he launched himself into the sky. They are all three growing. Soon they will be large enough to bear my weight. Then she would fly as Aegon the Conqueror had flown, up and up until Marian was so small that she could blot it out with her thumb. She watched Viserion climb in widening circles until he was lost to sight, beyond muddy waters 
of the Skahazadan. Only then did Danny go back inside the pyramid, where Iri and Jiqui were waiting to brush the tangles from her hair, and Garba has befit the Queen of Mirin, in a Gaskari toka. The garment was a clumsy thing, a long, loose, shapeless sheet that had to be wound around her hips and under an arm and over a shoulder, its dangling fringes carefully layered and displayed. Wound too loose, it was like to fall off. Wound too tight, it would tangle, trip, and bind. Even wound properly, the tokar required its wearer to hold it in place with a left hand. Walking in a tokar demanded small, mincing steps and exquisite balance, lest one tread upon those heavy, trailing fringes. It was not a garment meant for any man who had to work. The tokar was a master's garment, a sign of wealth and power. Danny had wanted to ban the tokar when she took Mirin, but her advisers had convinced her otherwise. The mother of dragons must don the tokar, or be forever hated, warned the green grace, Galatza Galari. In the walls of Westeros, or a gown of mirish lace, your radiance shall forever remain a stranger amongst us, a grotesque outlander, a barbarian conqueror. Mirian's queen must be a lady of old gifts. Brown Ben Plum, the captain of the Second Sons, had put it more succinctly. Man wants to be the king of the rabbits. He'd best wear a pair of floppy ears. The floppy ears she chose today were made of sheer white linen, with a fringe of golden tassels. With Jiki's help, she won the tokar about herself correctly on her third attempt. Iri fetched her crown, wrought in the shape of a three-headed dragon of her house. Its coils were gold, its wings silver, its three heads ivory, onyx, and jade. Danny's neck and shoulders would be stiff and sore from the weight of it before the day was done. A crown should not sit easy on the head. One of her royal forebears had said that once. Some Aegon, but which one? Five Aegons had ruled the seven kingdoms of Westeros. There would have been a sixth, but the usurper's dogs had murdered her brother's son when he was still a babe at the breast. If he had lived, I might have married him. Aegon would have been closer to my age than Viserys. Danny had only been conceived when Aegon and his sister were murdered. Their father, her brother Rhaegar, perished even earlier, slain by the usurper on the Trident. Her brother Viserys had died screaming in Vae's Dothrak, with a crown of molten gold upon his head. They will kill me too, if I allow it. The knives that slew my stalwart shield were meant for me. She had not forgotten the slave children the great masters had nailed up along the road from Yonkai. They had numbered one hundred sixty-three, a child every mile, nailed to mileposts, with one arm outstretched to point her way. After Marine had fallen, Danny had nailed up a like number of great masters. Swarms of flies had attended their slow dying, and the stench had lingered long in the plaza. Yet some days she feared that she had not gone far enough. These Miranese were a sly and stubborn people who resisted her at every turn. They had freed their slaves, yes, only to hire them back as servants 
at wages so meagre that most could scarce afford to eat. Those too old or young to be of use had been cast into the streets, along with the infirm and the crippled, and still the great masters gathered atop their lofty pyramids to complain of how the Dragon Queen had filled their noble city with hordes of unwashed beggars, thieves, and whores. To rule Marine, I must win the Miranese, however much I may despise them. I am ready, she told Iri. Resnak and Skahaz waited atop the marble steps. Great Queen, declared Resnak, Mo Resnak, you are so radiant today, I fear to look on you. The Seneschal wore a tokar of maroon silk with a golden fringe. A small, damp man, he smelled as if he had bathed in perfume and spoke a bastard form of high valerian, much corrupted and flavored with a thick, giscari growl. You are kind to say so, Danny answered in the same tongue. My queen, growled Skahaz Mokandak of the shaven head. Giscari hair was dense and wiry. It had long been the fashion for the men of the slaver cities to tease it into horns and spikes and wings. By shaving, Skahaz had put old Mary in behind him to accept the new, and his kin had done the same after his example. Others followed, though whether from fear, fashion, or ambition, Danny could not say. Shave-pates, they were called. Skahaz was the shave-pate, and the vilest of traitors to the sons of the harpy and their ilk. We were told about the eunuch. His name was Stalwart Shield. More will die unless the murderers are punished. Even with his shaven scalp, Skahaz had an odious face, a beetled brow, small eyes with heavy bags beneath them, a big nose dark with blackheads, oily skin that looked more yellow than the usual amber of Gascari. It was a blunt, brutal, angry face. She could only pray it was an honest one as well. Well, how can I punish them when I do not know who they are? Danny demanded of him. Tell me that, bold Skahas. You have no lack of enemies, your grace. You can see their pyramids from your terrace. Zak, Haskar, Gazine, Merrick, Lorak, all the old slaving families. Paul, Paul, most of all. A house of women now. Bitter old women with a taste for blood. Women do not forget. Women do not forgive. No, Danny thought, and the usurper's dogs will learn that when I return to Westeros. It was true that there was blood between her and the house of Paul. Osnagzo Paul had been cut down by strong Belwas in single combat. His father, commander of Mirian's city watch, had died defending the gates when Jossa's cock smashed them into splinters. Three uncles had been among the 163 on the plaza. How much gold have we offered for information concerning the sons of the harpy? Danny asked. One hundred honors, if it please your radiance. One thousand honors would please us more. Make it so. Your grace is not asked for my counsel, said Skaha Shavepate. But I say that blood must pay for blood. Take one man from each of the families I've named and kill him. The next time one of yours is slain, take two from 
each great house and kill them both. There will not be a third murder. Resnick squealed in distress. No, gentle queen, such savagery would bring down the ire of the gods. We will find the murderers, I promise you. And when we do, they will prove to be base-born filth. You shall see. The Seneschal was as bald as Scars, though in his case the gods were responsible. Should any here be so insolent as to appear, my barber stands with razor ready. He had assured her when she raised him up. There were times when Danny wondered if that razor might not be better saved for Resnick's throat. He was a youthful man, but she liked him little and trusted him less. Then dying of Carth had told her she would be thrice betrayed. Miri Mazdur had been the first, Sajara the second. Would Resnick be the third, the shave-pate, Dario? Or will it be someone I would never suspect? Sir Barriston, or Grey Worm, or Masandi? Skahas, she told the shave-pate, I, I thank you for your counsel. Resnick, see what one thousand honours may accomplish. Touching her tokar, Daenerys swept past them down the broad marble stair. She took one step at a time, lest she trip over her fringe and go tumbling head first into court. Missandei announced her. The little scribe had a sweet, strong voice. All kneel for Daenerys Stormborn, the unburnt, Queen of Meereen, Queen of the Andals, and the Roinar, and the First Men. Khaleesi of Great Grass Sea, Breaker of Shackles, and Mother of Dragons. The hall had filled. Unsullied stood with their backs to the pillars, holding shields and spears, the spikes on their caps jutting upward like a row of knives. The Miranese had gathered beneath the eastern windows. Her freedmen stood well apart from their former masters. Until they stand together, Marine will know no peace. Arise, Danny settled into a bench. The hall rose. That at least they do as one. Resnack Mo Resnack had a list. Custom demanded that the Queen begin with the Astropori envoy, a former slave who called himself Lord Gale, though no one seemed to know what he was lord of. Lord Gale had a mouth of brown and rotten teeth, and the pointed yellow face of a weasel. He also had a gift— Cleon the Great sends these slippers as a token of his love for Daenerys Stormborn, the mother of dragons. Iria slid the slippers under Danny's feet. They were gilded leather, decorated with green, fresh-water pearls. Does the Butcher King believe a pair of pretty slippers will win my hand? King Cleon is most generous. You may thank him for his lovely gift. Lovely, but made for a child. Danny had small feet, yet the pointed slippers mashed her toes together. A great Cleon would be pleased to know they pleased you, said Lord Gale. His magnificence bids me say that he stands ready to defend the mother of dragons from all her foes. If he propose again that I wed King Cleon, I'll throw a slipper at his head, Danny thought. But for once the Astapori envoy made no mention of a royal marriage. Instead, he said, 
The time has come for Astapor and Merian to end the savage reign of the wise masters of Yonkai, who are sworn foes to all those who live in freedom. Great Cleon bids me tell you that he and his new Unsullied will soon march. His new Unsullied are an obscene jape. King Cleon would be wise to tend his own gardens and let the Yonkai tend theirs. It was not that Danny harbored any love for Yonkai. She was coming to regret leaving the Yellow City untaken after defeating its army in the field. The wise masters had returned to slaving as soon as she moved on, and were busy raising levies, hiring swords, and making alliances against her. Cleon, the self-styled great, was no better, however. The butcher king had restored slavery to Astapor, the only change being that the former slaves were now the masters, and the former masters were now the slaves. I am only a young girl and know little of the ways of war, she told Lord Gale, but we have heard that Astapor is starving. Let King Cleon feed his people before he leads them out to battle. She made a gesture of dismissal. Gale withdrew. Magnificence, prompted Resnek Mo Resnek. Will you hear the noble Hisdazo Lorek? Again, Danny nodded, and Hisdar strode forth, a tall man, very slender, with flawless amber skin. He bowed on the same spot where Stalwart's shield had lain in death not long before. I need this man, Danny reminded herself. His dar was a wealthy merchant, with many friends in Murine, and more across the seas. He had visited Volantis, Lice, and Carth, had kin in Tolus and Illyria, and was even said to wield some influence in New Gis, where the Yunkai were trying to stir up enmity against Danny and her rule. And he was rich, famously and fabulously rich. And like to grow richer, if I grant his petition. When Danny had closed the city's fighting pits, the value of pit shares had plummeted. His Darzo Lorek had grabbed them up with both hands, and now owned most of the fighting pits in Murine. The nobleman had wings of wiry red-black hair spouting from his temples. They made him look as if his head were about to take flight. His long face was made even longer by a beard bound with rings of gold. His purple tokar was fringed with amethysts and pearls. Your radiance will know the reason I am here. Why, it must be because you have no other purpose but to plague me. How many times have I refused you? Five times, your magnificence. Six now. I will not have the fighting pits reopened. If your majesty will hear my arguments, I have. Five times. Have you brought new arguments? Old arguments, Hisdar admitted. New words, lovely words, and courteous, more apt to move a queen. It is your cause I find wanting, not your courtesies. I've heard your arguments so often, I could plead your case myself. Shall I? Danny leaned forward. The fighting pits have been a part of Marine since the city was founded. The combats are profoundly religious in nature, a blood sacrifice to the gods of Gis. The mortal art of Gis is not mere butchery, 
but a display of courage, skill, and strength most pleasing to your gods. Victorious fighters are pampered and acclaimed, and the slain are honored and remembered. By reopening the pits I would show the people of Merin that I respect their ways and customs. The pits are far famed across the world. They draw trade to Merin and fill the city's coffers with coin from the ends of the earth. All men share a taste for blood. A taste the pits help sleek. In that way they make Merin more tranquil. For criminals condemned to die upon the sands, the pits represent a judgment by battle, a last chance for a man to prove his innocence. She leaned back again with a toss of her head. There, how have I done? Your radiance has stated the case much better than I could have hoped to do myself. I see that you are eloquent as well as beautiful. I am quite persuaded. She had to laugh. Uh, but I am not. Your magnificence, whispered Resnack Mo Resnack in her ear. It is customary for the city to claim one-tenth of all the profits from the Viking pits, after expenses, as a tax. That coin might be put to many noble uses. It might, though if we were to reopen the pits, we should take our tenth before expenses. I am only a young girl and know little of such matters but I dwelt with Zarozo and Daxos long enough to learn that much. Hisdar, if you could marshal armies as you marshal arguments, you could conquer the world. But my answer is still no, for the sixth time. The queen has spoken, he bowed again as deeply as before. His pearls and amethysts clattered softly against the marble floor. A very limber man was his Zolorek. Yeah, he might be handsome, but for that silly hair. Raznak and the Green Grace had been urging Danny to take a Miranese noble for her husband, to reconcile the city to her rule. Hasdar Zolorek might be worth a careful look. Sooner him than Scar has. The shave-pate had offered to set aside his wife for her but the notion made her shudder. His da at least knew how to smile. Magnificence, said Resnack, consulting his list. The noble Grasdanzo Galari would address you. Will you hear him? It would be my pleasure, said Danny, admiring the glimmer of the gold and the sheen of the green pearls on Cleon's slippers, while doing her best to ignore the pinching in her toes. Grasdan, she had been forewarned, was a cousin of the Green Grace, whose support she had found invaluable. The priestess was a voice for peace, acceptance, and obedience to lawful authority. I can give her cousin a respectful hearing, whatever he desires. What he desired turned out to be gold. Danny had refused to compensate any of the great masters for the value of their slaves, but the Miraneers kept devising other ways to squeeze coin from her. The noble Grasdan had once owned a slave woman who was a very fine weaver, it seemed. The fruits of her loom were greatly valued, not only in Mirin, but in New Gis and Astapor and Karth. When this woman had grown old, Grasdan had purchased half a dozen young girls and commanded the crone to instruct them in the secrets of her craft 
The old woman was dead now. The young ones, freed, had opened a shop by the harbour wall to sell their weavings. Grasdan Zogalari asked that he be granted a portion of their earnings. They owe their skill to me, he insisted. I plucked them from the auction block and gave them to the loom. Danny listened quietly, her face still. When he was done, she said, What was the name of the old weaver? Uh, the slave? Grasdan shifted his weight, frowning. Uh, she was, uh, uh, Elsa, it might have been, or uh, Ella. It was six years ago she died. I have owned so many slaves, Your Grace. Let us say Elsa. Here is our ruling. From the girls you shall have nothing. It was Elsa who taught them weaving, not you. From you the girl shall have a new loom the finest coin can buy. That is, for forgetting the name of the old woman. Resnick would have summoned another tokar next, but Danny insisted that he call upon a freedman. Thereafter she alternated between the former masters and the former slaves. Many and more of the matters brought before her involved redress. Mirian had been sacked savagely after its fall. The stepped pyramids of the mighty had been spared the worst of the ravages, but the humbler parts of the city had been given over to an orgy of looting and killing, as the city's slaves rose up, and the starving hordes who had followed her from Yunkai and Astabor poured through the broken gates. Her unsolid had finally restored order, but the sack left a plague of problems in its wake, and so they came to see the queen. A rich woman came, whose husband and sons had died defending the city walls. During the sack she had fled to her brother in fear. When she returned, she found her house had been turned into a brothel. The horse had bedecked themselves in her jewels and clothes. She wanted her house back and her jewels. They can keep the clothes, she allowed. Danny granted her the jewels, but ruled the house was lost when she abandoned it. A former slave came to accuse a certain noble of the Zack. The man had recently taken to wife a freed woman, who had been the noble's bed-warmer before the city fell. The noble had taken her maidenhood, used her for his pleasure, and gotten her with child. Her new husband wanted the noble gelded for the crime of rape, and he wanted a purse of gold as well, to pay him for raising the noble's bastard as his own. Danny granted him the gold, but not the gelding. When he lay with her, your wife was his property to do with as he would. By law there was no rape. Her decision did not please him, she could see, but if she gelded every man who ever forced a bed-slave, she would soon rule a city of eunuchs. A boy came, younger than Danny, slight and scarred, dressed up in a frayed grey tokar trailing silver fringe. His voice broke when he told how two of his father's household slaves had risen up the night the gate broke. One had slain his father, the other his elder brother. Both had raped his mother before killing her as well. The boy had escaped with no more than the scar upon his face, but one of the murderers was still living in his father's house and the other had joined the Queen's soldiers as one of the mother's men. He wanted them both hanged. 
I am queen over a city built on dust and death. Danny had no choice but to deny him. She had declared a blanket pardon for all crimes committed during the sack. Nor would she punish slaves for rising up against their masters. When she told him, the boy rushed at her, but his feet tangled in his tow-car and he went sprawling headlong on the purple marble. Strong Belwas was on him at once. The huge brown eunuch yanked him up one-handed and shook him like a mastiff with a rat. Enough, Belwas, Danny called. Release him. To the boy, she said, Treasure that toka, for it saved your life. You are only a boy, so we will forget what happened here. You should do the same. But as he left, the boy looked back over his shoulder, and when she saw his eyes, Danny thought, The harpy has another son. By midday, Daenerys was feeling the weight of the crown upon her head and the hardness of the bench beneath her. With so many still waiting on her pleasure, she did not stop to eat. Instead, she dispatched Jiqui to the kitchens for a platter of flatbread, olives, figs, and cheese. She nibbled while she listened, and sipped from a cup of watered wine. The figs were fine, the olives even finer, but the wine left a tart, metallic aftertaste in her mouth. The small, pale yellow grapes, native to these regions, produced a notably inferior vintage. We shall have no trade in wine. Besides, the great masters had burned the best arbors along with the olive trees. In the afternoon, a sculptor came, proposing to replace the head of the great bronze harpy in the Plaza of Purification with one cast in Danny's image. She denied him with as much courtesy as she could muster. A pike of unprecedented size had been caught in the Skarhazadan, and the fisherman wished to give it to the queen. She admired the fish extravagantly, rewarded the fisherman with a purse of silver, and sent the pike to her kitchens. A coppersmith had fashioned her a suit of burnished rings to wear to war. She accepted it with fulsome thanks. It was lovely to behold— and all that burnished copper would flash prettily in the sun, though if actual battle threatened, she would sooner be clad in steel. Even a young girl who knew nothing of the ways of war knew that. The slippers the butcher king had sent her had grown too uncomfortable. Danny kicked them off and sat with one foot tucked beneath her and the other swinging back and forth. It was not a very regal pose, but she was tired of being regal. The crown had given her a headache, and her buttocks had gone to sleep. Uh, Sir Barristan, she called, I know what quality a king needs most. Courage, or your grace? Cheeks like iron, she teased. All I do is sit. Your grace takes too much on herself. You should allow your counsellors to shoulder more of your burdens. I have too many counselors and too few cushions. Danny turned to Resnick. How many more? Three and twenty, if it please your magnificence, with as many claims. The seneschal consulted some papers. One calf and three goats. The rest will be sheep or lambs, no doubt. At three and twenty, Danny sighed. My dragons have developed a prodigious taste 
for mutton since we began to pay the shepherds for their kills. Have these claims been proven? Some men have brought burnt bones. Men make fires. Men cook mutton. Burnt bones prove nothing. Brown Ben says there are red wolves in the hills outside the city, and jackals and wild dogs. Must we pay a good silver for every lamb that goes astray between Yonkai and the Skahazadan? Uh, no, Magnificence, Resnick bowed. Shall I send these rascals away, or will you want them scourged? Daenerys shifted on the bench. No man should ever fear to come to me. Some claims were false. She did not doubt, but more were genuine. Her dragons had grown too large to be content with rats and cats and dogs. The more they eat, the larger they will grow, Sir Barrison had warned her, and the larger they grow, the more they'll eat. Drogon especially ranged far afield, and could easily devour a sheep a day. Pay them for the value of their animals, she told Resnick, but henceforth Claimants must present themselves at the Temple of the Graces and swear a holy oath before the gods of Gis. It shall be done, Resnick turned to the petitioners. Her Magnificence the Queen has consented to compensate each of you for the animals you have lost, he told them in the Gascari tongue. Present yourselves to my factors on the morrow, and you shall be paid in coin or kind as you prefer. The pronouncement was received in sullen silence. He would think they might be happier, Danny thought. They have what they came for. Is there no way to please these people? One man lingered behind as the rest were filing out. A squat man with a wind-burned face, shabbily dressed. His hair was a cap of coarse red-black wire, cropped about his ears, and in one hand he held a sad cloth sack. He stood with his head down, gazing at the marble floor as if he had quite forgotten where he was. And what does this one want? Danny wondered. All kneel for Daenerys Stormborn, the unburnt, Queen of Meereen, Queen of the Andals and the Roinar, and the First Men, Khaleesi of Great Grass Sea, "'Breaker of shackles and mother of dragons,' cried Miss Andy in her high, sweet voice. As Danny stood, her tokar began to slip. She caught it and tugged it back in place. I "'You with the sack,' she called. "'Did you wish to speak with us? You may approach.' When he raised his head, his eyes were red and raw as open sores. Danny glimpsed a barrison sliding closer, a white shadow at her side. The man approached in a stumbling shuffle, one step, then another, clutching his sack. Is he drunk or ill? she wondered. There was dirt beneath his cracked yellow fingernails. What is it? Danny asked. Uh, do you have some grievance to lay before us, some petition? What would you have of us? His tongue flicked nervously over chapped, cracked lips. I, I brought bones, she said impatiently, burnt bones. He lifted the sack and spilled its contents on the marble. Bones they were, broken bones and blackened. The longer ones had been cracked open for their marrow, 
It were the black one, the man said in a Gascari growl, the winged shadow. He come down from the sky and... and... No, Danny shivered. No, no, oh no. Are you deaf, fool? Resnick, Mo Resnick, demanded of the man. Did you not hear my pronouncement? See my factors on the morrow, and you shall be paid for your sheep. Resnick, Sir Barristan said quietly, hold your tongue and open your eyes. Those are no sheep bones. No, Danny thought. Those are the bones of a child. John The white wolf raced through a black wood, beneath a pale cliff as tall as the sky. The moon ran with him, slipping through a tangle of bare branches overhead, across the starry sky. Snow! The moon murmured. The wolf made no answer. Snow crunched beneath his paws. The wind sighed through the trees. Far off he could hear his packmates calling to him, like to like. They were hunting too. A wild rain lashed down upon his black brother as he tore at the flesh of an enormous goat. Washing the blood from his side, where the goat's long horn had raked him. In another place, his little sister lifted her head to sing to the moon, and a hundred small grey cousins broke off their hunt to sing with her. The hills were warmer where they were, and full of food. Many a night his sister's pack gorged on the flesh of sheep and cows and horses, the prey of men, and sometimes even on the flesh of man himself. Snow! the moon called down again, cackling. The white wolf padded along the man-trail beneath the icy cliff. The taste of blood was on his tongue, and his ears rang to the song of the hundred cousins. Once they had been six, five whimpering blind in the snow beside their dead mother, sucking cool milk from her hard-dead nipples whilst he crawled off alone. Four remained, and one the white wolf could no longer sense. Snow! the moon insisted. The white wolf ran from it, racing toward the cave of night where the sun had hidden, his breath frosting in the air. On starless nights the great cliff was as black as stone, a darkness towering high above the wide world. But when the moon came out, it shimmered pale and icy as a frozen stream. The wolf's pelt was thick and shaggy, but when the wind blew along the ice, no fur could keep the chill out. On the other side, the wind was colder still, the wolf sensed. That was where his brother was, the grey brother, who smelled of summer. Snow! An icicle tumbled from a branch. The white wolf turned and bared his teeth. Snow! His fur rose bristling as the woods dissolved around him. Snow! 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 He heard the beat of wings. Through the gloom a raven flew. It landed on Jon Snow's chest with a thump and a scrabbling of claws. Snow! It screamed into his face. I hear you. The room was dim, his palate hard. 
grey light leaked through the shutters, promising another bleak, cold day. Is this how you woke Mormont? Get your feathers out of my face. John wriggled an arm out from under his blankets to shoo the raven off. It was a big bird, old and bold and scruffy, utterly without fear. Snow! it cried, flapping to his bedpost. Snow! Snow! John filled his fist with a pillow and let fly. But the bird took to the air. The pillow struck the wall and burst, scattering stuffing everywhere, just as Dolores Ed Tullett poked his head through the door. Big pardon, he said, ignoring the flurry of feathers. Shall I fetch me lord some breakfast? Corn, cried the raven. Corn, corn. Roast raven, John suggested, and half a pint of ale. Having a steward fetch and serve for him still felt strange. Not long ago, it would have been him fetching breakfast for Lord Commander Mormont. Three corns and one roast raven, said Dolores' head. Very good, my lord. Only hubs made boiled eggs, eh? Black sausage and apples stewed with prunes. The apples stewed with prunes are excellent, except for the prunes. I won't eat prunes myself. Well, there was one time when Hub chopped them up with chestnuts and carrots and hid them in a hen. Never trust a cook, me lord. They'll prune you when you least expect it. Later. Breakfast could wait. Stannis could not. Any trouble from the stockades last night? Not since you put guards on the guards, me lord. Good. A thousand wildlings had been penned up beyond the wall. The captives Stannis Baratheon had taken when his knights had smashed Mance Raider's patchwork host. Many of the prisoners were women, and some of the guards had been sneaking them out to warm their beds. King's men, Queen's men, it did not seem to matter. A few black brothers had tried the same thing. Men were men, and these were the only women for a thousand leagues. Two more wildlings turn up to surrender, Ed went on. A mother with a girl clinging to her skirts. She had a boy babe, too, all swaddled up in fur. But he was dead. Dead, said the raven. It was one of the bird's favorite words. Dead, dead, dead. They had free folk drifting in most every night. Starved, half-frozen creatures who had run from the battle beneath the wall, only to call back when they realized there was no safe place to run to. Was a mother question, John asked. Stannis Baratheon had smashed Man's Raider's host and made the king beyond the wall his captive. But the wildlings were still out there, the Weeper and Tormund Giant's Bane and thousands more. Oi, my lord, said Ed. But all she knows is that she ran off during the battle and hid in the woods after we filled her full of porridge, sent her to the pens, and burnt the babe. Burning dead children had ceased to trouble Jon Snow. Live ones were another matter. Two kings to wake the dragon, the father first, then the son, so both die kings. The words had been murmured by one of the queen's men as Maester Aemon had cleaned his wounds. Jon had tried to dismiss them as his fever talking. Eamon had demurred. 
There is power in a king's blood, the old maester had warned, and better men than Stannis have done worse things than this. The king can be harsh and unforgiving, aye, but a babe still on the breast? Only a monster would give a living child to the flames. John pissed in darkness, filling his chamber pot as the old bear's raven muttered complaints. The wolf dreams had been growing stronger, and he found himself remembering them even when awake. Ghost knows that grey wind is dead. Rob had died at the twins, betrayed by men he'd believed his friends, and his wolf had perished with him. Bran and Rickon had been murdered too, beheaded at the behest of Theon Greyjoy, who had once been their lord father's ward. But if dreams did not lie, their dire wolves had escaped. At Queen's Crown, one had come out of the darkness to save John's life. Summer, it had to be. His fur was grey, and Shaggy Dog is black. He wondered if some part of his dead brothers lived on inside their wolves. He filled his basin from a flagon of water beside his bed, washed his face and hands, donned a clean set of black woolens, laced up a black leather jerkin, and pulled on a pair of well-worn boots. Mormon's raven watched with shrewd black eyes, then fluttered to the window. Do take me for your thrall? When John folded back the window with its thick diamond-shaped panes of yellow glass, the chill of the morning hit him in the face. He took a breath to clear away the cobwebs of the night as the raven flapped away. Ah, that bird is too clever by half. It had been the old bear's companion for years. But that had not stopped it from meeting Mormon's face once he died. Outside his bedchamber, a flight of steps descended to a larger room, furnished with a scarred pinewood table and a dozen oak and leather chairs. With Tannis in the King's Tower and the Lord Commander's Tower burnt to a shell, John had established himself in Donal Noy's modest rooms behind the armory. In time, no doubt, he would need larger quarters, but for the moment these would serve, whilst he accustomed himself to command. The grant that the king had presented him for signature was on the table beneath a silver drinking cup that had once been Donald Noyes. The one-armed smith had left few personal effects. The cup, six pennies, and a copper star, a niello brooch with a broken clasp, a musty brocade doublet that bore the stag of storm's end. His treasures were his tools— and the swords and knives he made. His life was at the forge. John moved the cup aside and read the parchment once again. If I put my seal to this, I will forever be remembered as the Lord Commander who gave away the wall, he thought. But if I should refuse... Stannis Baratheon was proving to be a prickly guest, and a restless one. He had ridden down the King's Road almost as far as Queen's Crown, prowled through the empty hovels of Molestown, inspected the ruined forts at Queen's Gate and Oakenshield. Each night he walked atop the wall with Lady Melisandre, and during the days he visited the stockades, picking captives out for the red woman to question. He does not like to be balked. 
this would not be a pleasant morning, John feared. From the armory came a clatter of shields and swords, as the latest lot of boys and raw recruits armed themselves. He could hear the voice of Iron Emmet telling them to be quick about it. Cutter Pike had not been pleased to lose him, but the young ranger had a gift for training men. He loves to fight, and he'll teach his boys to love it too, or so he hoped. John's cloak hung on a peg by the door, his sword belt on another. He'd done them both and made his way to the armory. The rug where Ghost slept was empty, he saw. Two guardsmen stood inside the doors, clad in black cloaks and iron half-helms, spears in their hands. "'Will my lord be wanting a tale?' asked Gas. "'I think I can find the king's tower by myself.' John hated having guards trailing after him everywhere he went. It made him feel like a mother duck leading a procession of ducklings. Arn Emmett's lads were well at it in the yard, blunted swords slamming into shields and ringing against one another. John stopped to watch a moment as Horse pressed Hop Robin back toward the well. Horse had the makings of a good fighter, he decided. He was strong and getting stronger, and his instincts were sound. Hop Robin was another tale. His club foot was bad enough, but he was afraid of getting hit as well. Perhaps we can make a steward of him. The fight ended abruptly, with Hop Robin on the ground. Well fought, John said to Horse, but you'll drop your shield too low when pressing an attack. You will want to correct that, or it is like to get you killed. Uh, yes, my lord. I'll keep it higher next time. Horse pulled up Robin to his feet, and the smaller boy made a clumsy bow. A few of Stannis' knights were sparring on the far side of the yard. King's men in one corner and Queen's men in another, John did not fail to note, but only a few. It's too cold for most of them. As he strode past them, a booming voice called after him, "'Boy! You there! Boy!' Boy was not the worst of the things that Jon Snow had been called since being chosen Lord Commander. He ignored it. "'Snow!' the voice insisted. "'Lord Commander!' This time he stopped. "'Sir?' The knight overtopped him by six inches. "'A man who bears valyrian steel should use it for more than scratching his arse.' John had seen this one about the castle, a knight of great renown, to hear him tell it. During the battle beneath the wall, Sir Godfrey Faring had slain a fleeing giant, pounding after him on horseback and driving a lance through his back, then dismounting to hack off the creature's pitiful small head. The Queen's men had taken to calling him Godfrey the Giant Slayer. John remembered Ygret crying. I am the last of the giants. I use Longclaw when I must, sir. How well, though, Sir Godfrey drew his own blade. Show us. I promise not to hurt you, lad. How kind of you. Some other time, sir. I fear I have other duties just now. Oh, you fear? Ha! <laughs> I see that. Sir Godfrey grinned at his friends. He fears, he repeated, for the slow ones. You will excuse me. John showed them his back. 
Castle Black seemed a bleak and forlorn place in the pale dawn light. My command, John Snow reflected ruefully, as much a ruin as it is a stronghold. The Lord Commander's tower was a shell, the common hall a pile of blackened timbers, and Hardner's tower looked as if the next gust of wind would knock it over, though it had looked that way for years. Behind them rose the wall, immense, forbidding, frigid, a crawl with builders pushing up a new switchback stair to join the remnants of the old. They worked from dawn to dusk. Without the stair, there was no way to reach the top of the wall, save by winch. That would not serve if the wildlings should attack again. Above the king's tower, the great golden battle standard of House Baratheon cracked like a whip from the roof where Jon Snow had prowled with bow in hand not long ago, slaying fens and free folk beside Satin and Deaf Dick Follard. Two Queen's men stood shivering on the steps, their hands tucked up into their armpits and their spears leaning against the door. Those cloth gloves will never serve, John told them. See Burn Marsh on the morrow, and he'll give you each a pair of leather gloves lined with fur. We will, my lord, and thank you, said the older guard. That's if our bloody hands aren't froze off, the younger added, his breath of pale mist. I used to think that it got cold up in the Dornish marshes. Oh, what did I know? Nothing, thought Jon Snow. The same as me. Halfway up the winding steps, he came upon Samuel Tarley, headed down. Are you coming from the king? John asked him. Master Eamon sent me with a letter. I see. Some lords trusted their maesters to read their letters and convey the contents, but Stannis insisted on breaking the seals himself. How did Stannis take it? Not happily, by his face. Sam dropped his voice to a whisper. I am not supposed to speak of it. Then don't. John wondered which of his father's bannermen had refused King Stannis homage this time. He was quick enough to spread the word when Carhold declared for him. How are you and your longbow getting on? I found a good book about archery. Sam frowned. Doing it is harder than reading about it, though. I get blisters. Keep at it. We may need your bow on the wall if the others turn up some dark night. Oh, I hope not. More guards stood outside the king's solar. No arms are allowed in his grace's presence, my lord. Their sergeant said, I'll need that sword, your knives as well. It would be no good to protest, John knew. He handed them his weaponry. Within the solar, the air was warm. Lady Melisandre was seated near the fire, her ruby glimmering against the pale skin of her throat. Igrit had been kissed by fire. The red priestess was fire, and her hair was blood and flame. Stannis stood beside the rough-hewn table, where the old bear had once been wont to sit and take his meals. Covering the table was a large map of the north, painted on a ragged piece of hide. A tallow candle weighed down one end of it, a steel gauntlet the other. The king wore lamb's wool breeches and a quilted doublet, yet somehow he looked 
as stiff and uncomfortable as if he had been clad in plate and mail. His skin was pale leather, his beard cropped so short that it might have been painted on. A fringe about his temples was all that remained of his black hair. In his hand was a parchment with a broken seal of dark green wax. John took a knee. The king frowned at him and rattled the parchment angrily. Rise, tell me, who is Lyanna Mormont? One of Lady Major's daughters, sire, the youngest. She was named for my lord father's sister. To curry your lord father's favour, I don't doubt. I know how that game is played. How old is this wretched girl child? John had to think a moment. Ten, or near enough, to make no matter. Might I know how she has offended your grace? Stannis read from the letter. Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. A girl of ten, you say, and she presumes to scold her lawful king. His close-cropped beard lay like a shadow over his hollow cheeks. See that you keep these tidings to yourself, Lord Snow. Carhold is with me. That's all the men need to know. I will not have your brothers trading tales of how this child spat on me. As you command, sire. Mage Mormont had ridden south with Rob, John knew. Her eldest daughter had joined the young wolf's host as well. Even if both of them had died, however, Lady Mage had other daughters, some with children of their own. Had they gone with Rob as well? Surely Lady Mage would have left at least one of the older girls behind as Castellan. He did not understand why Leanna should be writing Stannis, and could not help but wonder if the girl's answer might have been different, if the letter had been sealed with a direwolf instead of a crown stag, and signed by John Stark, Lord of Winterfell. <laughs> it's too late for such misgivings. You made your choice. Two score ravens were sent out, the king complained, yet we get no response but silence and defiance. Homage is the duty every leal subject owes his king. Yet your father's bannermen all turn their backs on me, save the Karstarks. Is Arnulf Karstark the only man of honour in the north? Arnulf Karstark was the late Lord Rickard's uncle. He had been made the Castellan of Carhold when his nephew and his sons went south with Rob and he had been the first to respond to King Stannis' call for homage, with a raven declaring his allegiance. The Carstarks have no other choice, John might have said. Rickard Carstark had betrayed the direwolf and spilled the blood of lions. The stag was Carhold's only hope. In times as confused as these, even men of honour must wonder where their duty lies. Your grace is not the only king in the realm demanding homage. Lady Melisandre stirred. Tell me, Lord Snow, where were these other kings when the wild people stormed your wall? A thousand leagues away, and deaf to our need, John replied. I have not forgotten that, my lady, nor will I. But my father's bannermen have wives and children to protect, and small folk who will die should they choose wrongly. His grace asked much of them. Give them time, and you will have your answers. Answers such as this? 
Stannis crushed Lyanna's letter in his fist. Even in the north men feared the wrath of Tywin Lannister. Boltons make bad enemies as well. It is not happenstance that put a flayed man on their banners. The north rode with Rob, bled with him, died for him. They have supped on grief and death, and now you come to offer them another serving? You blame them if they hang back? Forgive me, Your Grace, but some will look at you and see only another doomed pretender. If His Grace is doomed, your realm is doomed as well, said Lady Melisandre. Remember that, Lord Snow. It is the one true king of Westeros who stands before you. John kept his face a mask. As you say, my lady. Stannis snorted. You spend your words as if everyone were a golden dragon. I wonder how much gold do you have laid by? Gold? Are those the dragons the red woman means to wake? Dragons made of gold? Such taxes as we collect are paid in kind, Your Grace. The watch is rich in turnips, but poor in coin. Turnips are not like to appease salad or sun. I require gold or silver. For that you need White Harbour. The city cannot compare to Old Town or King's Landing, but it is still a thriving port. Lord Manderley is the richest of my Lord Father's bannermen. Lord too fat to sit a horse. The letter that Lord Wyman Manderley had sent back from White Harbour had spoken of his age and infirmity and little more. Stannis had commanded John not to speak of that one either. Perhaps his lordship would fancy a wilding wife, said Lady Melisandre. Is this fat man married, Lord Snow? His lady wife is long dead. Lord Wyman has two grown sons and grandchildren by the elder, and he is too fat to sit a horse, thirty stone at least. Val would never have him. Just once you might try to give me an answer that would please me, Lord Snow, the king grumbled. I would hope the truth would please you, sire. Your men call Val a princess, but to the free folk she is only the sister of their king's dead wife. If you force her to marry a man she does not want, she is like to slit his throat on their wedding night. Even if she accepts her husband, that does not mean the wildlings will follow him or you. The only man who can bind them to your cause is Mance Raider. I know that, Stannis said, unhappily. I have spent hours speaking with a man. He knows much and more of our true enemy, and there is cunning in him, I'll grant you. Even if he were to renounce his kingship, though, the man remains an oath-breaker. Suffer one deserter to live, and ye encourage others to desert. No, laws should be made of iron, not of pudding. Mance Raider's life is forfeit by every law of the Seven Kingdoms. The law ends at the wall, Your Grace. You can make good use of Mance. I mean to. I'll burn him, and the North will see how I deal with turncloaks and traitors. I have other men to lead the wildlings, and I have Raider's son, do not forget. Once a father dies, his whelp will be the king beyond the wall. Your grace is mistaken. You know nothing, Jon Snow. 
Egret used to say, but he had learned, the babe is no more a prince than Val is a princess. You do not become king beyond the wall because your father was. Good, said Stannis, for I will suffer no other kings in Westeros. Have you signed the grant? No, your grace. <laughs> and now it comes. John closed his burned fingers and opened them again. You ask too much. Ask? I asked you to be Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. I require these castles. We have ceded you the night fort. Rats and ruins. It's a niggard's gift that costs the giver nothing. Your own man, Yarwick, says it will be half a year before the castle can be made fit for habitation. The other forts are no better. I know that. It makes no matter. They are all we have. There are nineteen forts along the wall, and you have men in only three of them. I mean to have every one of them garrisoned again before the year is out. I have no quarrel with that, sire. But it is being said that you also mean to grant these castles to your knights and lords, to hold as their own seats, as vassals to your grace. Kings are expected to be open-handed to their followers. Did Lord Eddard teach his bastard nothing? Many of my knights and lords abandon rich lands and start castles in the south. Should their loyalty go unrewarded? If your grace wishes to lose all of my lord father's bannermen, there is no more certain way than by giving northern halls to southern lords. How can I lose men I do not have? I had hoped to bestow Winterfell on a Northman, you may recall, a son of Eddard Stark. He threw my offer in my face. Stannis Baratheon, with a grievance, was like a mastiff with a bone. He gnawed it down to splinters. By right, Winterfell should go to my sister, Sansa. Lady Lannister, you mean? <laughs> You're so eager to see the imp perched on your father's seat. I promise you that will not happen whilst I live, Lord Snow. John knew better than to press the point. Sir, some claim that you mean to grant lands and castles to Rattleshirt and the Magna of Thin. Who told you that? The talk was all over Castle Black. If you must know, I had the tale from Gilly. Who is Gilly? Uh, the wet nurse, said Lady Melisande. Your grace gave her freedom of the castle. Not for running tales. She's wanted for a teach, not for a tongue. I'll have more milk from her and fewer messages. Castle Black needs no useless mouths, John agreed. I'm sending Gilly south on the next ship out of Eastwatch. Melisandre touched the ruby at her neck. Gilly is giving suck to Dallas' son as well as her own. It seems cruel of you to part our little prince from his milk brother, my lord. Careful now, careful. Mother's milk is all they share. Gilly's son is larger and more robust. He kicks the prince and pinches him and shoves him from the breast. Craster with his father a cruel man and greedy, and blood tells. The king was confused. I thought the wet nurse was this man Craster's daughter. Wife and daughter both, your grace. Craster married all his daughters. Gilly's boy was the fruit of their union. Her own father got this child on her. 
Stannis sounded shocked. You're well rid of her, then. I will not suffer such abominations here. This is not King's Landing. I can find another witness. If there's none amongst the wildings, I will send to the mountain clans. Until such time, goat's milk should suffice for the boy, if it please your grace. Poor fare for a prince, but better than a whore's milk, I... Stannis drummed his fingers on the map. If we may return to the matter of these forts. Your grace, said John, with chilly courtesy, I have housed your men and fed them, a dark horse to our winter stores. I have clothed them so they would not freeze. Stannis was not appeased. Aye, you've shared your salt pork and porridge, and you've thrown us some black rags to keep us warm. Rags the wildlings would have taken off your corpses if I had not come north. John ignored that. I have given you fodder for your horses, and once the stair is done, I will lend you builders to restore the night fort. I've even agreed to allow you to settle wildlings on the gift, which was given to the night's watch in perpetuity. You offer me empty lands and desolations, yet deny me the castles I require to reward my lords and bannermen. The Night's Watch built those castles, and the Night's Watch abandoned them to defend the wall, John finished stubbornly, not as seats for Southron lords. The stones of those forts are mortared with the blood and bones of my brothers long dead. I cannot give them to you. Cannot or will not, the cords in the king's neck stood out sharp as swords. I offered you a name. I have a name, your grace. Snow was ever a name more ill-omened. Stannis touched his sword-hilt. Just who do you imagine that you are? The watcher on the walls, the sword in the darkness. Don't prate your words at me. Stannis drew the blade he called Lightbringer. Here is your sword in the darkness. Light rippled up and down the blade, now red, now yellow, now orange, painting the king's face in harsh, bright hues. Even a green boy should be able to see that. Are you blind? No, sire, I agree these castles must be garrisoned. Oh, the boy commander agrees. How fortunate. By the night's watch. You do not have the men. Then give me men, sire. I will provide officers for each of the abandoned forts, seasoned commanders who know the wall and the lands beyond and how best to survive the coming winter. In return for all we've given you, grant me the men to fill out the garrisons, men-at-arms, crossbowmen, raw boys. I will even take your wounded and infirm. Senna stared at him incredulously, then gave a bark of laughter. Hey, you're, you're bold enough, Snow, I grant you that. But you're mad if you think my men will take the black. They can wear any color cloak they choose, so long as they obey my officers as they would your own. The king was unmoved. I have knights and lords in my service, scions of noble houses, old in honor. They cannot be expected to serve under poachers, peasants, and murderers. Or bastard, sire? Your own hand is a smuggler. Was a smuggler. I shortened his fingers for that. 
They tell me that you are the 998th man to command the Night's Watch, Lord Snow. What do you think the 999th might say about these castles? The sight of your head and a spike might inspire him to be more helpful. The king laid his bright blade down on the map, along the wall, its steel shimmering like sunlight on water. Your only lord commander, by my sufferance, you would do well to remember that. I'm lord commander because my brothers chose me. There were mornings when Jon Snow did not quite believe it himself, when he woke up thinking, surely, that this was some mad dream. It's like putting on new clothes, Sam had told him. The fit feels strange at first, but once you've worn them for a while, you get to feeling comfortable. Alistair Thorne complains about the manner of your choosing, and I cannot say he does not have a grievance. The map lay between them like a battleground, drenched by the colours of the glowing sword. The count was done by a blind man with your fat friend by his elbow, and Slint names you a turncloak. And who would know one better than Slint? A turncloak would tell you what you wish to hear, and betray you later. Your grace knows that I was fairly chosen. My father always said you were a just man. Just but harsh had been Lord Eddard's exact words, but John did not think it would be wise to share that. Lord Eddard was no friend to me, but he was not without some sense. He would have given me these castles. Oh, <laughs> never. I cannot speak to what my father might have done. I took an oath, Your Grace. The wall is mine. For now, we will see how well you hold it. Stannis pointed at him. Keep your ruins, as they mean so much to you. I promise you, though, if any remain empty when the year is out, I will take them, with your leave or without it. And if even one should fall to the foe, your head will soon follow. Now, get out. Lady Melisandre rose from her place near the hearth. With your leave, sire, I will show Lord Snow back to his chambers. Why? He knows the way. Stannis waved them both away. I'll do what you will. Devon! Food! Boiled eggs and lemon water! After the warmth of the King's solar, the turnpike stair felt bone-chillingly cold. Wind's rising, milady, the sergeant warned Melisandre, as he handed John back his weapons. You might want a, a warmer cloak. I have my faith to warm me. The red woman walked beside John down the steps. His grace is growing fond of you. I can tell. He only threatened to behead me twice. Melisandre laughed. It is his silences you should fear, not his words. As they stepped out into the yard, the wind filled John's cloak, and sent it flapping against her. The red priestess brushed the black wool aside and slipped her arm through his. It may be that you are not wrong about the wilding king. I shall play for the Lord of Light to send me guidance. When I gaze into the flames, I can see through stone and earth and find the truth within men's souls. I can speak to kings long dead and children not yet born and watch the years and seasons flicker past until the end of days. Are your fathers never wrong? Never. Though we priests are mortal, 
and sometimes err, mistaking this must come for this may come. John could feel her heat, even through his wool and boiled leather. The sight of them arm in arm was drawing curious looks. Oh, they will be whispering in the barracks tonight. If you can truly see the morrow in your flames, tell me when and where the next wiling attack will come. He slipped his arm free. Law sends us what visions he will, but I shall seek for this man, Torman, in the flames. Melisandre's red lips curled into a smile. I have seen you in my fires, Jon Snow. Is that a threat, my lady? Do you mean to burn me too? You mistake my meaning. She gave him a searching look. I fear that I make you uneasy, Lord Snow. John did not deny it. The wall is no place for a woman. Oh, you're wrong. I've dreamed of your wall, Jon Snow. Great was the law that raised it, and great the spells locked beneath its ice. We walk beneath one of the hinges of the world. Melisandre gazed up at it, her breath a warm, moist cloud in the air. This is my place, as it is yours, and soon enough you may have grave need of me. Do not refuse my friendship, John. I have seen you in the storm, hard-pressed, with enemies on every side. You have so many enemies. Shall I tell you their names? I know their names. Do not be so certain. The ruby at Melisandre's throat gleam redly. It is not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but those who smile when you are looking and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. You would do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice, I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold. It is always cold on the wall. You think so? I know so, my lady. Then you know nothing, John Snow, she whispered. Bran Are we there yet? Bran never said the words aloud, but they were often on his lips as the ragged company trudged through groves of ancient oaks and towering grey-green sentinels past gloomy soldier pines and bare brown chestnut trees. Are we near? the boy would wonder, as Hodor clambered up a stony slope, or descended into some dark crevice where drifts of dirty snow cracked beneath his feet. How much farther, he would think, as the great elk splashed across a half-frozen stream. How much longer? It's so cold. Where is the three-eyed crow? Swaying in his wicker basket on Hodor's back, the boy hunched down, ducking his head as the big stable boy passed beneath the limb of an oak. The snow was falling again, wet and heavy. Hodor walked with one eye frozen shut, his thick brown beard a tangle of hoar-frost, icicles drooping from the ends of his bushy moustache. One gloved hand still clutched the rusty iron longsword he had taken from the crypts below Winterfell, and from time to time he would lash out at a branch, knocking loose a spray of snow. <laughs> he would mutter, his teeth chattering. 
the sound was strangely reassuring. On their journey from Winterfell to the Wall, Bran and his companions had made the miles shorter by talking and telling tales. But it was different here. Even Hodor felt it. His Hodors came less often than they had south of the Wall. There was a stillness to this wood like nothing Bran had ever known before. Before the snows began, the north wind would swirl around them, and clouds of dead brown leaves would kick up from the ground with a faint, small rustling sound that reminded him of roaches scurrying in a cupboard. But now all the leaves were buried under a blanket of white. From time to time a raven would fly overhead, big black wings slapping against the cold air. Elsewise, the world was silent. Just ahead, the elk wove between the snowdrifts, with his head down, his huge rack of antler crusted with ice. The ranger sat astride his broad back, grim and silent. Cold Hands was the name the fat boy, Sam, had given him, for though the ranger's face was pale, his hands were black and hard as iron, and cold as iron, too. The rest of him was wrapped in layers of wool and boiled leather and ring-mail, his features shadowed by his hooded cloak and a black woolen scarf about the lower half of his face. Behind the ranger, Mira Reed wrapped her arms around her brother to shelter him from the wind and cold with the warmth of her own body. A crust of frozen snot had formed below Jojen's nose, and from time to time he shivered violently. He looked so small, Bran thought, as he watched him sway. He looks smaller than me now, and weaker too, and I'm the cripple. Summer brought up the rear of their little band. The direwolf's breath frosted the forest air as he padded after them, still limping on the hind leg that had taken the arrow back at Queen's Crown. Bran felt the pain of the old wound whenever he slipped inside the big wolf's skin. Of late Bran wore Summer's body more often than his own. The wolf felt the bite of the cold, despite the thickness of his fur, but he could see farther and hear better and smell more than the boy in the basket, bundled up like a babe in swaddling clothes. Other times, when he was tired of being a wolf, Bran slept into Hodor's skin instead. The gentle giant would whimper when he felt him and thrash his shaggy head from side to side, but not as violently as he had the first time back at Queen's Crown. "'He knows it's me,' the boy liked to tell himself. "'He's used to me by now.' Even so, he never felt comfortable inside Hodor's skin. The big stable boy never understood what was happening, and Bran could taste the fear at the back of his mouth. It was better inside summer. "'I am him, and he is me.' He feels what I feel. Sometimes Bran could sense the dire wolf sniffing after the elk, wondering if he could bring the great beast down. Summer had grown accustomed to horses at Winterfell, but this was an elk, and elk were prey. The dire wolf could sense the warm blood coursing beneath the elk's shaggy hide. Just the smell was enough to make the slaver run from between his jaws, and when it did— Bran's mouth would water at the thought of rich, dark meat. 
from a nearby oak a raven corked, and Bran heard the sound of wings as another of the big black birds flapped down to land beside it. By day only half a dozen ravens stayed with them, flitting from tree to tree or riding on the antlers of the elk. The rest of the murder flew ahead or lingered behind, but when the sun sank low they would return, descending from the sky on night-black wings until every branch of every tree was thick with them, for yards around. Some would fly to the ranger and mutter at him, and it seemed to Bran that he understood their quarks and squawks. They are his eyes and ears. They scout for him and whisper to him of dangers ahead and behind. As now. The elk stopped suddenly, and the ranger vaulted lightly from his back to land in knee-deep snow. Summer growled at him, his fur bristling. The direwolf did not like the way that cold hands smelled. Dead meat, dried blood, a faint whiff of rut, and cold, cold overall. What is it? Mira wanted to know. Behind us, cold hands announced, his voice muffled by the black wool scarf across his nose and mouth. Wolves, Bran asked. They had known for days that they were being followed. Every night they heard the mournful howling of the pack, and every night the wolves seemed a little closer. Hunters and hungry, they can smell how weak we are. Often Bran woke shivering hours before the dawn, listening to the sound of them calling to one another in the distance as he waited for the sun to rise. If there are wolves, there must be prey, he used to think, until it came to him that they were the prey. The ranger shook his head. Men, the wolves still keep their distance. These men are not so shy. Mira Reed pushed back her hood. The wet snow that had covered it tumbled to the ground with a soft thump. How many men? Who are they? Foes. I'll deal with them. I'll come with you. You'll stay. The boy must be protected. There's a lake ahead. Hard frozen. When you come on it, turn north and follow the shoreline. You'll come to a fishing village. Take refuge there until I can catch up with you. Bran thought that Mira meant to argue, until her brother said, Do as he says. He knows this land. Jojen's eyes were a dark green, the color of moss, but heavy with a weariness that Bran had never seen in them before. The little grandfather. South of the wall, the boy from the Cranogs had seemed to be wise beyond his years, but up here he was as lost and frightened as the rest of them. Even so, Mira always listened to him. That was still true. Cold hands slipped between the trees, back the way they'd come, with four ravens flapping after him. Mira watched him go, her cheeks red with cold, breath puffing from her nostrils. She pulled her hood back and gave the elk a nudge, and their trek resumed. Before they had gone twenty yards, though, she had turned to glance behind them and said, Men, he says, what men? Does he mean wildlings? Why won't he say? He said he'd go and deal with them, said Bran. He said, aye, he said he would take us to the three-eyed crow, too. 
That river we crossed this morning is the same one we crossed four days ago, I swear. We're going in circles. Rivers turn and twist, Bran said uncertainly, and where there's lakes and hills, you need to go around. There's been too much going around, Mira insisted, and too many secrets. I don't like it. I don't like him, and I don't trust him. Those hands of his are bad enough. He hides his face and will not speak a name. Who is he? What is he? Anyone can put on a black cloak, anyone or anything. He does not eat. He never drinks. He does not seem to feel the cold. It's true. Bran had been afraid to speak of it, but he had noticed. Whenever they took shelter for the night, while he and Hodor and the reeds huddled together for warmth, the ranger kept apart. Sometimes cold hands closed his eyes, but Bran did not think he slept, and there was something else. The scarf! Bran glanced about uneasily, but there was not a raven to be seen. All the big black birds had left them when the ranger did. No one was listening. Even so, he kept his voice low. The scarf over his mouth! It never gets all hard with ice, like Hordar's beard! Not even when he talks. Mira gave him a sharp look. You're right. We've never seen his breath, have we? No. A puff of white heralded each of Hodor's Hodor's. When Jojen or his sister spoke, their words could be seen too. Even the elk left a warm fog upon the air when he exhaled. If he does not breathe... Bran found himself remembering the tales old Nan had told him when he was a babe. Beyond the wall, the monsters live. The giants and the ghouls, the stalking shadows and the dead that walk, she would say, tucking him in beneath his scratchy woolen blanket. But they cannot pass so long as the wall stands strong, and the men of the night's watch are true. So go to sleep, my little Brendan, my baby boy, and dream sweet dreams. There are no monsters here. The ranger wore the black of the night's watch. But what if he was not a man at all? What if he was some monster, taking them to the other monsters to be devoured? The ranger saved Sam and the girl from the whites. Bran said hesitantly, "'And he's taken me to the three-eyed crow. "'Why won't this three-eyed crow come to us? "'Why couldn't he meet us at the wall? "'Crows have wings. "'My brother goes weaker every day. "'How long can we go on?' "'Jojen coughed. "'Until we get there.' "'They came upon the promised lake not long after "'and turned north as the ranger had bid them. "'That was the easy part.' The water was frozen, and the snow had been falling for so long that Bran had lost count of the days, turning the lake into a vast, white wilderness. Where the ice was flat and the ground was bumpy, the going was easy. But where the wind had pushed the snow up into ridges, sometimes it was hard to tell where the lake ended and the shore began. Even the trees were not as infallible a guide as they might have hoped for there were wooded islands in the lake and wide areas ashore where no trees grew. 
The elk went where he would, regardless of the wishes of Mira and Jojen on his back. Mostly he stayed beneath the trees, but where the shore curved away westward, he would take the more direct path across the frozen lake, shouldering through snowdrifts taller than Bran as the ice crackled underneath his hooves. Out there the wind was stronger, a cold north wind that howled across the lake, knifed through their layers of wool and leather, and set them all to shivering. When it blew into their faces, it would drive the snow into their eyes and leave them good as blind. Hours passed in silence. Ahead, shadows began to steal between the trees, the long fingers of the dusk. Dark came early this far north. Bran had come to dread that. Each day seemed shorter than the last, and where the days were cold, the nights were bitter cruel. Mira halted them again. We should have come on the village by now. Her voice sounded hushed and strange. Could we have passed it? Bran asked. I hope not. We need to find shelter before nightfall. She was not wrong. Jojen's lips were blue, Mira's cheeks dark red, Bran's own face had gone numb. Hodor's beard was solid ice. Snow caked his legs almost to the knee, and Bran had felt him stagger more than once. No one was as strong as Hodor, no one, if even his great strength was failing. Summer can find the village, Bran said suddenly, his words misting in the air. He did not wait to hear what Mira might say, but closed his eyes and let himself flow from his broken body. As he slipped inside a summer skin, the dead woods came to sudden life. Where before there had been silence, now he heard wind in the trees, Hodor's breathing, the elk pawing at the ground in search of fodder. Familiar scents filled his nostrils, wet leaves and dead grass, the rotted carcass of a squirrel decaying in the brush, the sour stink of man's sweat, the musky odor of the elk. Food! Meat! The elk sensed his interest. He turned his head toward the direwolf, weary, and lowered his great antlers. He is not prey, the boy whispered to the beast who shared his skin. Leave him! Run! Summer ran. Across the lake he raced his paws kicking up sprays of snow behind him. The trees stood shoulder to shoulder like men in a battle line, all cloaked in white. Over roots and rocks the direwolf sped. Through a drift of old snow, the cross crackling beneath his weight, his paws grew wet and cold. The next hill was covered with pines, and the sharp scent of their needles filled the air. When he reached the top, he turned in a circle, sniffing at the air, then raised his head and howled. The smells were there. Man smells. Ashes, Bran thought. Old and faint, but ashes. It was the smell of burnt wood, soot and charcoal, a dead fire. He shook the snow off his muzzle. The wind was gusting, so the smells were hard to follow. The wolf turned this way and that, sniffing. All around were heaps of snow and tall trees garbed in white. The wolf let his tongue loll out between his teeth, tasting the frigid air, his breath misting as snowflakes melted on his tongue. 
When he trotted towards the scent, Hodor lumbered after him at once. The elk took longer to decide, so Bran returned reluctantly to his own body and said, That way, follow summer. I smelled it. As the first sliver of a crescent moon came peeking through the clouds, they finally stumbled into the village by the lake. They had almost walked straight through it. From the ice, the village looked no different than a dozen other spots along the lake shore. Buried under drifts of snow, the round stone houses could just as easily have been boulders or hillocks or fallen logs, like the dead fall that Jojen had mistaken for a building the day before, until they dug down into it and found only broken branches and rotting logs. The village was empty, abandoned by the wildlings who had once lived there, like all the other villages they had passed. Some had been burned, as if the inhabitants had wanted to make certain they could not come creeping back, but this one had been spared the torch. Beneath the snow they found a dozen huts and a long hall, with its sod roof and thick walls of rough-hewn logs. "'At least we will be out of the wind,' Bran said. "'Hodor,' said Hodor. Mira slid down from the elk's back. She and her brother helped lift Bran out of the wicker basket. "'It might be the wildlings left some food behind,' she said. That proved a forlorn hope. Inside the long hall they found the ashes of a fire, floors of a hard-packed dirt, a chill that went bone-deep. But at least they had a roof above their heads and log walls to keep the wind off. A stream ran nearby, covered with a film of ice. The elk had to crack it with his hoof to drink. Once Bran and Jojen and Hodor were safely settled, Mira fetched back some chunks of broken ice for them to suck on. The melting water was so cold it made Bran shudder. Summer did not follow them into the long hall. Bran could feel the big wolf's hunger, a shadow of his own. "'Go, aunt,' he told him, "'but you leave the elk alone.' Part of him was wishing he could go hunting too. Perhaps he would, later. Supper was a fistful of acorns, crushed and pounded into paste, so bitter that Bran gagged as he tried to keep it down. Jojen Reed did not even make the attempt. Younger and frailer than her sister, he was growing weaker by the day. Jojen, you have to eat, Mira told him. Later, I just want to rest. Jojen smiled a wan smile. This is not the day I die, sister, I promise you. You almost fell off the elk. Almost. I am cold and hungry, that's all. Then eat. Crushed acorns. <laughs> My belly hurts, but that will only make it worse. Leave me be, sister. I'm dreaming of roast chicken. Dreams will not sustain you, not even green dreams. Dreams are what we have. All we have. The last of the food that they had brought from the south was ten days gone. Since then, hunger walked beside them day and night. Even summer could find no game in these woods. They lived on crushed acorns and raw fish. The woods were full of frozen streams and cold black lakes, and Mira was as good a fisher 
with her three-pronged frog spear, as most men were, with hook and line. Some days her lips were blue with cold by the time she waded back to them, with her catch wriggling on her tines. It had been three days since Mira caught a fish, however. Bran's belly felt so hollow it might have been three years. After they choked down their meagre supper, Mira sat with her back against the wall, sharpening her dagger on a whetstone. Hodor squatted down beside the door, rocking back and forth on his haunches and muttering, Hodor! 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 Bran closed his eyes. It was too cold to talk, and they dare not light a fire. Cold hands had warned them against that. These woods are not as empty as you'd think, he had said. You cannot know what the light might summon from the darkness. The memory made him shiver, despite the warmth of Hodor beside him. Sleep would not come, could not come. Instead, there was wind, the biting cold, moonlight on snow, and fire. He was back inside summer, long leagues away, and the night was rank with the smell of blood. The scent was strong. A kill, not far. The flesh would still be warm. Slaver ran between his teeth as the hunger woke inside him. Not elk, not deer, not this. The direwolf moved toward the meat, a gaunt grey shadow sliding from tree to tree, through pools of moonlight and over mounds of snow. The wind gusted around him, shifting. He lost the scent, found it, then lost it again. As he searched for it once more, a distant sound made his ears prick up. Wolf! He knew at once. Summer stalked toward the sound, weary now. Soon enough the scent of blood was back, but now there were other smells. Piss and dead skins, bird shit, feathers, and wolf, 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 a pack. He would need to fight for his meat. They smelled him too, as he moved out from amongst the darkness of the trees into the bloody glade. They were watching him. The female was chewing on a leather boot that still had half a leg in it but she let it fall at his approach. The leader of the pack, an old male, with a grizzled white muzzle and a blind eye, moved out to meet him, snarling, his teeth bared. Behind him, a younger male showed his fangs as well. The direwolf's pale yellow eyes drank in the sights around them. A nest of entrails coiled through a bush, entangled with the branches, steam rising from an open belly, which were the smells of blood and meat. A head staring sightlessly up at a horned moon, cheeks ripped and torn down to bloody bone, pits for eyes, neck ending in a ragged stump, a pool of frozen blood, glistening red and black. Men! The stink of them filled the world. Alive they had been as many as the fingers on a man's paw, but now... They were none. Dead. Done. Meat. Cloaked and hooded once, but the wolves had torn their clothing into pieces in their frenzy to get at the flesh. Those who still had faces wore thick beards crusted with ice and frozen snot. The falling snow had begun to bury what remained of them, 
so pale against the black of ragged cloaks and breeches. Black. Long leagues away, the boy stirred uneasily. Black. Night's watch. They were night's watch. The direwolf did not care. They were meat. He was hungry. The eyes of the three wolves glowed yellow. The direwolf swung his head from side to side, nostrils flaring, then bared his fangs in a snarl. The younger male backed away. The direwolf could smell the fear in him. Tail, he knew. But the one-eyed wolf answered with a growl and moved to block his advance. Head, and he does not fear me, though I am twice his size. Their eyes met. Warg! Then the two rushed together, wolf and direwolf, and there was no more time for thought. The world shrunk down to tooth and claw, snow flying as they rolled and spun and tore at one another, the other wolf snarling and snapping around them. His jaws closed on matted fur, slick with hoarfrost, on a limb thin as a dry stick, but the one-eyed wolf clawed at his belly and tore himself free, rolled, lunged for him. Yellow Fang snapped closed on his throat, but he shook off his old grey cousin as he would a rat, then charged after him, knocked him down, rolling, ripping, kicking. They fought until the both of them were ragged, and fresh blood dappled the snows around them. But finally the old one-eyed wolf lay down and showed his belly. The dire wolf snapped at him twice more, sniffed at his butt, then lifted a leg over him. A few snaps and a warning growl, and the female on the tail submitted too. The pack was his. The prey as well. He went from man to man, sniffing, before settling on the biggest, a faceless thing who clutched black iron in one hand. His other hand was missing, severed at the wrist, his stump bound up in leather. Blood flowed thick and sluggish from the slash across his throat. The wolf lapped at it with his tongue, licked the ragged eyeless ruin of his nose and cheeks, then buried his muzzle in his neck and tore it open, gulping down a gobbet of sweet meat. No flesh had ever tasted half as good. When he was done with that one, he moved to the next, and devoured the choicest bits of that man, too. Ravens watched him from the trees, squatting dark-eyed and silent on the branches as snow drifted down around them. The other wolves made do with his leavings. The old male fed first, then the female, then the tail. They were his now. They were... Pack. No, the boy whispered. We have another pack. Lady's dead, and maybe Grey Wind too. But somewhere there's still Shaggy Dog, and Nymeria, and Ghost. Remember Ghost? Falling snow and feasting wolves began to dim. Warmth beat against his face, comforting as a mother's kisses. Fire, he thought. Smoke. His nose twitched to the smell of roasting meat, and then the forest fell away, and he was back in the long hall again, back in his broken body, staring at a fire. Mira Reed was turning a chunk of raw, red flesh above the flames, letting it char and spit. Just in time, she said. Bran rubbed his eyes with the heel of his hand 
and wriggled backwards against the wall to sit. You almost slept through supper. The ranger found a sow. Behind her, Hodor was tearing eagerly at a chunk of hot charred flesh as blood and grease ran down into his beard. Wisps of smoke rose from between his fingers. Hodor, he muttered between bites. Hodor, Hodor. His sword lay on the earthen floor beside him. Jojen Reed nipped at his own joint with small bites, chewing each chunk of meat a dozen times before swallowing. The ranger killed a pig. Cold hand stood beside the door, a raven on his arm, both staring at the fire. Reflections from the flames glittered off four black eyes. He does not eat, Bran remembered, and he fears the flames. You said no fire, he reminded the ranger. The walls around us hide light, and dawn is close. We will be on our way soon. What happened to the men, the foes behind us? They will not trouble you. Who were they, wildlings? Mira turned the meat to cook the other side. Hodor was chewing and swallowing, muttering happily under his breath. Only Jojen seemed aware of what was happening as cold hands turned his head to stare at Bran. They were foes. Men of the Night's Watch, you kill them. You and the ravens, their faces were all torn, and their eyes were gone. Cold hands did not deny it. They were your brothers. I saw. The wolves had ripped their clothes up, but I could still tell. Their cloaks were black, like your hands. Cold hands said nothing. Who are you? Why are your hands black? The ranger studied his hands as if he'd never noticed them before. Once the heart has ceased to beat, a man's blood runs down into his extremities, where it thickens and congeals. His voice rattled in his throat, as thin and gaunt as he was. His hands and feet swell up and turn as black as pudding. The rest of him becomes as white as milk. Mira Reed rose, her frog spear in her hand, a chunk of smoking meat still impaled upon his tines. Show us your face. The ranger made no move to obey. He's dead. Bran could taste the bile in his throat. Mira, he's some dead thing. The monsters cannot pass so long as the war stands and the men of the Night's Watch stay true. That's what old Nan used to say. He came to meet us at the wall, but he could not pass. He sent Sam instead with that wilding girl. Mira's gloved hand tightened around the shaft of her frog spear. Who sent you? Who is this three-eyed crow? A friend, dreamer, wizard. Call him what you will. The last green seer. The long hall's wooden door banged open. Outside the night wind howled, bleak and black. The trees were full of ravens screaming. Cold hands did not move. A monster, Bran said. The ranger looked at Bran as if the rest of them did not exist. Your monster, Brandon Stark. Yours, the raven echoed from his shoulder. Outside the door, the ravens in the trees 
took up the cry until the nightwood echoed to the murder song of Yours, yours, yours. Jojen, did you dream this? Mira asked her brother. Who is he? What is he? What do we do now? We go with a ranger, said Jojen. We have come too far to turn back now, Mira. We would never make it back to the wall alive. We go with Bran's monster, or we die. Tyrion They departed Pentos by the sunrise gate, though Tyrion Lannister never glimpsed the sunrise. It will be as if you had never come to Pentos, my little friend, promised Magister Illyrio, as he drew shot the litter's purple velvet drapes. No man must see you leave the city, as no man saw you enter. No man except the sailors who stuffed me in that barrel, the cabin boy who cleaned up after me, the girl you sent to warm my bed, and that treacherous, freckled washerwoman. Oh, and your guards, <laughs> unless you remove their wits along with their balls. They know you're not alone in here. The litter was suspended between eight mammoth draught horses on heavy leather straps. Four eunuchs paced beside the horses, two to either side, and more were trudging along behind to guard the baggage train. Unsolid tell no tales, Illyrio assured him, and the galley that delivered you is on her way to Ashai even now. It will be two years before she returns, if the seas are kind. As for my household, they love me well. None would betray me. Cherish that thought, my fat friend. <laughs> One day we will carve those words upon your crypt. We should be aboard that galley, the dwarf said. The fastest way to Valentis is by sea. The sea is hazardous, replied Illyrio. Autumn is a season rife with storms, and pirates still make their dens upon the stepstones and venture forth to prey on honest men. It would never do for my little friend to fall into such hands. There are pirates on the ruin as well. River pirates, the cheesemonger gave a yawn, covering his mouth with the back of his hand. Uh, cockroach captains scurrying after crumbs. One hears talk of stone men as well. Oh, they are real enough, poor damned things. But why speak of such things? The day is too fine for such talk. We shall see the ruin soon, and there you shall be rid of Illyrio and his big belly. <laughs> Till then, let us drink and dream. We have sweet wine and savouries to enjoy. Why dwell upon disease and death? Why, indeed? Tyrion heard the thrum of a crossbow once again and wondered. The litter swayed side to side, a soothing movement that made him feel as if he were a child being rocked to sleep in his mother's arms. Not that they would know what that was like. Silk pillows stuffed with goose down, cushioned his cheeks. The purple velvet walls curved overhead to form a roof, 
making it pleasantly warm within, despite the autumn chill outside. A train of mules trail behind them, carrying chests and casks and barrels, and hampers of delectables to keep the Lord of Cheese from growing peckish. They nibbled unspiced sausage that morning, washed down with a dark smokeberry brown. Jellied eels and dornish reds filled their afternoon. Come evening there were sliced hams, boiled eggs, and roasted larks stuffed with garlic and onions, with pale ales and marish fire wines to help in their digestion. The litter was as slow as it was comfortable, however, and the dwarf soon found himself itching with impatience. "'How many days until we reach the river?' he asked Illyrio that evening. "'At this pace your queen's dragons will be larger than Aegon's three before I can lay eyes upon them.' "'Would it were so, a large dragon is more fearsome than a small one?' The magister shrugged. Much as it would please me to welcome Queen Daenerys to Volantis, I must rely on you and Griff for that. I can serve her best in Pentos, smoothing the way for her return. So long as I am with you, though, well, an old fat man must have his comforts, yes? Come, drink a cup of wine. Tell me, Tyrion said as he drank, why should a magister of Pentas give three figs who wears the crown in Westeros? Where is the gain for you in this venture, my lord? The fat man dabbed grease from his lips. I am an old man, grown weary of this world and its treacheries. Is it so strange that I should wish to do some good before my days are done to help a sweet young girl regain her birthright? Next you will be offering me a suit of magic armor and a palace in Valeria. If Daenerys is no more than a sweet young girl, the Iron Throne will cut her into sweet young pieces. Fear not, my little friend. The blood of Aegon the dragon flows in her veins. Along with the blood of Aegon the unworthy, Magor the cruel, and Baelor the befuddled. Uh, tell me more of her. The fat man grew pensive. Daenerys was half her child when she came to me, yet fairer even than my second wife. So lovely, I was tempted to claim her for myself. Such a fearful, furtive thing, however, I knew I should get no joy from coupling with her. Instead, I summoned a bedwarmer and fucked her vigorously until the madness passed. If truth be told, I did not think Daenerys would survive for long amongst the horse lords. That did not stop you selling her to Carl Drogo. Dothraki neither buy nor sell. Say rather that her brother Viserys gave her to Drogo to win the Carl's friendship. A vain young man and greedy. Viserys lusted for his father's throne, but he lusted for Daenerys too, and was loath to give her up. The night before the princess wed, he tried to steal into her bed, insisting that if he could not have her hand, he would claim her maidenhead. 
Had I not taken the precaution of posting guards upon her door, the series might have undone years of planning. He sounds an utter fool. Viserys was Mad Ares' son, just so. Daenerys, well, Daenerys is quite different. He popped a roasted lark into his mouth and crunched it noisily, bones and all. The frightened child who sheltered in my manse died on the Dothraki Sea and was reborn in blood and fire. This dragon queen who wears her name is a true Targaryen. When I sent ships to bring her home, she turned towards Slaver's Bay. In a short span of days, she conquered Astapor, made Yonkai bend the knee, and sacked Meryn. Mantares will be next, if she marches west along the Ovalarian roads. If she comes by sea, well, her fleet must take on food and water at Volantis. By land or by sea, there are long leagues between Meryn and Volantis, Tyrion observed. Five hundred fifty, as the dragon flies, through deserts, mountains, swamps, and demon-haunted ruins. Many and more will perish, but those who survive will be stronger by the time they reach Volantis, where they shall find you and Griff awaiting them, with fresh forces and sufficient ships to carry them all across the sea to Westeros. Tyrion pondered all he knew of Volantis, oldest and proudest of the nine free cities. Something was awry here. Even with half a nose he could smell it. It said there are five slaves for every free man in Volantis. Why would the Triarchs assist a queen who smashed the slave trade? He pointed at Illyrio. For that matter, why would you? Slavery may be forbidden by the laws of Pentus, yet you have a finger in that trade as well, and maybe a whole hand. And yet you conspire for the Dragon Queen and not against her. Why? What do you hope to gain from Queen Daenerys? Oh, are we back to that again? You are a persistent little man. Illyrio gave a laugh and slapped his belly. As you will. The beggar king swore that I should be his master of coin, and a lordly lord as well. Once he wore his golden crown, I should have my choice of castles, even castly rock, if I desired. Tyrion snorted wine back up the scarred stump that had been his nose. My father would have loved to hear that. Your lord father had no cause for concern— why would I want a rock? <laughs> My manse is large enough for any man, and more comfortable than your drafty Westerosi castles. Master of coin, though. Mm. The fat man peeled another egg. I am fond of coins. Is there any sound as sweet as the clink of gold on gold? Ah, a sister screams. Are you quite certain that Daenerys will make good her brother's promises? Oh, she will. Or she will not. <laughs> Illyrio bit the egg in half. I told you, my little friend, 
not all that a man does is done for gain. Believe as you wish, but even fat old fools like me have friends and debts of affection to repay. Liar, thought Tyrion, there is something in this venture worth more to you than coin or castles. You meet so few men who value friendship over gold these days. True, true, the fat man said, deaf to the irony. How is it that the spider became so dear to you? We were young together, two green boys in Pentos. Varys came from Mir. Yes, he did. I, I met him not long after he arrived, one step ahead of the slavers. By day he slept in the sewers, by night he prowled the rooftops like a cat. I was near as poor, a bravo in soiled silks, living by my blade. Perhaps you chanced to glimpse the statue by my pool. Pytho Melanon carved that when I was six and ten. A lovely thing, though now I weep to see it. Age makes ruins of us all. I am still in mourning for my nose. But Varys, in Mere he was a prince of thieves, until a rival thief informed on him. In Pentos his accent marked him, and once he was known for a eunuch, he was despised and beaten. Why he chose me to protect him I may never know, but we came to an arrangement. Varys spied on lesser thieves and took their takings. I offered my help to their victims, promising to recover their valuables for a fee. Soon every man who had suffered a loss knew to come to me, while cities, footpads, and cut-purses sought out varies, half to slit his throat, the other half to sell him what they had stolen. We both grew rich, and richer still, when Varys trained his mice. In King's Landing, he kept little birds. Mice, we called them then. The older thieves were fools who thought no further than turning a knight's plunder into wine. Varys preferred often boys and young girls. He chose the smallest, the ones who were quick and quiet, and taught them to climb walls and slip down chimneys. He taught them to read as well. We left the gold and gems for common thieves. Instead, our mice stole letters, ledgers, charts. Later, they would read them and leave them where they lay. Secrets are worth more than silver or sapphires, Varys claimed. Just so, I grew so respectable that a cousin of the Prince of Pentos let me wed his maiden daughter, whilst whispers of a certain eunuch's talents crossed the narrow sea and reached the ears of a certain king, a very anxious king, who did not wholly trust his son, nor his wife, nor his hand, a friend of his youth, who had grown arrogant and overproud. I do believe that you know the rest of this tale. Is that not so? Much of it, Tyrion admitted. I see that you are somewhat more 
than a cheesemonger after all. Illyrio inclined his head. You are kind to say so, my little friend, and for my part I see that you are just as quick as Lord Varius claimed. He smiled, showing all his crooked yellow teeth, and shouted for another jar of Moorish fire wine. When the magister drifted off to sleep with a wine jar at his elbow, Tyrion crept across the pillars to work it loose from its fleshy prison and pour himself a cup. He drained it down and yawned, and filled it once again. If I drink enough fire wine, he told himself, perhaps I'll dream of dragons. When he was still a lonely child in the depths of Casterly Rock, he off-rode dragons through the nights, pretending he was some lost Targaryen princeling or a Valerian dragon lord soaring high o'er fields and mountains. Once, when his uncles asked him what gift he wanted for his name day, he begged them for a dragon. It wouldn't need to be a big one. It could be little, like I am. His uncle Garin thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. But his uncle Tiget said, The last dragon died a century ago, lad. That had seemed so monstrously unfair that the boy had cried himself to sleep that night. Yet if the Lord of Cheese could be believed, the Mad King's daughter had hatched three living dragons, two more than even a Targaryen should require. Tyrion was almost sorry that he had killed his father. He would have enjoyed seeing Lord Tywin's face when he learned that there was a Targaryen queen on her way to Westeros with three dragons, backed by a scheming eunuch and a cheesemonger half the size of Casterly Rock. The dwarf was so stuffed that he had to undo his belt and the topmost laces on his breeches. The boy's clothes, his host had dressed him in, made him feel like ten pounds of sausage in a five-pound skin. If we eat this way every day, I will be the size of a lirio before I meet this dragon queen. Outside the litter, night had fallen. Inside, all was dark. Tyrion listened to Illyria's snores, the creak of the leather straps, the slow clop-clop of the team's iron-shod hooves on the hard Valerian road. But his heart was listening for the beat of leathern wings. When he woke, dawn had come. The horses plodded on, the litter creaking and swaying between them. Tyrion pulled the curtain back an inch to peer outside, but there was little to see but ochre fields. Bare brown elms on the road itself, a broad stone highway that ran straight as a spear to the horizon. He had read about Valerian roads, but this was the first he had seen. The freehold's grasp had reached as far as Dragonstone, but never to the mainland of Westeros itself. Odd that! Dragonstone is no more than a rock. The wealth was farther west. But they had dragons. Surely they knew that it was there. He had drunk too much last night. His head was pounding, and even the gentle swaying of the litter was enough to make his gorge rise in his throat. Though he said no word of complaint, his distress must have been plain to Illyrio Mopatis. Come drink with me, the fat man said. A scale from the dragon that burned you, <laughs> as they say.
he poured for them from a flagon of blackberry wine so sweet that it drew more flies than honey. Tyrion shooed them off with the back of his hand and drank deep. The taste was so cloying that it was all he could do to keep it down. The second cup went down easier, however. Even so, he had no appetite, and when Illyrio offered him a bowl of blackberries and cream, he waved it off. "'I dreamed about the Queen,' he said. "'I was on my knees before her, swearing my allegiance, but she mistook me for my brother, Jamie, and fed me to her dragons.' Let us hope that this dream was not prophetic. You are a clever imp, just as Varya said, and Daenerys will have need of clever men about her. Sir Barristan is a valiant knight, and true, but none, I think, has ever called him cunning. Knights only know one way to solve a problem. They couch their lances and charge. A dwarf has a different way of looking at the world. What of you, though? You are a clever man yourself. You flatter me. Illyrio waggled his hand. Alas, I am not made for travel, so I will send you to Daenerys in my stead. You did her grace a great service when you slew your father, and it is my hope that you will do her many more. Daenerys is not the fool her brother was. She will make good use of you. As kindling, Tyrion thought, smiling pleasantly. They changed our teams only thrice that day, but seemed to halt twice an hour at the least, so Illyrio could climb down from the litter and have himself a piss. Our lord of cheese is the size of an elephant, but he has a bladder like a peanut, the dwarf mused. During one stop, he used the time to have a closer look at the road. Tyrion knew what he would find. Not packed earth, nor bricks, nor cobbles, but a ribbon of fused stone raised a half foot above the ground to allow rainfall and snow melt to run off its shoulders. Unlike the muddy tracks that passed for roads in the Seven Kingdoms, the Valerian roads were wide enough for three wagons to pass abreast, and neither time nor traffic marred them. They still endured, unchanging, four centuries after Valeria itself had met its doom. He looked for ruts and cracks, but found only a pile of warm dung deposited by one of the horses. The dung made him think of his lord father. Are you down in some hell, father? A nice cold hell, where you can look up and see me help restore Mad Aria's daughter to the Iron Throne? As they resumed their journey, Illyrio produced a bag of roasted chestnuts and began to speak once more of the Dragon Queen. Our last news of Queen Daenerys is old and stale, I fear. By now she will have left Marine, we must assume. She has her host at last. A ragged host of sellswords, Dothraki horselords, and unsolid infantry— and she will no doubt lead them west to take back her father's throne. Magister Illyrio twisted open a pot of garlic snails, sniffed at them, and smiled. At Belenta's you will have fresh tidings of Daenerys, we must hope, he said, as he sucked one from its shell. Dragons and young girls are both capricious, 
and it may be that you will need to uh, adjust your plans. Griff will know what to do. Uh, will you have a snail? The garlic is for my own gardens. I could ride a snail and make a better pace than this litter of yours. Tyrion waved the dish away. You place a deal of trust in this man, Griff. Another friend of your childhood? No, a sellsword, you would call him, but West Rossi born. Daenerys needs men worthy of her cause. Illyrio raised a hand. I know. Sellswords put gold before honor, you are thinking. Well, this man, Griff, will sell me to my sister. Not so. I trust Griff as I would trust a brother. Another mortal error. Then I shall do likewise. The Golden Company marches toward Valentis as we speak, there to await the coming of our Queen out of the East. Beneath the gold, the bitter steel. I had heard the Golden Company was under contract with one of the free cities. Mere, Illyrio smirked. Contracts can be broken. There is more coin in cheese than I knew, said Tyrion. How did you accomplish that? The magister waggled his fat fingers. Some contracts are rich in ink, and some in blood. <laughs> I say no more. The dwarf pondered that. The Golden Company was reputedly the finest of the free companies, founded a century ago by Bitter Steel, a bastard son of Aegon the Unworthy. When another of Aegon's great bastards tried to seize the Iron Throne from his true-born half-brother, Bitter Steel joined the revolt. Damon Blackfire had perished on the red grass field, however, and his rebellion with him. Those followers of the Black Dragon who survived the battle, yet refused to bend the knee, fled across the narrow sea, among them Damon's younger sons. Bitter steel, and hundreds of landless lords and knights who soon found themselves forced to sell their swords to eat. Some joined the ragged standard, some the second sons, or maidens' men. Bitter steel saw the strength of House Blackfire scattering to the four winds, so he formed the Golden Company to bind the exiles together. From that day to this, the men of the Golden Company had lived and died in the disputed lands, fighting for Mere or Lice or Tyrush in their pointless little wars, dreaming of the land their fathers had lost. They were exiles and sons of exiles, dispossessed and unforgiven, yet formidable fighters still. I admire your powers of persuasion, Tyrion told Illyrio. How did you convince the Golden Company to take up the cause of our sweet queen, when they have spent so much of their history fighting against the Targaryens? Illyrio brushed away the objection as if it were a fly. Black or red, a dragon is still a dragon. When Melis the monstrous died upon the stepstones, it was the end of the male line of House Blackfire. The cheesemonger smiled through his forked beard, and Daenerys will give the exiles what bitter steel and black fires never could. She will take them home. Ah, with fire and sword. It was a kind of homecoming that Tyrion wished for as well. 
Ten thousand swords makes for a princely gift, I grant you. Her grace would be most pleased. The magister gave a modest bob of his head, chins jiggling. I would never presume to say what might please her grace. Ah, prudent of you. Tyrion knew much and more about the gratitude of kings. Why should queens be any different? Soon enough the magister was fast asleep, leaving Tyrion to brood alone. He wondered what Barristan Selmy would think of riding into battle with a golden company. During the War of the Ninepenny Kings, Selmy had cut a bloody path through their ranks to slay the last of the Blackfire pretenders. Rebellion makes for queer bedfellows, and none more queer than this fat man and me. The cheesemonger woke when they stopped to change the horses and sent for a fresh hamper. How far have we come? the dwarf asked him, as they stuffed themselves with cold capon and a relish made of carrots, raisins, and bits of lime and orange. This is Andalus, my friend, the land your Andals came from. They took it from the hairy men who were here before them, cousins to the hairy men of Ib. The heart of Hugor's ancient realm lies north of us, but we are passing through its southern marshes. In Pentos these are called the Flatlands. Further east stand the Velvet Hills, whence we are bound. Andalus, the faith taught that the seven themselves had once walked the hills of Andalus in human form. The father reached his hand into the heavens and pulled down seven stars, Tyrion recited from memory, and one by one he set them on the brow of Hugor of the hill to make a glowing crown. Magister Lirio gave him a curious look. I did not dream my little friend was so devout. The dwarf shrugged. A relic of my boyhood. I knew I would not make a knight, so I decided to be high septon. That crystal crown adds a foot to a man's height. I studied the holy books and prayed until I had scabs on both my knees, but my quest came to a tragic end. I reached that certain age and fell in love. Oh, maiden, yeah, I know the way of that. Illyrio thrust his right hand up his left sleeve and drew out a silver locket. Inside was a painted likeness of a woman with big blue eyes and pale golden hair streaked by silver. Sarah, I found her in a Lycine pillow house and brought her home to warm my bed, but in the end I wed her. Me, whose first wife had been a cousin of the Prince of Pentos. <laughs> the palace gates were closed to me thereafter, but I did not care. The price was small enough for Sarah. How did she die? Tyrion knew that she was dead. No man spoke so fondly of a woman who had abandoned him. A bravassi trading galley called at Pentos on her way back from the Jade Sea. The treasure carried cloves and saffron, jet and jade, scarlet, samite, green silk, and the grey death. 
We slew her oarsmen as they came ashore and burned the ship at anchor, but the rats crept down the oars and paddled to the quay on cold stone feet. The plague took two thousand before it ran its course. Magister Illyrio closed the locket. I keep her hands in my bedchamber, her hands that were so soft. Tyrion thought of Tysha. He glanced out of the fields where once the gods had walked. What sort of gods make rats and plagues and dwarfs? Another passage from the seven-pointed star came back to him. The maid brought him forth a girl, as supple as a willow with eyes like deep blue pools, and Hugo declared that he would have her for his bride. So the mother made her fertile, and the crone foretold that she would bear the king four and forty mighty sons. The warrior gave strength to their arms, whilst the smith wrought for each a suit of iron plates. Your smith must have been ruinish, <laughs> Illyrio quipped. The Andals learned the art of working iron from the Roinar who dwelt along the river. This is known. Not by our septons, Tyrion gestured at the fields. Who dwells in these flatlands of yours? No tillers and toilers bound to the land. There are orchards, farms, mines, and where I own some myself, though I seldom visit them. Why should I spend my days out here with the myriad delights of Pentos close at hand? Myriad delights? <laughs> Ah, uh, and huge thick walls. Tyrion swirled his wine in his cup. We have seen no town since Pentos. There are ruins, Illyrio waved a chicken leg toward the curtains. The uh, horse lords come this way whenever some cow takes it into his head to gaze upon the sea. The Dothraki are not fond of towns. You will know this even in Westeros. Fall upon one of these calisars and destroy it, and you may find the Dothraki are not so quick to cross the ruin. It is cheaper to buy off foes with food and gifts. If only I had thought to bring a nice cheese to the battle on the Blackwater, I might still have all my nose. Lord Tywin had always held the free cities in contempt. They fight with coins instead of swords, he used to say. Gold has its uses, but wars are won with iron. Give gold to a foe, and he will just come back for more, my father always said. Is this the self-same father that you murdered? Illyrio tossed his chicken bone from the litter. Sail swords will not stand against Dothraki screamers. That was proved at Kohor. Not even your brave Griff? mocked Tyrion. Oh, Griff is different. He has a son he dotes on. Young Griff, the boy is called. There never was a nobler lad. The wine, the food, the sun, the sway of the litter, the buzzing of the flies, all conspired to make Tyrion sleepy. So he slept, woke, drank. Illyrio matched him cup for cup, and as the sky turned a dusky purple, the fat man 
began to snore. That night Tyrion Lannister dreamt of a battle that turned the hills of Westeros as red as blood. He was in the midst of it, dealing death with an axe as big as he was, fighting side by side with Barristan the Bold and Bitter Steel as dragons wheeled across the sky above them. In the dream he had two heads, both noseless. His father led the enemy, so he slew him once again. Then he killed his brother, Jamie, hacking at his face until it was a red ruin, laughing every time he struck a blow. Only when the fight was finished did he realize that his second head was weeping. When he woke, his stunted legs were stiff as iron. Illyrio was eating olives. Where are we? Tyrion asked him. We have not yet left the flatlands, my hasty friend. Soon our road shall pass into the velvet hills. There we begin our climb toward Goyandro, upon the little ruin. Goyandro had been a ruin our city until the dragons of Valeria had reduced it to a smoldering desolation. I'm traveling through years as well as leagues, Tyrion reflected. Back through history to the days when dragons ruled the earth. Tyrion slept, and woke, and slept again, and day and night seemed not to matter. The velvet hills proved a disappointment. Half the whores in Lannisport have breasts bigger than these hills, he told Illyria. You ought to call them the velvet teats. They saw a circle of standing stones that Illyrio claimed had been raised by giants, and later a deep lake. Here lived a den of robbers who preyed on all who passed this way, Illyrio said. It is said they still dwell beneath the water. Those who fish the lake are pulled under and devoured. The next evening they came upon a huge Valerian sphinx, crouched beside the road. It had a dragon's body and a woman's face. A dragon queen, said Tyrion. A pleasant omen. Her king is missing. Illyria pointed out the smooth stone plinth on which the second sphinx once stood, now grown over with moss and flowering vines. The house lords built wooden wheels beneath him and dragged him back to Vez Dothrak. That is an omen, too, thought Tyrion, but not as hopeful. That night, drunker than usual, he broke into sudden song. He rode through the streets of the city, down from his hill on high, o'er the winds and the steps and the cobbles, he rode to a woman's sigh, for she was his secret treasure, she was his shame and his bliss, and a chain and a keep on nothing compared to a woman's kiss. Those were all the words he knew, aside from the refrain, Hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. Shay's hands had beaten him as the golden hands dug into her throat. He did not remember if they had been warm or not. As the strength went out of her, her blows became moths, fluttering about his face. Each time he gave the chain another twist. The golden hands dug deeper. 
a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss. Had he kissed her one last time after she was dead? He could not remember, though he still recalled the first time they had kissed, in his tent beside the green fork. How sweet her mouth had tasted. He remembered the first time with Taisha as well. She did not know how, no more than I did. We kept bumping our noses, but when I touched her tongue with mine, she trembled. Tyrion closed his eyes to bring her face to mine, but instead he saw his father squatting on a privy with his bedrobe hiked up about his waist. "'Wherever whores go,' Lord Tywin said, and the crossbow thrummed. The dwarf rolled over, pressing half a nose deep into the silken pillows. Sleep opened up beneath him like a well, and he threw himself into it with a will, and let the darkness eat him up. The Merchant's Man Adventure stank. She boasted sixty oars, a single sail, and a long, lean hull that promised speed. Small, but she might serve, Quentin thought when he saw her, but that was before he went aboard and got a good whiff of her. Pigs, was his first thought, but after a second sniff he changed his mind. Pigs had a cleaner smell. This stink was piss and rotting meat and night soil. This was the reek of corpse flesh and weeping sores and wounds gone bad, so strong that it overwhelmed the salt air and fish smell of the harbour. Ah, I want a wretch, he said to Gareth Drinkwater. They were waiting for the ship's master to appear, sweltering in the heat as a stench wafted up from the deck beneath them. If the captain smells anything like his ship, he may mistake your vomit for perfume, <laughs> Gerus replied. Quentin was about to suggest that they try another ship when the master finally made his appearance, with two vile-looking crewmen at his side. Gerus greeted him with a smile. Though he did not speak the volantine tongue as well as Quentin, their ruse required that he speak for them. Back in the Planky town, Quentin had played the wine-cellar, but the mummery had chafed at him. So when the Dornishmen changed ships at Lice, they had changed roles as well. Aboard the Meadowlark, Cletus Ironwood became the merchant, Quentin the servant. In Volantis, with Cletus slain, Garrus had assumed the master's role. Tall and fair, with blue-green eyes, sandy hair streaked by the sun, and a lean and comely body, Gerus Drinkwater had a swagger to him, a confidence bordering on arrogance. He never seemed ill at ease, and even when he did not speak the language, he had ways of making himself understood. Quentin cut a poor figure by comparison, short-legged and stocky, thickly built, with hair the brown of new-turned earth. His forehead was too high, his jaw too square, his nose too broad. A good honest face! a girl had called it once, but you should smile more. Smiles had never come easily for Quentin Martell, any more than they did for his lord father. How swift is your adventure, Gareth said, 
in a halting approximation of High Valerian. The adventure's master recognized the accent and responded in the common tongue of Westeros. There is none swifter, honored lord. Adventure can run down the wind itself. Tell me where you wish to sail, and swiftly I shall bring you there. I seek passage to Marine for myself and two servants. That gave the captain pause. I am no stranger to Marine. I could find the city again, I but uh, why? There are no saves to be had in Marine, no profit to be found there. The Silver Queen has put an end to that. She has even closed the fighting pits, so a poor sailor cannot even amuse himself as he waits to fill his holds. Tell me, my Westerosi friend, what is there in Marine that you should want to go there? The most beautiful woman in the world, thought Quentin, my bride-to-be, if the gods are good. Sometimes at night he lay awake, imagining her face and form, and wondering why such a woman would ever want to marry him, of all the princes in the world. And Dawn, he told himself, she will want Dawn. Garris answered with a tale they had concocted. Wine is our family trade. My father owns extensive vineyards back in Dawn, and wishes me to find new markets. It is hoped that the good folk of Merin will welcome what I sell. Wine? Dornish wine? The captain was not convinced. The save cities are at war. Can it be you do not know this? The fighting is between Yunkai and Astapor, we had heard. Marine is not involved. Not as yet. Ah, oh, but soon. An envoy from the Yellow City is in Valantis even now, hiring swords. The Long Lancers have already taken ship for Yunkai, and the Windblown and the Company of the Cat will follow once they have finished filling out their ranks. The Golden Company marches east as well. All this is known. If you say so, I deal in wine, not wars. Giscari wine is poor stuff, all agree. The Miranese will pay a good price for my fine Dornish vintages. Dead men do not care what kind of wine they drink. The master of adventure fingered his beard. I am not the first captain you have approached, I think, nor the tenth. No, Geras admitted. How many, then? A hundred? Close enough, thought Quentin. The Volantines were fond of boasting that the hundred isles of Bravas could be dropped into their deep harbour and drowned. Quentin had never seen Bravas, but he could believe it. Rich and ripe and rotting, Valantis covered the mouth of the Rhoyne like a warm, wet kiss, stretching across hill and marsh on both sides of the river. Ships were everywhere, coming down the river or heading out to sea, crowding the wharfs and piers, taking on cargo or offloading it. Warships and whalers and trading galleys, carracks and skiffs, cogs, great cogs, longships, swan ships, ships from Lice and Tyrosh and Pentos, Carthine spices big as palaces, ships from Tolus and Yunkai and the basilisks. So many that Quentin, seeing the port for the first time from the deck of the meadowlark, had told his friends that they would only linger here three days. Yet twenty days had passed, and here they remained, 
still shipless. The captains of the Melantine, the Triarch's daughter, and the Mermaid's Kiss had all refused them. A mate of the bold voyager had laughed in their faces. The master of the dolphin berated them for wasting his time, and the owner of the seventh son accused them of being pirates, all on the first day. Only the captain of the fawn had given them reason for his refusal. "'It is true that I am sailing east,' he told them, over watered wine, "'south around Valeria, and thence into the sunrise. "'We will take on water and provisions at Newgis, "'then bend all oars for Carth and the Jade Gates. "'Every voyage has perils, long ones more than most. "'Why should I seek out more danger by turning into Slaver's Bay? "'The fawn is my livelihood.' I will not risk her to take three mad Dornishmen into the middle of a war. Quentin had begun to think that they might have done better to buy their own ship in the Planky Town. That would have drawn unwanted attention, however. The Spider had informers everywhere, even in the halls of Sunspear. Dawn will bleed if your purpose is discovered, his father had warned him as they watched the children frolic in the pools and fountains of the water gardens. "'What we do is treason. Make no mistake. Trust only your companions, and do your best to avoid attracting notice.'" So Geras Drinkwater gave the captain of adventure his most disarming smile. "'Truth be told, I have not kept count of all the cowards who refused us. But at the merchant's house I heard it said that you were a bolder sort of man, the sort who might risk anything for sufficient gold. A smuggler, Quedden thought. That was how the other traitors styled Adventure's master back at the merchant's house. He is a smuggler and a slaver, half pirate and half pander. <laughs> but it may be that he is your best hope. The innkeeper had told them. The captain rubbed thumb and forefinger together. And how much gold would ye deem sufficient for such a voyage? Thrice your usual fee per passage to Slaver's Bay. For each of you, the captain showed his teeth in something that might have been intended as a smile, though it gave his narrow face a feral look. Uh, perhaps it is true I am a bolder man than most. How soon would you wish to leave? The morrow would not be too soon. Done. Return an hour before first light, with your friends and your wines. Best to be under way whilst Volantis sleeps, so no one will ask us inconvenient questions about our destination. As you see, an hour before first light... The captain's smile widened. I'm pleased that I can help you. We will have a happy voyage, yes? I am certain of it, said Geras. The captain called for ale then, and the two of them drank a toast to their venture. A sweet man, Geras said afterward, as he and Quentin made their way down to the foot of the pier where the hard Hathay waited. The air hung hot and heavy, and the sun was so bright that both of them were squinting. This is a sweet city, Quentin agreed. Sweet enough to rot your teeth. Sweet beets were grown in profusion hereabouts, and were served with almost every meal. 
The volunteers made a cold soup of them as well, as thick and rich as purple honey. The wines were sweet as well. I fear a happy voyage will be short, however. That sweet man does not mean to take us to Marine. He was too quick to accept your offer. He'll take thrice the usual fee, no doubt, and once he has us aboard and out of sight of land, he'll slit our throats and take the rest of our gold as well. Or chain us to an oar, beside those wretches we were smelling, we need to find a better class of smuggler, I think. Their driver awaited them beside his hathay. In Westeros it might have been called an ox-cart. That was a deal more ornate than any cart that Quentin had ever seen in dawn, and lacked an ox. The hathay was pulled by a dwarf elephant, who hide the colour of dirty snow. The streets of old Valentus were full of such. Quentin would have preferred to walk, but they were miles from their inn. Besides, the innkeep at the merchant's house had warned him that travelling afoot would taint them in the eyes of foreign captains and the native-born volunteers alike. Persons of quality travelled by a palanquin or in the back of a hathay, and as it happened, the innkeep had a cousin who owned several such contrivances and would be pleased to serve them in this matter. The driver was one of the cousin's slaves, a small man with a wheel tattooed upon one cheek, naked, but for a breech clout and a pair of sandals. His skin was the color of teak, his eyes chips of flint. After he had helped them up onto the cushioned bench between the cart's two huge wooden wheels, he clambered onto the elephant's back. The merchant's house, Quentin told him, but go along the wharfs. Beyond the waterfront and its breezes, the streets and alleys of Volantis were hot enough to drown a man in his own sweat, at least on this side of the river. The driver shouted something at his elephant in the local tongue. The beast began to move, trunk swaying from side to side. The cart lurched along behind her, the driver hooting at sailors and slaves alike to clear the way. It was easy enough to tell one from the other. The slaves were all tattooed, a mask of blue feathers, a lightning bolt that ran from jaw to brow, a coin upon the cheek, a leopard spots, a skull, a jug. Maester Kedry said there were five slaves for every free man in Belantus, though he had not lived long enough to verify his estimate. He perished on the morning the corsairs swarmed aboard the meadowlark. Quentin lost two other friends that same day. William Wells, with his freckles and his crooked teeth, fearless with a lance, and Cletus Ironwood, handsome despite his lazy eye, always randy, always laughing. Cletus had been Quentin's dearest friend for half his life, a brother in all but blood. "'Give your pride a kiss for me,' Cletus had whispered to him just before he died. The corsairs had come aboard in the darkness before the dawn, as the meadowlark was anchored off the coast of the disputed lands. The crew had beaten them off, at the cost of twelve lives. Afterward the sailors stripped the dead corsairs of boots and belts and weapons, divvied up their purses, and yanked gemstones from their ears and rings from their fingers. One of the corpses was so fat that the ship's cook 
had to cut his fingers off with a meat cleaver to claim his rings. It took three meadowlarks to roll the body into the sea. The other pirates were chucked in after him without a word of prayer or ceremony. Their own dead received more tender treatment. The sailors sewed their bodies up in canvas, weighed down with ballast stones, so that they might sink more quickly. The captain of the meadowlark led his crew in a prayer for the souls of their slain shipmates. Then he turned to his Dornish passengers, the three who still remained of the six who had come aboard at the Planky Town. Even the big man had emerged, pale and green-sick and unsteady on his feet, struggling up from the depths of the ship's hold to pay his last respects. "'One of you should say some words for your dead before we give them to the sea,' the captain said. Garris had obliged, lying with every other word, since he dare not tell the truth of who they'd been or why they'd come. It was not supposed to end like that for them. This will be a tale to tell our grandchildren, Cletus had declared the day they set out from his father's castle. Will made a face at that and said, A tale to tell tavern wenches, you mean, in hopes to lift their skirts. Cletus had slapped him on the back. For grandchildren you need children. For children you need to lift some skirts. Later in the Planky Town, the Dornishman had toasted Quentin's future bride, made ribble japes about his wedding night to come, and talked about the things they'd see, the deeds they'd do, the glory they would win. All they won was a sailcloth sack filled with ballast stones. As much as he mourned Will and Cletus, it was the maester's loss that Quentin felt most keenly. Kedry had been fluent in the tongues of all the free cities, and even the Mongol Giscari that men spoke along the shores of Slaver's Bay. "'Master Kedri will accompany you,' his father said the night they parted. "'Heed his counsel. He has devoted half his life to the study of the nine free cities.' Quentin wondered if things might not have gone a deal easier if only he were here to guide them. "'I would sell my mother for a bitter breeze,' said Gerus, as they roll through the duck-side throngs. "'It's moist as the maiden's cunt, and still shy of noon. I hate this city.' Quentin shared the feeling. The sullen wet heat of Valentus sapped his strength and left him feeling dirty. The worst part was knowing that nightfall would bring no relief. Up in the high meadows north of Lorne Ironwood's estates, the air was always crisp and cool after dark, no matter how hot the day had been. Not here. In Valantis the nights were almost as hot as the days. "'The goddess sails for new guests on the morrow,' Garrus reminded him. "'That at least would take us closer. "'New Gis is an island, and a much smaller port than this. "'We would be closer, yes,' but we could find ourselves stranded, and Yugis has allied with the Yunkai. That news had not come as a surprise to Quentin. Yugis and Yunkai were both Gascari cities. If Valantis should ally with them as well, we need to find a ship from Westeros, suggested Gerus. Some trader out of Lannisport or Old Town. Few come this far. 
and those that do fill their holes with silk and spice from the jade sea, then bend their oars for home. Perhaps a bravosi ship. One hears of purple sails as far away as Ashai and the islands of the jade sea. The bravosi are descended from escaped slaves. They do not trade in slavers' bay. Do we have enough gold to buy a ship? And who was sailor? You? Me? <laughs> Dornish men had never been seafarers, not since Nymeria burned her ten thousand ships. The seas around Valeria are perilous and thick with corsairs. I've had enough of corsairs. Let's not buy a ship. This is still just a game to him, Quentin realized. No different than the time he led six of us up into the mountains to find the old lair of the Vulture King. It was not in Gareth's drink-water's nature to imagine they might fail, let alone that they might die. Even the deaths of three friends had not served to chasten him, it would seem. He leaves that to me. He knows my nature is as cautious as his is bold. Perhaps the big man is right, Sir Gary said. Piss on the sea. We can finish the journey overland. You know why he says that, Quinton said. He'd rather die than set foot on another ship. The big man had been green-sick every day of their voyage. In lice, it had taken him four days to recover his strength. They'd had to take rooms in an inn so Maester Kedry could tuck him into a feather bed and feed him broths and potions until some pink returned to his cheeks. It was possible to go overland to a marine. That much was true. The Ovalarian roads would take them there. Dragon roads, men called the great stone roadways of the freehold. But the one that ran eastward, from Valantis to a marine, had earned a more sinister name, the Demon Road. The Demon Road is dangerous and too slow, Quinton said. Tywin Lannister will send his own men after the Queen, once word of her reaches King's Landing. His father had been certain of that. His will come with knives, if they reach her first. Let's hope her dragons will sniff them out and eat them, said Gerris. Well, if we cannot find a ship, and you will not let us ride, we'd as well book passage back to dawn. Crawl back to Sunspare, defeated with my tail between my legs. His father's disappointment would be more than Quentin could bear, and the scorn of the sand-snakes would be withering. Doran Martell had put the fate of Dawn into his hands. He could not fail him, not whilst life remained. Hate-shimmers rose off the street as the Hathé rattled and jounced along on its iron-rim wheels, giving a dreamlike quality to their surroundings. In amongst the warehouses and the wharfs, shops and stalls of many sorts crowded the waterfront. Here fresh oysters could be bought, here iron chains and manacles, here cyvas pieces carved of ivory and jade. Here were temples, too, where sailors came to sacrifice to foreign gods, cheek by jowl, with pillow-houses, where women called down from balconies to men below. Have a look at that one, Gareth urged, as they passed one pillow-house. I think she's in love with you. And how much does a whore's love cost? Truth be told, 
Girls made Quentin anxious, especially the pretty ones. When first he'd come to Ironwood, he had been smitten with Inus, the eldest of Lord Ironwood's daughters. Though he never said a word about his feelings, he nursed his dreams for years, until the day she was dispatched to wed Sir Ryan Illyrian, the heir to God's grace. The last time he'd seen her, she'd had one boy at her breast and another clinging to her skirts. After Inus had come the Drinkwater twins, a pair of tawny young maidens who loved hawking, hunting, climbing rocks, and making Quentin blush. One of them had given him his first kiss, though he never knew which one. As daughters of a landed knight, the twins were too low-born to marry, but Cletus did not think there was any reason to stop kissing them. After your wed, you can take one of them for a paramour, or both. Uh, why not? But Quinton thought of several reasons why not, so he had done his best to avoid the twins thereafter, and there had been no second kiss. More recently, the youngest of Lord Arnwood's daughters had taken to following him about the castle. Gwyneth was but twelve, a small, scrawny girl whose dark eyes and brown hair set her apart in that house of blue-eyed blondes. She was clever, though, as quick with words as with her hands, and fond of telling Quentin that he had to wait for her to flower so she could marry him. That was before Prince Doran had summoned him to the water gardens, and now the most beautiful woman in the world was waiting a marine, and he meant to do his duty and claim her for his bride. She will not refuse me. She will honour the agreement. Daenerys Targaryen would need Dawn to win the Seven Kingdoms, and that meant that she would need him. It does not mean that she would love me, though. She may not even like me. The street curved where the river met the sea, and there along the bend a number of animal sellers were clustered together, offering jeweled lizards, giant banded snakes, and agile little monkeys with striped tails and clever pink hands. "'Perhaps your silver queen would like a monkey,' said Garrus. Quentin had no idea what Daenerys Targaryen might like. He had promised his father that he would bring her back to dawn, but more and more he wondered if he was equal to the task. "'I never asked for this,' he thought. Across the wide blue expanse of the ruin, he could see the black wall that had been raised by the Valerians when Valantis was no more than an outpost of their empire, a great oval of hewed stone, two hundred feet high, and so thick that six four-horse chariots could race around its top abreast, as they did each year, to celebrate the founding of the city. Outlanders, foreigners, and freemen were not allowed inside the Black Wall, save at the invitation of those who dwelt within. Scions of the old blood who could trace their ancestry back to Valeria itself. The traffic was thicker here. They were near the western end of the Long Bridge, which linked the two halves of the city. Wains and carts and hathays crowded the streets, all of them coming from the bridge or making for it. Slaves were everywhere as numerous as roaches, scurrying about their master's business. Not far from Fishmonger Square and the Merchant's House, shouts erupted from a cross street, and a dozen unsolid spearmen 
in ornate armour and tiger-skin cloaks, appeared as if from nowhere, waving everyone aside so that Triarch could pass through atop his elephant. The Triarch's elephant was a grey-skinned behemoth, clad in elaborate enamelled armour that clattered softly as he moved. The castle on his back so tall that it scraped the top of the ornamental stone arch he was passing underneath. The Triarchs are considered so elevated that their feet are not allowed to touch the ground during their year of service, Quentin informed his companion. They ride everywhere on elephants, blocking up the streets and leaving heaps of dung for the likes of us to contend with, said Gerus. Why Valantis needs three princes, when Dawn makes deal with one, I will never know. The Triarchs are neither kings nor princes. Valantis is a freehold like Valyria of old. All freeborn landholders share the rule. Even women are allowed to vote, uh, provided they own land. The three Triarchs are chosen from amongst those noble families who can prove unbroken descent from old Valyria to serve until the first day of the new year. And you would know all this if you had trouble to read the book that Maester Kedry gave you. It had no pictures. There were maps. Maps do not count. If he had told me it was about tigers and elephants, I might have given it a try. It looked suspiciously like a history. When their Hathe reached the edge of the fishermonger square, their elephant lifted her trunk and made a honking noise like some huge white goose, reluctant to plunge into the tangle of wains, palanquins, and foot traffic ahead. Their driver prodded her with his heel and kept her moving. The fishmongers were out in strength, crying the morning catch. Quinton understood one word in two at best, but he did not need to know the words to know the fish. He saw cod and sailfish and sardines, barrels of mussels and clams. Eels hung along the front of one stall. Another displayed a gigantic turtle, strung up by its legs on iron chains, heavy as a horse. Crabs scrabbled inside casts of brine and seaweed. Several of vendors were frying chunks of fish with onions and beets, or selling peppery fish stew out of small iron kettles. In the centre of the square, under the cracked and headless statue of a dead triarch, a crowd had begun to gather about some dwarfs putting on a show. The little men were done up in wooden armour, miniature knights preparing for a joust. Quinton saw one mount a dog as the other hopped onto a pig, only to slide right off again to a smattering of laughter. They look amusing, Geris said. Shall we stop and watch them fight? A laugh might serve you well, Quint. You look like an old man who has not moved his bowels in half a year. I am eight and ten, six years younger than you, Quentin thought. <laughs> I am no old man. Instead, he said, I have no need for comic dwarfs, unless they have a ship. A small one, I would think. Four stories tall, the merchant's house dominated the docks and wharfs and storehouses that surrounded it. Here, traders from Old Town and King's Landing mingled with their counterparts from Bravas and Pentas and Mir, with hairy Ebenese, pale-skinned voyagers from Carth, coal-black summer islanders in feathered cloaks, 
even miles shadow binders for Mashai by the shadow. The paving stones felt warm beneath his feet when Quentin climbed down from the Hathay, even through the leather of his boots. Outside the merchant's house, a trestle table had been set up in the shade and decorated with striped blue and white pennons that fluttered at every breath of air. Four hard-eyed cell-swords lounged around the table, calling out to every passing man and boy. Windblown, Quentin knew. The sergeants were looking for fresh meat to fill their ranks before they sailed for Slaver's Bay. And every man who signs for them is another sword for Yankee, another blade meant to drink the blood of my bride-to-be. One of the windblown shouted at them. I do not speak your tongue, Quinton answered. Though he could read and write High Valerian, he had little practice speaking it, and the Valentine apple had rolled a fair distance from the Valerian tree. Westerossi, the man answered in the common tongue. Dornishman, my master is a wine-seller. Master? Oh, fuck that. Are you a slave? Come with us and be your own master. Do you want to die a bed? We'll teach you sword and spear. You'll ride to battle with a tattered prince and come home richer than the lord. Boys, girls, gold, whatever you want. If you're man enough to take it, we're the windblown, and we fuck the goddess slaughter up her ass. Two of the cell swords began to sing, bellying out the words to some marching song. Quentin understood enough to get the gist. We are the windblown, they sang. Blow us east to Slaver's Bay. We'll kill the butcher king and fuck the dragon queen. If Cletus and Will were still with us, oh, oh, we could come back with a big man and kill a lot of them, said Gareth. Cletus and Will are dead. Pay them no mind, Quinton said. The cell swords threw taunts at their backs as they pushed through the doors of the merchant's house mocking them as bloodless cravens and frightened girls. The big man was waiting in their rooms on the second floor. Though the inn had come well recommended by the master of the meadowlark, that did not mean Quentin was willing to leave their goods and gold unguarded. Every port had thieves, rats, and whores, and Valantis had more than most. I was about to go out looking for you. Sir Archibald Arnwood said, as he slid the bar back to admit them. It was his cousin Cletus who had started calling him the big man, but the name was well deserved. Arch was six and a half feet tall, broad of shoulder, huge of belly, with legs like tree trunks, hands the size of hams, and no neck to speak of. Some childhood malady had made all his hair fall out, his bald head reminded Quentin of a smooth pink boulder. So, he demanded, what did the smuggler say? Do we have a boat? A ship, corrected Quentin. Aye, he'll take us, but only as far as the nearest hell. Gareth sat on a sagging bed and pulled off his boots. Dawn is sounding more attractive every moment, the big man said. I still say we would do better to ride the demon road. Might be it's not as perilous as men say. And if it is, well, that only means more glory for those who dare it, eh? Who would dare molest us? 
drink with his sword, me with me hammer, <laughs> that's more than any demon could digest. And if Daenerys is dead before we reach her, Quentin said, we must have a ship, even if it is adventure. Garrus laughed. You must be more desperate for Daenerys than I knew if you'd endure that stench for months on end. After three days, I'd been begging them to murder me. No, my prince, I pray you, not adventure. Do you have a better way? Quinton asked him. I do. It's just now come to me. It has its risks. It's not what you would call honourable, I grant you. But it will get you to your queen quicker than the demon road. Tell me, said Quinton Martell. John. John Snow read the letter over until the words began to blur and run together. I cannot sign this. I will not sign this. He almost burned the parchment then and there. Instead, he took a sip of ale, the dregs of the half-cup that remained from his solitary supper the night before. I have to sign it. They chose me to be their Lord Commander. The wall is mine, and the watch as well. The night's watch takes no part. It was a relief when Dolores Ed Tollett opened the door to tell him that Gilly was without. John set Maester Eamon's letter aside. I will see her. He dreaded this. Find Sam for me. I will want to speak with him next. Oh, he'll be down with the books, eh? My old Septon used to say that books are dead men talking. Dead men should keep quiet. Is what I say. No one wants to hear a dead man's yabber. Dolorous head went off muttering of worms and spiders. When Gilly entered, she went at once to her knees. John came around the table and drew her to her feet. You don't need to take a knee for me. That's just for kings. Though a wife and mother, Gilly still seemed half a child to him, a slender little thing wrapped up in one of Sam's old cloaks. The cloak was so big on her that she could have hidden several other girls beneath its folds. "'The babes are well?' he asked her. The wilding girl smiled timidly from under her cowl. "'Yes, my lord. I was scared I wouldn't have milk enough for both. But the more they suck, the more I have. They're strong.' "'I have something hard to tell you,' he almost said ask but caught himself at the last instant. "'Is it Mance? Val begged the king to spare him. She said she'd let some kneeler marry her, and never slit his throat if only Mance could live. That Lord of Bones, he's to be spared. Craster always swore he'd kill him if he ever showed his face about the keep. Mance never did half the things he'd done.' All Mance ever did was lead an army— down upon the realm he once swore to protect. Men said our words, Gilly. Then he turned his cloak, wed Dalla, and crowned himself king beyond the wall. His life is in the king's hands now. It's not him we need to talk about. It's his son, Dalla's boy. The babe? Her voice trembled. He never broke no oath, my lord. He sleeps and cries and sucks is all. He's never done no harm to no one. Don't let her burn him. Save him, please. Only you can do that, Gilly. John told her how. Another woman would have shrieked at him 
cursed him, damned him down to seven hells. Another woman might have flown at him, in rage, slapped him, kicked him, raked at his eyes with her nails. Another woman might have thrown her defiance in his teeth. Gilly shook her head. No, please, no. The raven picked up the word. No, it screamed. Refuse and the boy will burn. Not on the morrow, nor the day after, but soon, whenever Melisandre needs to wake a dragon, or raise a wind, or work some other spell requiring king's blood. Mance will be ash and bone by then. So she will claim his son for the fire, and Stannis will not deny her. If you do not take the boy away, she will burn him. I'll go, said Gilly. I'll take him. I'll take the both of them, Dallas boy and mine. Tears rolled down her cheeks. If not for the way the candle made them glisten, John might never have known that she was weeping. Craster's wives would have taught their daughters to shed their tears into a pillow. Perhaps they went outside to weep, well away from Craster's fists. John closed the fingers of his sword hand. Take both boys, and the Queen's men will ride after you and drag you back. The boy will still burn, and you with him. If I comfort her, she may think that tears can move me. She has to realize that I will not yield. You'll take one boy, and that one Dallas. A mother can't leave her son, or else she's cursed forever. Not a son. We saved him, Sam and me, please, please, my lord, we saved him from the cold. Men say that freezing to death is almost peaceful. Fire, though, hmm. Do you see the candle, Gilly? She looked at the flame. Yes. Touch it. Put your hand over the flame. Her big brown eyes grew bigger still. She did not move. Do it. Kill the boy. Now. Trembling, the girl reached out her hand, held it well above the flickering candle flame. Down. Let it kiss you. Gilly lowered her hand. An inch. Another. When the flame licked her flesh, she snatched her hand back and began to sob. Fire is a cruel way to die. Dalla died to give this child life, but you have nourished him, cherished him. You saved your own boy from the ice. Now save hers from the fire. They'll burn my babe, then. The red woman, if she can't have Dalla's, she'll burn mine. Your son has no king's blood. Melisandre gains nothing by giving him to the fire. Stannis wants the free folk to fight for him. He will not burn an innocent without good cause. Your boy will be safe. I will find a wet nurse for him, and he'll be raised here at Castle Black under my protection. He'll learn to hunt and ride, to fight with sword and axe and bow. I'll even see that he is taught to read and write. Sam would like that. And when he is old enough, he will learn the truth of who he is. He'll be free to seek you out, if that is what he wants. You will make a crow of him. She wiped at her tears with the back of a small pale hand. I won't. I won't. Kill the boy, thought John. You will. Else I promise you, the day that they burn Dalla's boy, yours will die as well. 
"'Die!' shrieked the old bear's raven. "'Die! Die! Die!' The girl sat hunched and shrunken, staring at the candle flame, tears glistening in her eyes. Finally John said, "'You have my leave to go. Do not speak of this, but see that you are ready to depart an hour before first light. My men will come for you.' Gilly got to her feet, pale and wordless. She departed with never a look back at him. John heard her footsteps as she rushed through the armory. She was almost running. When he went to close the door, John saw that Ghost was stretched out beneath the anvil, gnawing on the bone of an ox. The big white direwolf looked up at his approach. Past time that you were back. He went back to his chair to read over Maester Eamon's letter once again. Samuel Tarley turned up a few moments later, clutching a stack of books. No sooner had he entered than Mormont's raven flew at him, demanding corn. Sam did his best to oblige, offering some kernels from the sack beside the door. The raven did its best to peck through his palm. Sam yowled. The bird flapped off. Corn scattered. Did that wretch break the skin? John asked. Sam gingerly removed his glove. "'He did. I'm bleeding.' "'We all shed our blood for the watch. Wear thicker gloves.' John shoved a chair toward him with a foot. "'Sit, and have a look at this.' He handed Sam the parchment. "'What is it?' "'A paper shield.' Sam read it slowly. "'A letter to King Tummon.' At Winterfell, Tommen fought my brother Bran with wooden swords, John said, remembering. He wore so much padding, he looked like a stuffed goose. Bran knocked him to the ground. He went to the window and threw the shutters open. The air outside was cold and bracing, though the sky was a dull grey. Yet Bran is dead, and pudgy, pink-faced Tommen is sitting on the iron throne with a crown nestled amongst his golden curls. That got an odd look from Sam, and for a moment he looked as if he wanted to say something. Instead he swallowed and turned back to the parchment. You haven't signed the letter. John shook his head. The old bear begged the Iron Throne for help a hundred times. They sent him Janus Slint. No letter will make the Lannisters love us better not once they heard that we've been helping Stannis. Only to defend the wall, not in his rebellion. That's what it says here. The distinction may escape Lord Tywin. John snatched the letter back. Why would he help us now? He never did before. Well, he will not want it said that Stannis rode to the defense of the realm whilst King Tommen was playing with his toys. That would bring scorn down upon House Lannister. It's death and destruction I want to bring down upon House Lannister, not scorn. John read from the letter. The Night's Watch takes no part in the wars of the Seven Kingdoms. Our oaths are sworn to the realm, and the realm now stands in dire peril. Stannis Baratheon aids us against our foes from beyond the wall, though we are not his men. Sam squirmed in his seat. Well, we're not, are we? I gave Stannis food, shelter, and the night fort, 
plus leave to settle some free folk in the gift. That's all. Lord Tywin will say it was too much. Stannis says it's not enough. The more you give a king, the more he wants. We are walking on a bridge of ice, with an abyss on either side. Pleasing one king is difficult enough. Pleasing two is hardly possible. Yes, but if the Lannisters should prevail and Lord Tywin decides that we betrayed the king by aiding Stannis, it could mean the end of the Night's Watch. He has the Tyros behind him, with all the strength of High Garden, and he did defeat Lord Stannis on the Blackwater. The Blackwater was one battle. Rob won all his battles and still lost his head. If Stannis can raise the North... Sam hesitated, then said, The Lannisters have Northmen of their own, Lord Bolton and his bastard. Stannis has the Carstarks, if he can win White Harbour. If, Sam stressed, if not, my lord, even a, a paper shield is better than none. I suppose so. Him and Eamon both. Somehow he had hoped that Sam Tarley might see it differently. It's only ink and parchment. Resigned, he grabbed the quill and signed. Get the sealing wax, before I change my mind. Sam hastened to obey. John fixed the Lord Commander's seal and handed him the letter. Take this to Maester Eamon when you leave, and tell him to dispatch a bird to King's Landing. I will. Sam sounded relieved. My lord, if I might ask, I saw Gilly leaving. She was almost crying. Val sent her to plead for Mance again, John lied, and they talked for a while of Mance and Stannis and Melisandre of Ashai, until the raven ate the last corn kernel and screamed, Blood! I am sending Gilly away, John said, her and the boy. We will need to find another wet nurse for his milk brother. Goat's milk might serve, until you do. It's better for a babe than cow's milk. Talking about breast plainly made Sam uncomfortable, and suddenly he began to speak of history and boy commanders who had lived and died hundreds of years ago. John cut him off with, Tell me something useful. Tell me of our enemy. Oh, the others, Sam licked his lips. They are mentioned in the annals, though not as often as I would have thought. The annals I found and looked at, that is. There's more I haven't found, I know. Some of the older books are fallen to pieces. The pages crumble when I try and turn them. And the really old books, either they have crumbled all away, or they are buried somewhere that I haven't looked yet. Or, well, it could be that there are no such books, and never were. The oldest histories we have were written after the Andals came to Westeros. The first men only left us rooms on rocks, so everything we think we know about the Age of Heroes and the Dawn Age and the Long Night comes from accounts set down by Septons thousands of years later. There are archmaesters at the Citadel who question all of it. Those old histories are full of kings who reigned for hundreds of years, and knights riding around a thousand years before there were knights. You know the tales, Brandon the Builder, Simeon Star Eyes, Knight's King. We say that you're the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, 
but the oldest this type found shows 674 commanders, which suggests that it was written during long ago, John broke in. What about the others? I found mention of dragon glass. The children of the forest used to give the Night's Watch a hundred obsidian daggers every year during the Age of Heroes. The others come when it is cold, most of the tales agree, or else it gets cold when they come. Sometimes they appear during snowstorms and melt away when the sky is clear. They hide from the light of the sun and emerge by night, or else night falls when they emerge. Some stories speak of them riding the corpses of dead animals, bears, direwolves, mammoths, horses. Oh, it makes no matter, so long as the beast is dead. The one that killed small Paul was riding a dead horse, so that part's plainly true. Some accounts speak of giant ice spiders, too. I don't know what those are. Men who fall in battle against the others must be burned, or else the dead will rise again as their thralls. We knew all this. The question is, how do we fight them? The armor of the others is proof against most ordinary blades, if the tales can be believed, and their own swords are so cold they shatter steel. Fire will dismay them, though, and they are vulnerable to obsidian. I found one account of the Lung Knight that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly they could not stand against it. Dragon steel? The term was new to John. Valerian steel? That was my first thought as well. So if I can just convince the lords of the Seven Kingdoms to give us their Valerian blades, all is saved. It won't be hard. No harder than asking them to give up their coin and castles. He gave a bitter laugh. Did you find who the others are, where they come from, what they want? Not yet, my lord, but it may be that I've just been reading the wrong books. There are hundreds I have not looked at yet. Give me more time and I will find whatever there is to be found. There is no more time. You need to get your things together, Sam. You're going with Gilly. Going? Sam gaped at him open-mouthed as if he did not understand the meaning of the word. I'm going to his watch, my lord, or where am I? Old Town. Old Town, Sam repeated in a high-pitched squeak. Eamon as well. Eamon? Maester Eamon? But he's one hundred and two years old, my lord. He can't. You're sending him and me? Who will tend the ravens? If they're sick or wounded, who would? Clydus. He's been with Eamon for years. Clydus is only a steward, and his eyes are going bad. You need a maester. Maester Eamon is so frail. A sea voyage, it might... He's old and... His life will be at risk, I am aware of that, Sam. But the risk is greater here. Stannis knows who Eamon is. If the Red Woman requires king's blood for her spells... Ooh, Sam's fat cheeks seem to drain of color. Darian will join you at Eastwatch. My hope is that his songs will win some men for us in the south. The uh, Blackbird will deliver you to Bravus. From there you'll arrange your own passage to Old Town. If you still mean to claim Gilly's babe as your bastard, 
send her and the child unto Horn Hill. Elsewise, Amon will find a servant's place for her at the citadel. My b b bastard, y yes, I, my mother and my sisters will help Gilly with a child. Darian could see her to Old Town just as well as me. I, I've been working at my archery every afternoon with Ulmer as you commanded. Well, except when I'm in the vaults, but you tell me to find out about the others. The longbow makes my shoulders ache and raises blisters on my fingers. He showed Johnny's hand. I still do it, though. I can hit the target more often than not now, but I'm still the worst archer who ever bent a bow. I like Alma's stories, though. Someone needs to write them down and put them in a book. You do it. They have parchment and ink at the Citadel, as well as longbows. I will expect you to continue with your practice. Sam, the Night's Watch has hundreds of men who can loose an arrow, but only a handful who can read or write. I need you to become my new maester. My lord, I... My work is here. The books will be here when you return to us. Sam put a hand to his throat. My lord, the citadel, they make you cut up corpses there. I, I cannot wear a chain. You can, you will. Maester Eamon is old and blind. His strength is leaving him. Who will take his place when he dies? Maester Mullen at the Shadow Tower is more fighter than scholar, and Maester Harmoon of East Watch is drunk more than he is sober. If you ask the Citadel for more maesters, I mean to. We'll have need of every one. Eamon Targaryen is not so easily replaced, however. This is not going as I had hoped. He had known Gilly would be hard, but he had assumed... Sam would be glad to trade the dangers of the war for the warmth of Old Town. I was certain this would please you, he said, puzzled. There are so many books at the Citadel that no man can hope to read them all. You would do well there, Sam. I know you would. No, I, I could read the books, but a, a ma maester must be a healer, and b b blood makes me faint. His hand shook to prove the truth of that. I'm Sam the Scared, not Sam the Slayer. Scared of what? The chidings of old men? Sam, you saw the whites come swarming up the fist. A tide of living dead men with black hands and bright blue eyes. You slew an other. It was the dragon glass, not me. Be quiet, John snapped. After Gilly, he had no patience for the fat boy's fears. You lied and schemed and plotted to make me Lord Commander. You will obey me. You will go to the Citadel and forge a chain. And if you have to cut up corpses, so be it. At least in Old Town the corpses won't object. My lord, my f f f father, Lord Randall, he, 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 the life of a maester is a life of servitude. No son of House Tarly will ever wear a chain. The men of Horn Hill do not bow and scrape to petty lords. John, I cannot disobey my father. Kill the boy, John thought. The boy in you and the one in him. Kill the both of them, you bloody bastard. You have no father, only brothers, only us. Your life belongs to the Night's Watch. So go and stuff your small clothes 
into a sack along with anything else you care to take to Old Town. You leave an hour before sunrise. And here's another order. From this day forth, you will not call yourself a craven. You face more things this past year than most men face in a lifetime. You can face the Citadel, but you'll face it as a sworn brother of the Night's Watch. I can't command you to be brave, but I can command you to hide your fears. You said the word, Sam. Remember. I, I'll try. You won't try. You will obey. Obey! Mormon's raven flapped its great black wings. Sam seemed to sag. As my lord commands, does, does Maester Eamon know? It was as much his idea as mine. John opened the door for him. No farewells. The fewer folk who know of this, the better. An hour before first light, by the lich yard. Sam fled from him, just as Gilly had. John was tired. Ah, oh, I need sleep. He had been up half the night, poring over maps, writing letters, and making plans with Maester Eamon. Even after stumbling into his narrow bed, rest had not come easily. He knew what he would face today, and found himself tossing restlessly as he brooded on Maester Eamon's final words. "'Allow me to give my lord one last piece of counsel,' the old man had said. "'The same counsel that I once gave my brother when we parted for the last time. He was three-and-thirty when the great council chose him to mount the Iron Throne.' a man grown with sons of his own, yet in some ways still a boy. Egg had an innocence to him, a sweetness we all loved. Kill the boy within you, I told him, the day I took ship for the wall. It takes a man to rule. An Aegon, not an egg. Kill the boy and let the man be born. The old man felt John's face. You are half the age that Egg was, and your own burden is a crueler one, I fear. You will have little joy of your command, but I think you have the strength in you to do the things that must be done. Kill the boy, John Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy, and let the man be born. John donned his cloak and strode outside. He made the rounds of Castle Black each day, visiting the men on watch and hearing their reports firsthand, watching Ulmer and his charges at the archery butts, talking with king's men and queen's men alike, walking the ice atop the wall to have a look at the forest. Ghost padded after him, a white shadow at his side. Kedge White Eye had the wall when John made his ascent. Kedge had seen forty-odd name-days, thirty of them on the wall. His left eye was blind, his right eye mean. In the wild, alone with Axe and Garin, he was as good a ranger as any in the watch, but he had never gotten on well with the other men. A quiet day, he told John, nothing to report except the wrong-way rangers. The wrong-way rangers, John asked. Fledge grinned, a pair of knights. "'went riding off an hour ago, south along the King's Road. "'When Dywin saw them buggering off, he said, 
the southern fools were riding the wrong way. I see, said John. He found out more from Dywin himself as the old forester sucked down a bowl of barley broth in the barracks. Aye, my lord, I saw them. Hawp and Massey it were. Claim Stannis sent them out, but never said where or what for or when they would be back. Sir Richard Hawp and Sir Justin Massey were both Queen's men and high in the King's councils. A pair of common free riders would have served if all that Stannis had in mind was scouting, John Snow reflected, but knights are better suited to act as messengers or envoys. Cutter Pike had sent word from Eastwatch that the Onion Lord and Salador's son had set sail for White Harbour to treat with Lord Manderley. It made sense that Stannis would send out other envoys. His grace was not a patient man. Whether the wrong-way rangers would return was another question. Knights they might be, but they did not know the north. There will be eyes along the King's Road, not all of them friendly. It was none of John's concern, though. Let Stannis have his secrets. The guards know that I have mine. Ghost slept at the foot of the bed that night, and for once John did not dream he was a wolf. Even so, he slept fitfully, tossing for hours before sliding down into a nightmare. Gilly was in it, weeping, pleading with him to leave her babes alone, but he ripped the children from her arms and hacked their heads off, then swapped their heads around and told her to sew them back in place. When he woke, he found Ed Tollett looming over him in the darkness of his bedchamber. "'My lord, it is time, the hour of the wolf. You left orders to be woken.' "'Bring me something hot,' John threw off his blankets. Ed was back by the time that he had dressed, pressing a steaming cup into his hands. John expected hot, mild wine, and was surprised to find that it was soup, a thin broth, that smelled of leeks and carrots, but seemed to have no leeks or carrots in it. The smells are stronger in my wolf dreams, he reflected, and food tastes richer, too. Ghost is more alive than I am. He left the empty cup upon the forge. Keggs was on his door this morning. I will want to speak with Bedwick and with Janus Slint, John told him. Have them both here at first light. Outside the world was black and still. Cold, but not dangerously cold, not yet. It will be warmer when the sun comes up. If the guards are good, the wall may weep. When they reached the lichyard, the column had already formed up. John had given Black Jack Bulwer command of the escort, with a dozen mounted rangers under him, and two wains. One was piled high with chests and crates and sacks, provisions for the journey. The other had a stiff roof of boiled leather to keep the wind off. Maester Eamon was seated in the back of it, huddled in a bearskin that made him look as small as a child. Sam and Gilly stood nearby. Her eyes were red and puffy, but the boy was in her arms bundled tight. Whether it was her boy or Dallas, he could not be sure. He had only seen the two together a few times. Dilly's boy was older, Dallas more robust, but they were close enough in age and size 
so that no one who did not know them well would be able to easily tell one from the other. "'Lord Snow,' Maester Eamon called out, "'I left a book for you in my chambers, the Jade Compendium. It was written by the Volantine adventurer Coloquo Votar, who travelled to the east and visited all the lands of the Jade Sea. There's a passage you may find of interest. I've told Clydus to mark it for you. I'll be sure to read it. Master Eamon wiped his nose. Knowledge is a weapon, John. Arm yourself well before you ride forth to battle. I will. John felt something wet and cold upon his face. When he raised his eyes, he saw that it was snowing. A bad omen. He turned to Black Jack Bulwer. Make as good a time as you can, but take no foolish risks. You have an old man and a suckling babe with you. See that you keep them warm and well fed. You do the same, my lord. Gilly did not seem in any haste to climb into the wain. You do the same for t'other. Find another wet nurse, like you said. You promised me you would. The boy, Dallas boy, the little prince, I, I mean, you find him some good woman, so he grows up big and strong. You have my word. Don't you name him. Don't you do that till he's past two years. It's ill luck to name them when they're still on the breast. You crows may not know that, but it's true. As you command, my lady. Don't you call me that. I'm a mother, not a lady. I'm Craster's wife and Craster's daughter and a mother. She gave the babe to Dolorous Ed as she climbed into the wain and covered herself with furs. When Ed gave her back the child, Gilly put him to her breast. Sam turned away from the sight, red-faced, and heaved himself up onto his mare. "'Let's do this!' commanded Black Jack Bulwer, snapping his whip. The wains rolled forward. Sam lingered a moment. "'Well?' he said. "'Farewell!' "'And are you, Sam?' said Dolores Ed. "'Your boat's not like a sink, I don't think. "'Boats only sink when I'm aboard.' "'John was remembering. "'The first time I saw Gilly, "'she was pressed against the wall of Craster's Keep. "'The skinny, dark-haired girl, "'with her big belly, cringing away from Ghost. "'He had gotten in among her rabbits, "'and I think she was frightened "'that he would tear her open and devour the babe.' But it was not the wolf she should have been afraid of, was it? She has more courage than she knows, said Sam. So do you, Sam. Have a swift, safe voyage, and take care of her and Eamon and the child. The cold trickles on his face reminded John of the day he'd bid farewell to Rob at Winterfell, never knowing that it was for the last time. And pull your hood up. The snowflakes are melting in your hair. By the time the little column had dwindled in the distance, the eastern sky had gone from black to grey, and the snow was falling heavily. Joint will be waiting on the Lord Commander's pleasure, Dalred reminded him. Janus Slint as well. Yes. John Snow glanced up at the wall, towering over them like a cliff of ice, a hundred leagues from end to end and seven hundred feet high. The strength of the wall was its height, 
the length of the wall was its weakness. John remembered something his father had said once. A wall is only as strong as the men who stand behind it. The men of the Night's Watch were brave enough, but they were far too few for the task that confronted them. Giant was waiting in the armory. His real name was Bedwick. At a hair and a half over five feet, he was the smallest man in the Night's Watch. John came directly to the point. We need more eyes along the wall. Weigh castles where our patrols can get out of the cold and find hot food and a fresh mount. I am putting a garrison in Ice March and giving you command of it. Giant put the tip of his little finger in his ear to clean out the wax. Command? Me? Oh, my lord knows I'm just a crofter's get on the wall for poaching. You've been a ranger for a dozen years. You survived the fist of the first men and Craster's keep and came back to tell the tale. The younger men look up to you. The small man laughed. Only dwarfs look up to me. I don't read, my lord. On a good day I can write my name. I sent to Old Town for more maesters. You'll have two ravens for when your need is urgent. When it's not, send riders. Until we have more maesters and more birds, I mean to establish a line of beacon towers along the top of the wall. And how many poor fools will I be commanding? Twenty from the watch, said John, and half as many men from Stannis. Old, green, or wounded. They won't be his best men, and none will take the black, but they'll obey. Make what use of them you can. Four of the brothers I'm sending with you will be Kingslanders, who came to the wall with Lord Slint. Keep one eye on that lot, and watch for climbers with the other. We can watch, my lord, but if enough climbers gain the top of the wall, thirty men won't be enough to throw them off. Three hundred might not be enough. John kept that doubt to himself. It was true that climbers were desperately vulnerable whilst on the ascent. Stones and spears and pots of burning pitch could be rained down on them from above, and all they could do was cling desperately to the ice. Sometimes the wall itself seemed to shake them off, as a dog might shake off fleas. John had seen that for himself, when a sheet of ice cracked beneath Val's lover jaw, sending him to his death. If the climbers reached the top of the wall undetected, however, everything changed. Given time, they could carve out a toehold for themselves up there, throwing up ramparts of their own, and dropping ropes and ladders for thousands more to clamber over after them. That was how Raymond Redbeard had done it. Raymond, who had been king beyond the wall in the days of his grandfather's grandfather, Jack Musgood had been the Lord Commander in those days. Jolly Jack, he was called, before Redbeard came down upon the north. Sleepy Jack, forever after. Raymond's host had met a bloody end on the shores of Long Lake, caught between Lord William of Winterfell and the drunken giant Harmond Umber. Redbeard had been slain by Artus the Implacable, Lord William's younger brother. The watch arrived too late to fight the wildlings, but in time to bury them. The task that Arthur Stark assigned them in his wrath as he grieved above the headless corpse of his fallen brother. 
John did not intend to be remembered as sleepy John Snow. Thirty men will stand a better chance than none, he told Giant. True enough, the small man said. Is it just to be ice mark, then, or will me lord be opening t'other forts as well? I mean to garrison all of them in time, said John, but for the moment it will just be ice mark and Greyguard. And as my lord decided who's to command at Greyguard? Janus Slint, said John. God save us. A man does not rise to command of the gold cloaks without ability. Slint was born a butcher's son. He was captain of the Iron Gate when Manly Stokeworth died, and John Aaron raised him up and put the defense of King's Landing into his hands. Lord Janus cannot be as great a fool as he seems, and I want him well away from Alistair Thorne. Might be that so, said Giant, but I'd still send him to the kitchens to help Three-Finger Hob cut up the turnips. If I did, I'd never dare to eat another turnip. Half the morning passed before Lord Janus reported as commanded. John was cleaning Longclaw. Some men would have given that task to a steward or a squire, but Lord Eddard had taught his sons to care for their own weapons. When Kegs and Dolores Ed arrived with Slint, John thanked them and bid Lord Janus sit. That he did, albeit with poor grace, crossing his arms, scowling, and ignoring the naked steel in his Lord Commander's hands. John slid the oilcloth down his bastard sword, watching the play of morning light across the ripples, thinking how easily the blade would slide through skin and fat and sinew to part Slint's ugly head from his body. All of a man's crimes were wiped away when he took the black, and all of his allegiances as well. Yet he found it hard to think of Janus Slint as a brother. There is blood between us. This man helped slay my father, and did his best to have me killed as well. Lord Janus, John sheathed his sword. I am giving you command of Greyguard. That took Slint aback. Greyguard, oh, Greyguard was where you climbed the wall with your wilding friends. It was. The fort is in a sorry state, admittedly. You will restore it as best you can. Start by clearing back the forest. Steal stones from the structures that have collapsed to repair those still standing. The work will be hard and brutal, he might have added. You'll sleep on stone, too exhausted to complain or plot and soon you'll forget what it was like to be warm, but you might remember what it was to be a man. You will have thirty men, ten from here, ten from the Shadow Tower, and ten lent to us by King Stannis. Slint's face had turned the color of a prune. His meaty jowls began to quiver. Do you think I cannot see what you're doing? Janus Slint is not a man to be gulled so easily. I was charged with the defense of King's Landing when you were soiling your swaddling clothes. Keep your ruin, bastard! I am giving you a chance, my lord. It is more than you ever gave my father. You mistake me, my lord, John said. That was a command, not an offer. It is forty leagues to Greyguard. Pack up your arms and armor, say your farewells, 
and be ready to depart at first light on the morrow. No! Lord Janus lurched to his feet, sending his chair crashing over backwards. I will not go meekly off to freeze and die. No traitor's bastard gives command to Janus slint. I am not without friends, I warn you, here and in King's Landing too. I was the Lord of Harrenhal. Give your ruin to one of your blind fools who cast a stone for you. I will not have it. Do you hear me, boy? I will not have it. You will. Slint did not deign to answer that, but he kicked the chair aside as he departed. He still sees me as a boy, John thought, a green boy, to be cowed by angry words. He could only hope that a night's sleep would bring Lord Janus to his senses. The next morning proved that hope was vain. John found Slint breaking his fast in the common room. Sir Alistair Thorne was with him, and several of their cronies. They were laughing about something when John came down the steps with Arne Emmett and Dolorous Ed, and behind them Molly, Horse, Red Jack Crab, Rusty Flowers, and Owen the Oaf. Three Finger Hob was ladling out porridge from his kettle. Queen's men, King's men, and Black Brothers sat at their separate tables, some bent over bowls of porridge, others filling their bellies with fried bread and bacon. John saw Pip and Gren at one table, Bowen Marsh at another. The air smelled of smoke and grease, and the clatter of knives and spoons echoed off the vaulted ceiling. All the voices died at once. Lord Janus, John said, I will give you one last chance. Put down that spoon and get to the stables. I've had your horse saddled and bridled. It's a long, hard road to Greyguard. Then you'd best be on your way, boy, Slint laughed, dribbling porridge down his chest. Greyguard's a good place for the likes of you, I'm thinking. Well away from decent, godly folk. The mark of the beast is on you, bastard. You are refusing to obey my order? You can stick your order up your bastard's ass, said Slint, his jowls quivering. Alistair Thorne smiled a thin smile, his black eyes fixed on John. At another table, Godrey, the giant slayer, began to laugh. As you will, John nodded to Iron Emmet. Please take Lord Janus to the wall and confine him to an ice cell, he might have said. A day or ten, cramped up inside the ice, would leave him shivering and feverish and begging for release. John did not doubt. And the moment he is out, he and Thorn will begin to plot again. And tie him to his horse, he might have said. If Slint did not wish to go to Greyguard as its commander, he could go as its cook. It will only be a matter of time until he deserts, then. And how many others will he take with him? And hang him, John finished. Janus Slint's face went as white as milk. The spoon slipped from his fingers. Ed and Emmett crossed the room, their footsteps ringing on the stone floor. Bowen Marsh's mouth opened and closed, though no words came out. Sir Alistair Thorne reached for his sword-hilt. Go on, John thought. Longclaw was slung across his back. Show your steel. 
give me cause to do the same. Half the men in the hall were on their feet, southern knights and men-at-arms, loyal to King Stannis, or the Red Woman, or both, and sworn brothers of the Night's Watch. Some had chosen John to be their Lord Commander. Others had cast their stones for Bowen Marsh, Sir Dennis Malister, Cutter Pike, and some for Janus Slint. Hundreds of them, as I recall. John wondered how many of those men were in the cellar right now. For a moment the world balanced on a sword's edge. Alistair Thorne took his hand from his sword and stepped aside to let Ed Tollett pass. Dolores Ed took hold of Slint by one arm, Arn Emmett by the other. Together they hauled him from the bench. No, Lord Janus protested, flecks of porridge spraying from his lips. No, unhand me! He's just a boy, a bastard. His father was a traitor. The mark of the beast is on him. That wolf of his... Let go of me! You will rue the day you laid hands on Janus Slint. I have friends in King's Landing. I warn you! He was still protesting as they half-marched, half-dragged him up the steps. John followed them outside. Behind him, the cellar emptied. At the cage, Slint wrenched loose for a moment and tried to make a fight of it. But Iron Emmett caught him by the throat and slammed him back, against the iron bars until he desisted. By then all of Castle Black had come outside to watch. Even Val was at her window, her long golden braid across one shoulder. Stannis stood on the steps of the King's Tower, surrounded by his knights. If the boy thinks that he can frighten me, he is mistaken, they heard Lord Janus say. He would not dare to hang me. Janus Slint! Has friends, important friends, oh, you'll see. The wind whipped away the rest of his words. This is wrong, John thought. Stop! Emmett turned back, frowning. My lord? I will not hang him, said John. Bring him here. Oh, seven savers, he heard Bowen Marsh cry out. The smile that Lord Janus Slint smiled then had all the sweetness of rancid butter, until John said, Ed, fetch me a block, an unsheathed longclaw. By the time a suitable chopping block was found, Lord Janus had retreated into the winch cage, but Iron Emmett went in after him and dragged him out. No! Slint cried, as Emmett half shoved and half pulled him across the yard. Unhand me! You cannot be! <laughs> When Tywin Lannister hears of this, you will all rue. Emmett kicked his legs out from under him. Dolores Ed planted a foot on his back to keep him on his knees as Emmett shoved the block beneath his head. This will go easier if you stay still, Jon Snow promised him. Move to avoid the cut and you will still die, but your dying will be uglier. Stretch out your neck, my lord. The pale morning sunlight ran up and down his blade as John clasped the hilt of the bastard sword with both hands and raised it high. If you have any last words, now's the time to speak them, he said, expecting one last curse. Janus Slint twisted his neck around to stare up at him. Please, my lord, mercy, I'll, 
I'll go. I, I will. I... No, thought John. You close that door. Longclaw descended. Can I have his boots? asked Owen the Oaf, as Janus Slint's head went rolling across the muddy ground. They're almost new, those boots, lined with fur. John glanced back at Stannis. For an instant their eyes met. Then the king nodded and went back inside his tower. Tyrion He woke alone and found the litter halted. A pile of crushed cushions remained to show where Illyrio had sprawled. The dwarf's throat felt dry and raspy. He had dreamed. What had he dreamed? He did not remember. Outside, voices were speaking in a tongue he did not know. Tyrion swung his legs through the curtains and hopped to the ground to find Magister Illyrio standing by the horses with two riders looming over him. Both wore shirts of worn leather beneath cloaks of dark brown wool, but their swords were sheathed, and the fat man did not look to be in danger. "'I need a piss,' the dwarf announced. He waddled off the road, undid his breeches, and relieved himself into a tangle of thorns. It took quite a long time. "'He pisses well, at least,' a voice observed. Tyrion flicked the last drops off and tucked himself away. "'Pissing is the least of my talents. You ought to see me shit.' He turned to Magister Illyrio. "'Are these two known to you, Magister? They look like outlaws. Should I find my axe?' "'Your axe?' exclaimed the larger of the riders, a brawny man with a shaggy beard and a shock of orange hair. "'Did you hear that, Alden? <laughs> the little man wants to fight with us.' His companion was older, clean-shaven, with a lion ascetic face. His hair had been pulled back and tied in a knot behind his head. A small of men oft feel a need to prove their courage with unseemly boasts, he declared. I doubt if he could kill a duck. Tyrion shrugged. Fetch the duck. If you insist, the rider glanced at his companion. The brawny man unsheathed a bastard sword. I'm Doc, you mouthy little pisspot. Oh, gods be good. I had a smaller duck in mind. The big man roared with laughter. <laughs> Did you hear, Alden? He wants a smaller duck. I should gladly settle for a quieter one. The man called Holden studied Tyrion with cool grey eyes before turning back to Illyrio. You have some chests for us? and mules to carry them. Mules are too slow. We have pack horses. We'll shift the chest to them. Duck, attend to that. Why is it always Duck who attends to things? The big man slipped his sword back in its sheath. What do you attend to, Alden? Who is the knight here, you or me? Yet he stumped off toward the baggage mules all the same. How fares our lad? asked Illyrio as the chests were being secured. Tyrion counted six oaken chests with iron hasps. Doc shifted them easily enough, hoisting them on one shoulder. He's as tall as Griff now. Three days ago, he knocked Duck into a horse trough. I wasn't knocked. I fell in just to make him laugh. 
Your ploy was a success, said Holden. I laughed myself. There is a gift for the boy in one of the chests, some candied ginger. He was always fond of it. Illyria sounded oddly sad. I thought I might continue on to Goy and Drow with you. A farewell feast before you start down river. We have no time for feasts, my lord, said Holden. Griff means to strike down river the instant we are back. News has been coming up river. None of it good. Dothraki have been seen north of Dagger Lake. Outriders from old Mother's Kalasar, and Carl's Echo is not far behind him, moving through the forest of Kohor. The fat man made a rude noise. Zeko visits Kohor every three or four years. The Kohorik give him a sack of gold, and he turns east again. As for Motho, his men are near as old as he is, and there are fewer every year. The threat is Karl Pano, Holden finished. Motho and Zeko flee from him, if the tales are true. The last reports had Pano near the headwaters of the Selharu, where the callous are of thirty thousand. Griff does not want to risk being caught up in the crossing if Pano should decide to risk the ruin. Holden glanced at Tyrion. Does your dwarf ride as well as he pisses? He rides, Tyrion broke in, before the Lord of Cheese could answer for him, though he rides best with a special saddle and a horse that he knows well. He talks as well. Uh, so he does. I am Holden, the healer in our little band of brothers. Some call me Half-Maester. My companion is Sir Duck. Sir Rolly, said the big man. Rolly Duckfield. Any knight can make a knight, and Griff made me. And you, dwarf? Illyrio spoke up quickly. Yellow, he is called. Yellow? <laughs> Yellow sounds like something you might name a monkey. Worse, it was a Pentushi name, and any fool could see that Tyrion was no Pentushi. In Pentas I am Yellow, he said quickly, to make what amends he could, but my mother named me Hugo Hill. Are you a little king or a little bastard? asked Holden. Tyrion realized he would do well to be careful around Holden half-maester. Every dwarf is a bastard in his father's eyes. No doubt. Well, Hugo Hill, answer me this. How did Serwin of the Mirror Shield slay the dragon Urex? He approached behind his shield. Urex saw only his own reflection until Serwin had plunged his spear through his eye. Holden was unimpressed. Even Duck knows that tale. Can you tell me the name of the knight who tried the same ploy with Vagar during the Dance of the Dragons? Tyrion grinned. Sir Byron Swan. He was roasted for his trouble. Only the dragon was Cyrex, not Vagar. I fear that you are mistaken. In The Dance of the Dragons, a true telling, Maester Munken writes that it was Vega, Grand Maester Munken errs. Sir Byron Squire saw his master die and wrote his daughter of the manner of it. His account says it was Cyrax, Rhaenyra She-Dragon, which makes more sense than Munken's version. 
Swan was the son of a martial lord, and Storm's End was for Aegon. Fagar was ridden by Prince Aemond, Aegon's brother. Why should Swan want to slay her? Halden pursed his lips. Try not to tumble off the horse. If you do, best waddle back to Pentos. Our shy maid will not wait for man, nor dwarf. Shy maids are my favorite sort, aside from wanton ones. Tell me, where do whores go? Do I look like a man who frequents whores? Duck laughed derisively. <laughs> he don't dare. Lamour would make him pray for pardon. The lad would want to come along, and Griff might cut his cock off and stuff it down his throat. Well, said Tyrion, a maester does not need a cock. Holden's only half a maester, though. You seem to find the dwarf amusing, Duck, said Holden. He can ride with you. He wheeled his mount about. It took another few moments for Duck to finish securing Illyrio's chest to the three pack-horses. By that time, Holden had vanished. Duck seemed unconcerned. He swung into the saddle, grabbed Tyrion by the collar, and hoisted the little man up in front of him. Hold tight to the pommel, and you'll do fine. The mare's got a nice sweet gait, and the dragon roads smooth as a maiden's ass. Gathering the reins in his right hand and the leads in his left, Sir Raleigh set off at a brisk trot. "'Good fortune!' Illyria called after them. "'Tell the boy I am sorry that I will not be with him for his wedding. I will rejoin you in Westeros. That I swear by my sweet Sarah's hands!' The last that Tyrion Lannister saw of Illyrio Mopatus, the magister was standing by his litter in his brocade robes. His massive shoulders slumped. As his figure dwindled in their dust, the Lord of Cheese looked almost small. Duck caught up with Holden Halfmaester a quarter of a mile on. Thereafter the riders continued side by side. Tyrion clung to the high pommel with his short legs splayed out awkwardly, knowing he could look forward to blisters, cramps, and saddle sores. "'I wonder what the pirates of Dagger Lake will make of our dwarf,' Holden said as they rode on. "'Dwarf stew,' Duck suggested. "'Euro, the unwashed, is the worst of them,' Holden confided. "'His stench alone is enough to kill a man.' Tyrion shrugged. "'Fortunately, I have no nose.' Holden gave him a thin smile. "'If we should encounter the Lady Cora on Hag's teeth, you may soon be lacking other parts as well. Cora the Cruel, they call her. Her ship is crewed by beautiful young maids who geld every male they capture. Terrifying! I may well piss my breeches.' "'Best not,' Dot warned darkly. As you say, if we encounter this Lady Cora, I will just slip into a skirt and say that I am Cersei, the famous bearded beauty of King's Landing. This time Duck laughed, and Holden said, What a droll little fellow you are, Yolo. They say that the shrouded lord will grant a boon to any man who can make him laugh. Perhaps his grey grace will choose you to ornament his stony court. Duck glanced at his companion uneasily. 
It's not good to jape of that one. Not when we're so near the ruin. He hears. Wisdom from a duck, said Holden. I beg your pardon, Yellow. You need not look so pale. I was only playing with you. The Prince of Sorrows does not bestow his grey kiss lightly. His grey kiss? The thought made his flesh crawl. Death had lost its terror for Tyrion Lannister, but Grayscale was another matter. The Shrouded Lord is just a legend, he told himself. No more real than the ghost of Lan the Clever, that some claim haunts Castle Rock. Even so, he held his tongue. The dwarf's sudden silence went unnoticed, as Doc had begun to regale him with his own life story. His father had been an armourer at Bitterbridge, he said, so he had been born with a sound of steel ringing in his ears and had taken to swordplay at an early age. Such a large and likely lad drew the eye of old Lord Castle, who offered him a place in his garrison, but the boy had wanted more. He watched Caswell's weakling son, named a page, a squire, and finally a knight. A weedy, pinch-faced sneak he was, uh, but the old lord had four daughters and only the one son, so no one was allowed to say a word against him. T'other squires hardly dared to lay a finger on him in the yard. You were not so timid, though. Tyrion could see where this tale was going easily enough. "'My father made a longsword for me to mark my sixteenth name-day,' said Doc. "'But Laurent liked the look of it so much he took it for himself, "'and my bloody father never dared to tell him no. "'When I complained, Laurent told me to my face "'that my hand was made to hold armour, not a sword. "'So I went and got armour and beat him with it "'till both his arms and half his ribs were broken.' After that I had to leave the reach, quick as it were. I made it across the water to the Golden Company. I did some smithing for a few years as an apprentice. Then Sir Harry Strickland took me on as squire. When Griff sent word down river that he needed someone to help train his son to arms, Harry sent him me. And Griff knighted you? A year later... Holden Halfmaster smiled a thin smile. "'Tell our little friend how you came by your name, why don't you?' "'A knight needs more than just the one name,' the big man insisted. "'And, uh, well, we were in a field when he dubbed me, and I, I looked up and saw these ducks, so don't laugh now.' Just after sunset they left the road to rest in an overgrown yard beside an old stone well. Tyrion hopped down to work the cramps out of his calves whilst Duck and Holden were watering the horses. Tough brown grass and weed trees sprouted from the gaps between the cobbles and the mossy walls of what once might have been a huge stone manse. After the animals had been tended to, the riders shared a simple supper of salt pork and cold white beans washed down with ale. Tyrion found the plain fare a pleasant change from all the rich food he had eaten with Illyrio. "'Those chests we brought you,' he said as they were chewing. "'Gold for the Golden Company, I thought at first, until I saw Sir Raleigh oyster chest onto one shoulder. If it were full of coin, he could never have lifted it so easily.' 
It's just armor, said Duck with a shrug. Uh, clothing as well, Alden broke in. Court clothes for all our party, fine woolens, velvets, silken cloaks. One does not come before a queen looking shabby, nor empty-handed. The magister has been kind enough to provide us with suitable gifts. Come moonrise, they were back in their saddles, trotting eastward under a mantle of stars. The old Valerian road glimmered ahead of them like a long silver ribbon winding through wood and dale. For a little while Tyrion Lannister felt almost at peace. Lomas Longstrider told it true. The road's a wonder. Lomas Longstrider, asked Doc, a scribe, long dead, said Holden. He spent his life traveling the world and writing about the lands he visited in two books he called Wonders and Wonders Made by Men. An uncle of mine gave them to me when I was just a boy, said Tyrion. I read them until they fell to pieces. The gods made seven wonders, and mortal man made nine, quoted the half-maester. A rather impious of mortal man to do the gods too better, but there you are. The stone roads of Valeria were one of Longstrider's nine. The fifth, I believe. The fourth, said Tyrion, who had committed all sixteen of the wonders to memory as a boy. His uncle Geryon liked to set him on the table during feasts and make him recite them. I liked that well enough, didn't I? Standing there amongst the trenches with every eye upon me, proving what a clever little imp I was. For years afterward, he had cherished a dream that one day he would travel the world and see Longstrider's wonders for himself. Lord Tywin had put an end to that hope ten days before his dwarf son's sixteenth name-day, when Tyrion asked to tour the nine free cities, as his uncles had done at that same age. "'My brothers could be relied upon to bring no shame upon House Lannister,' his father had replied. "'Neither ever wed a whore!' And when Tyrion had reminded him that in ten days he would be a man grown, free to travel where he wished, Lord Tywin had said, no man is free. Only children and fools think elsewise. Go by all means, wear motley, and stand up on your head to amuse the spice lords and the cheese kings. Just see that you pay your own way, and put aside any thoughts of returning. At that the boy's defiance had crumbled. If it is useful occupation you require— "'Useful occupation you shall have,' his father then said. So to mark his manhood, Tyrion was given charge of all the drains and cisterns within Casterly Rock. Perhaps he hoped I'd fall into one. Lord Tywin had been disappointed in that. The drains never drained half so well as when he had charge of them. "'I need a cup of wine to wash the taste of Tywin from my mouth. A skin of wine—' would serve me even better. They rode all night, with Tyrion sleeping fitfully, dozing against the pommel and waking suddenly. From time to time he would begin to slip sideways from the saddle, but Sir Raleigh would get a hand on him and yank him upright once again. By dawn the dwarf's legs were aching and his cheeks were chafed and raw. It was the next day before they reached the site of Goyandro, hard beside the river.
Lord of Fable Ruin, said Tyrion, when he glimpsed the slow green waterway from atop a rise. The Little Ruin, said Duck. It is that. A pleasant enough river, I suppose, but the smallest fork of the Trident is twice as wide, and all three of them run swifter. The city was no more impressive. Goyandro had never been large, Tyrion recalled from his histories, but it had been a fair place, green and flowering, a city of canals and fountains. Until the war, until the dragons came. A thousand years later, the canals were choked with reeds and mud, and pools of stagnant water gave birth to swarms of flies. The broken stones of temples and palaces were sinking back into the earth, and gnarled old willows grew thick along the river banks. A few people still remained amidst the squalor, tending little gardens in amongst the weeds. The sound of iron hooves ringing on the old Valerian road sent most of them darting back into the holes they'd crawled from, but the bolder ones lingered in the sun long enough to stare at the passing riders with dull, incurious eyes. One naked girl, with mud up to her knees, could not seem to take her eyes off Tyrion. She has never seen a dwarf before, he realized, much less a dwarf without a nose. He made a face and stuck his tongue out, and the girl began to cry. "'What did you do to her?' Doc asked. "'They blew her a kiss. All the girls cry when I kiss them.' Beyond the tangled willows the road ended abruptly, and they turned north for a short ways and rode beside the water, until the brush gave way and they found themselves beside an old stone quay half-submerged and surrounded by tall brown weeds. "'Duck!' came a shout. "'Hold in!' Tyrion craned his head to one side and saw a boy standing on the roof of a low wooden building, waving a wide-brimmed straw hat. He was a lithe and well-made youth, with a lanky build and a shock of dark blue hair. The dwarf put his age at fifteen, sixteen, or near enough to make no matter. The roof the boy was standing on turned out to be the cabin of the shy maid, an old ramshackle single-masted pole-boat. She had a broad beam and a shallow draught, ideal for making her way up the smallest of streams and crab-walking over sandbars. A homely maid, thought Tyrion, but sometimes the ugliest ones are the hungriest once abed. The pole-boats that plied the rivers of dawn were often brightly painted and exquisitely carved, but not this maid. Her paintwork was a muddy, greyish-brown, mottled and flaking, her big, curved tiller plain and unadorned. She looks like dirt, he thought, but no doubt that's the point. Duck was hallooing back by then. The mare splashed through the shallows, trampling down the reeds. The boy leapt down off the cabin roof to the pole-boat's deck, and the rest of the shy maid's crew made their appearance. An older couple, with a roinish cast to their features, stood close beside the tiller, whilst a handsome scepter, in a soft white robe, stepped through the cabin door and pushed a lock of dark brown hair from her eyes. But there was no mistaking Griff. "'That will be enough shouting,' he said. A sudden silence fell upon the river. 
Oh, this one will be trouble, Tyrion knew at once. Griff's cloak was made from the hide and head of a red wolf of the Rhoyne. Under the pelt he wore brown leather stiffened with iron rings. His clean-shaven face was leathery too, with wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. Though his hair was as blue as his son's, he had red roots and redder eyebrows. At his hip hung sword and dagger. If he was happy to have Duck and Holden back again, he hid it well. But he did not trouble to conceal his displeasure at the sight of Tyrion. A dwarf? What's this? I know. You were hoping for a wheel of cheese. Tyrion turned to young Griff and gave the lad his most disarming smile. Blue hair may serve you well in Tyrosh, but in Westeros children will throw stones at you and girls will laugh in your face. The lad was taken aback. My mother was a lady of Tyrosh. I dye my hair in memory of her. What is this creature? Griff demanded. Holden answered. Illyrio sent a letter to explain. I will have it then. Take the dwarf to my cabin. I do not like his eyes, Tyrion reflected, when the sword sat down across from him in the dimness of the boat's interior with a scarred plank table and a tallow candle between them. They were ice blue, pale, cold. The dwarf misliked pale eyes. Lord Tywin's eyes had been pale green and flecked with gold. He watched the sword read. That he could read said something all by itself. How many swords could boast of that? He hardly moves his lips at all, Tyrion reflected. Finally Griff looked up from the parchment, and those pale eyes narrowed. Tywin Lannister dead? At your hand? At my finger. This one. Tyrion held it up for Griff to admire. Lord Tywin was sitting on a privy, so I put a crossbow bolt to his bowels to see if he really did shit gold. He didn't. A pity I could have used some gold. I also slew my mother somewhat earlier. Oh, and my nephew Joffrey. I poisoned him at his wedding feast and watched him choke to death. Did the cheesemonger leave that part out? I mean to add my brother and sister to the list before I'm done, if it please your queen. Please, her? Has Illyrio taken leave of his senses? Why does he imagine that her grace would welcome the service of a self-confessed kingslayer and betrayer? A fair question, thought Tyrion, but what he said was, The king I slew was sitting on her throne, and all those I betrayed were lions, so it seems to me that I have already done the queen good service. He scratched the stump of his nose. Have no fear, I won't kill you. You are no kin of mine. Might I see what the cheesemonger wrote? I do love to read about myself. Griff ignored the request. Instead, he touched the letter to the candle flame and watched the parchment blacken, curl, and flare up. There is blood between Targaryen and Lannister. Why will you support the cause of Queen Daenerys? For gold and glory, the dwarf said cheerfully. Oh, and hate. If you'd ever met my sister, you would understand. I understand hate well enough. From the way Griff said the word, Tyrion knew that much was true. 
he has supped on hate himself, this one. It has warmed him in the night for years. Then we have that in common, sir. I am no knight, not only a liar, but a bad one. <laughs> that was clumsy and stupid, my lord. And yet, Sir Duck says, you knighted him. Duck talks too much. Some might wonder that a duck can talk at all. No matter, Griff, you are no knight, and I am Hugo Hill, a little monster. Your little monster, if you like. You have my word. All that I desire is to be leal servant of your dragon queen. And how do you propose to serve her? With my tongue. He licked his fingers one by one. I can tell her grace how my sweet sister thinks, if you call it thinking. I can tell her captains the best way to defeat my brother Jamie in battle. I know which lords are brave and which are craven, which are loyal and which are venal. I can deliver allies to her, and I know much and more of dragons, as your half-master will tell you. I'm amusing, too, and I don't eat much. Consider me your own true imp. Griff weighed that for a moment. Understand this, dwarf. You are the last and least of our company. Hold your tongue and do as you're told, or you will soon wish you had. Yes, father, Tyrion almost said. As you say, my lord, I am no lord, liar. It was a courtesy, my friend. I'm not your friend either. No knight, no lord, no friend. Ah, a pity. Spare me your irony. I will take you as far as Valentis. If you show yourself to be obedient and useful, you may remain with us, to serve the queen as best you can. Prove yourself more trouble than you're worth, and you can go your own way. I and my way will take me to the bottom of the ruin, with fish nibbling at what's left of my nose. Vala de Harris. You may sleep on the deck or in the hole, as you prefer. Yasilla will find bedding for you. How kind of her. Tyrion made a waddling bow, but at the cabin door he turned back. What if we should find the queen and discover that this talk of dragons was just some sailor's drunken fancy? This wide world is full of such mad tales. Grumpkins and snarks, ghosts and ghouls, mermaids, rock goblins, winged horses, winged pigs, winged lions. Griff stared at him, frowning. I've given you fair warning, Lannister. Guard your tongue or lose it. Kingdoms are at hazard here. Our lives, our names, our honour. This is no game we're playing for your amusement. Oh, of course it is, thought Tyrion, the game of thrones. As you say, Captain, he murmured, bowing once again. Davis Lightning split the northern sky, etching the black tar of the night lamp against the blue-white sky. Six heartbeats later came the thunder, like a distant drum. The guards marched Davis Seaworth across a bridge of black basalt and under an iron portcullis showing signs of rust. Beyond lay a deep salt moat and a drawbridge supported by a pair of massive chains. Green water surged below sending up plumes of spray to smash against the foundations of the castle. Then came a second gatehouse, larger than the first, 
its stones bearded with green algae. Davis stumbled across a muddy yard with his hands bound at the wrists. A cold rain stung his eyes. The guards prodded him up the steps into Breakwater's cavernous stone keep. Once inside, the captain removed his cloak and hung it from a peg so as not to leave puddles on the thread 